Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart for a year, and what a year it has been. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Make Woke AF Daily your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Summon your anticipation for an all-new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. This season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix, May 16th. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes drop starting May 2nd. Hey, everybody, Robert Evans here, and I wanted to let you know this is a compilation episode. So every episode of the week that just happened uh, is here in one convenient and with somewhat less ads package for you to listen to in a long stretch if you want. Uh, If you've been listening to the episodes every day this week, there's going to be nothing new here for you, but you can make your own decisions. Uh, welcome to It Could Happen Here, a podcast where we talk about things falling apart. And this week we're talking about our ability to have things that that don't get co-opted by uh, fascists falling apart. Garrison, hello. Take us, take us away. Yes. So today we w- we're going to talk about kind of why maybe it's great not to cede any aesthetic ground to fascists anytime it's uncomfortable um and to do so we've brought on uh someone who i found on twitter who wrote a very very great article about some kind of ongoing debate and drama around like anarchist symbols um and fascists trying to use symbols um uh but i'm we are talking to uh black ram hello hey how's how's things i'm 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 actually i'm actually doing okay i've been i've been looking forward to this chat for a while so yes, if um if people are unfamiliar, it looks like the past few weeks people have really freaked out about uh an eight pointed star. People really really seem concerned about it. Um, yeah, and- this has a lot tied in with what's been happening in Ukraine because, as always happens when there's a new story that has anything to do with the the far right, um people got acquainted with some symbols that they had not been aware of before, particularly yeah. the the Sonnenrad. 
which is a common symbol that you'll see on members of the Azov Battalion, kind of some other far-right organizations in Ukraine, as well as elsewhere, you know, the uh, the Christchurch shooter wore a son in red. And then they started identifying all sorts of things that they felt looked like son and rads everywhere yeah. on the internet, and things kind of spiraled from there. Well, and I think there's actually a little bit more to it than that. Well, we'll we're going to get yeah. into we're yeah. going to get into Black Ram's article here shortly. But yeah, I kind of first want to just briefly go through I think why this kind of why this debate happened now because the debates happened before, but it's never gotten this like intense. A, a big part of this is tied to uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine and everyone wanting to play like Where's Waldo with symbols being like, can you spot the Sonnenrad on the on the pictures of the Azov battalion? Um, and I think the other so like so everyone's already kind of looking for symbols uh, as like a fun game. But the other thing that's kind of happening is because of the Russia-Dugin connection. Dugin's like a political uh, fascist writer who's a very influential inside Russia. Um, but because of the Russia-Dugin connection, uh, some people are now seeing uh, Dugin's symbol, the Eurasian uh, square, for the first time, right? And now that they've seen the square, they're seeing anarchists using the Chaos Star, which looks a little similar. They're, they're not the same. But they're because they just because they just learned about the Eurasian Square. Now they're seeing the Chaos Star, and they've never really noticed the Chaos Star before. Maybe they're st they just don't really care about what symbols random people use. But now that they see the Eurasian symbol and they see the Chaos Star, they're making this connection here, and they think this is a new development, right? They think this is like like they're they're asking themselves like why are anarchists suddenly using this fascist symbol, um, which they either think to themselves or they think out loud on Twitter.com. Uh, which is really rich because I mean anarchists have been using the Chaos Star longer than Dugan's been using his Eurasian Square, and if you have been watching anarchists for any amount of time on the internet, I know you you would have seen them using the Chaos Star. Um, it's not a, it's not a new development by any means, but because everyone's trying to like where's Waldo and osent their way through the war, they're they're kind of drawing these uh, false connections. Which is kind of unfortunate because there is actually some interesting things to talk about in terms of how Dugan did kind of uh, base his design off of uh, Michael Moorcock's uh, Chaos Star and a whole bunch of stuff around like why anarchists use the Chaos Star. And, you know, there's a, whole, there's, there's a nice debate ha to be had there around fascists always inserting themselves in these subcultures and trying to gain ground, whether it be like the punk scene, the industrial music scene, uh, you know, online gaming, right? Fascists always try to do this. Uh, just often we want to we try to push back on that, right? Like Nazi punks fuck off. But it seems sp specifically with the Chaos Star, a whole bunch of people just want to cave and let them kind of take this symbol, which is, I don't, I think not not a not a great instinct um but to to kind of to kind of talk about this and other kind of background stuff uh like i said we brought on a uh, black ram hello uh to help to help talk about this so yeah what kind of prompted you to write your article i guess on you know watching this debate kind of go down what what kind of actually just like what was the, what was the straw that broke the camel's back and being like okay now i need to write like a decently long article on this topic I think I've said this on like uh, on uh, on Twitter a little while before writing the actual article, but um, I think the, uh, the the spark was a thread from a guy you may or may not have seen him around. He's like somebody. He's like well, Demsock, but 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 he has like anarchist leading on his bio, which I guess sort of which I guess sort of communicates the idea that 
he would probably like anarchism if he did not consider it to be impractical. Sure. Yeah. But anyways, I actually I kind of wavered on the idea of covering it at all. I thought it would I thought it would only go for like a few days. And it was sort of a Johnny come lately by maybe a day or so, admittedly. But I figured it would be sort of ephemeral. But there's things I sort of kept seeing. But in the midst of writing it, there was like some tanky who went even further and made the link to the Chaos Star. And I think it was the logo of the Sith Empire from certain Star Wars yeah. media. Yeah, it, we'll, it, talk, it, we'll it, talk about that. It's yeah. like... It's it's like well it's like well one has six lines and they're not even arrows they're just like uh, blocks in like a sort of hexagonal shape but it's like the same guys really like the idea that the logo of the Ukrainian armed forces is actually the Iron Cross yeah, uh, yeah. a big chunk of this I I think kind of the prehistory of why this became such a specific problem started with kind of unite the right in the period after that, where you had all these new fascist groups on the ground in the United States, and they all had their symbols. And, I, you know, I was a part of this, to, to, to the degree that there's some culpability here. Um, a, a number of researchers, including myself, were warning people like, hey, there's some, like, symbols that people are, are taking to right-wing gatherings, and they're claiming to be normal conservatives, and these are these are symbols of groups like the Phineas Priesthood or groups like different kind of fascist organizations, and you might not be aware uh, of them. And so you should know what kind of these, you know, the Kekistan flag or whatever means, because people are trying to kind of signpost their sympathy to these extreme groups. And that I think that was important because the, the, those people were legitimate problems, and um, they were trying to kind of stealthily hide their very radical right-wing sympathies behind some like obscure uh, images. But the problem is that it got a lot of people looking, not just looking for fascist symbols and everything, but also looking for the clout that comes from like pointing something like that out. And I think that's, that's kind of the root of a lot of these, these problems. And it's not surprising that it happened with Dugan's symbol. There's no, absolutely not. <laughs> um, Cause it, it does like, again, if you're just like kind of a casual observer, it does look a lot like the chaos star. And, it's and, a, and it makes it's an eight pointed star with arrows. Yeah. And it makes sense. If you know anything about Dugan's philosophy, Dug- Alexander Dugan is a, um, essentially a Russian political theorist and author. Um, there's a lot that's kind of said about how close he is to Putin. He certainly was at one point closer to Putin there's a lot of debate as to whether or not Putin kind of saw him as more of like a useful uh, uh, person to kind of – a useful propaganda organ or or whether or not he really bought into what Dugan was saying. But Dugan is and was a really big advocate of like what, what he called like multipolar um, yeah. uh, international politics. Yeah, multipolarity, which is this idea that like the United States – should not be a um, the hegemonic power in the world, right? Which it kind of was after the fall of the Soviet Union. It's this idea that there should be a bunch of equivalent powers, um, which is, number one, you can see how a lot of folks on the left would be drawn in by that, even if they weren't particularly fans of, of Putin. Just the idea that like, oh, well, yeah, it's it's been a problem that the United States is this massive hegemonic power. Perhaps it would be better if there were a bunch of equivalent powers, um, and, and it's one of those things where there's a logic to that, but it does kind of require ignoring all of the times in the past when we had a multipolar world and there was tremendous violence. <laughs> there's a root error in the sort of pathway, which 
sort of like refuses to deal with imperialism as a global system. Yeah. The reason that's a hang up is because you know, once you once you think of imperialism as a global system, you at you then have to move on to the idea that it's a global system that then has to be dismantled globally. Yeah. You can't quite do that with capitalism because it implicates nations that are supposed to serve as like moments of world historic progress against like hegemonic capitalism. And it is one of those spooks of the mind that people kind of have to do away with, which the anarchist movement sort of does pretty successfully, because that mostly comes from the fact that it starts off from the position of like the state as an actual sort of structural presence. It's sort of funny that like the Marxist argument is usually down to like Hyper focus on the state and hierarchy is idealist, which is odd when you consider that hierarchy and the state are very much material in the same way that capitalism itself is. So it's like a, it's it feels more like a sort of argument that's like, a, well, well, my materialism is the materialism. Your materialism is, in fact, a form of idealism. I think with with that. We're gonna go on a a quick a quick uh, quick ad break, and then we're gonna come back. and I think we should probably now talk about like the origins of the Chaos Star and and Michael Moorcock and Discordianism, um, and then we'll kind of get into the kind of current current debate on it uh, some more. So yeah, Ooh. anyway, here's here's here is some uh, here's some uh, ads for your ears coming in through the earwaves. Oh. yeah, yep, yeah, it's time. It's time mm-hmm. to talk about it's more time talk. for more. Okay, well, you beat me to it. <laughs> so, 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 um, I guess, uh, uh Black Rab, you you actually did a pretty good succinct kind of things on how the Chaos Star came into being initially, uh, via Michael Moorcock. Uh, do you want to just like as brief briefly talk about kind of how he came up with the symbol for his uh, books and stuff? Okay, so full disclosure, I haven't really read the books themselves. I have I, not either. I've, I've, I've read some Michael Moorcock. A lot of what a lot of my familiarity from him is pretty secondhand. One of the main things of that is Sirifungal being like this this sort of eighties band that I sort of think back to. Yeah. Since this, their whole vibe is Moorcock's works. But 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 anyways, the reason why the Chaos Star is the shape that it is is because what it's supposed to represent is meant to extend outward endlessly. Yeah. The counter symbol for order is a single a single upward pointing arrow. Yes. With, funny enough, when I thought about that, I thought about the Tiwaz rune or like Tyr. It doesn't really have the same meaning, but it's like upward pointing arrow in a symbolic context. That's the other example I have. Yeah. But but that upward pointing arrow signifies a straight and narrow expression of where possibility goes where potential sort of goes which creates structure the other the chaos star by contrast has like the eight directions are meant to represent all directions in a circular sort of space like a compass of sorts and the energy and the potential and possibility goes out in all of them with no set path no definite limit no boundaries it just goes it just sort of goes out there it's little wonder why the chaos magic movement embraced it for a very similar set of reasons. Yeah. Since even because even though it is kind of a myth that there's absolutely no rules in chaos magic, what is true is that you can explore very, uh, a very, very broad and like almost limitless range of like 
practical possibilities within that movement within that sort of within that sort of frame yeah it's a it's a very like post-structuralist post-modern view of it but yeah post-modern is how i've heard it described and kind of getting back to the like what moorcock was in brief because i do think we need to kind of give an overview of who he is yes um he he's still alive. Um, last I checked, at least uh, he, is he is alive. I, I I heard him talking at an anarchist yeah. uh, sci-fi conference a few weeks ago. If, if you didn't immediately know who he was, he is the most influential fantasy author you have not heard of. He 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 is like a George R R Martin level of influence, uh, if not significantly more so. Like he he's he. Some people will say he's the most influential fantasy author since Tolkien. Um, and uh, among his, you, you've you've noted the band Sirith Ungol. If you've if you've been a fan of war, of any of the Warhammer games, um, he's a huge influence on that because the thing that he created was kind of the the concept of chaos as a a sort of religious entity. And I'm not going to get into like the depths of the lore in his books, but a lot of it is about kind of the struggle between order and chaos. Um, and so the Chaos Star. Ha, it, it, like, he he created that specifically like for this kind of theological like conflict that occurs throughout his books and it became the symbol of like one of the sides in Warhammer and this very like there's tens of thousands of people who have the chaos star tattooed on them not because of Warhammer but or not because of um any political reason or because of chaos magic because they were fans of like Warhammer 40,000 or whatever yeah and it's in- interesting because in the same time, when I first got into anarchist political theory, before long before I, I considered calling myself one, it was because I came across a book published by AK Press. Um, I think I bought it in 2007 called No Gods, No Masters. And it was it's a collection. A, a lot of people have a copy of this book in, in their house if they're into anarchist theory. It's like a collection of early anarchists, like people like Proudhon, um, essays on like kind of the first wave of anarchist political theory. And it has a chaos star on the cover um, because yeah. number one, Michael Moorcock identif- is an anarchist, um, is a, is a uh, like as an, like is both an author and someone who identifies as an anarchist. Politically, and, yeah. Yeah, politically. And so his books ha- were particularly popular among anarchists um, who don't always get a lot of chunks of pop culture. <laughs> to themselves. <laughs> Absolutely. Um and so he's he's it, it it was kind of from the beginning both this nerdy fantasy symbol that you could see you could you could put alongside a bunch of different shit from the Lord of the Rings. Not to I love the Lord of the Rings, but like you you could see it as like 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 somebody having a tattoo in Elvish, but it also took on almost immediately this dual meaning where it was actually representing aspects of anarchist political theory. And so it was put yep. and printed on like books that were about political theory and had nothing to do with fantasy. So it's, I can't actually, I cannot actually think of another symbol with a similar pedigree. It's it's a really pretty unique case. It is, it is because it's, it's less of like an anarchist symbol, but more a symbol created and used by anarchists. Like it was, yeah. like, it, was, it, was, it, was it was invented by an anarchist. Um, it, was a, it, it was a symbol invented by an anarchist to represent something in fiction that had such resonance that people adopted it as an actual political symbol. Yeah, it honestly, like, it honestly doesn't require that much reach to see no. why people who would buy people who like the idea of there being no hierarchy and no state, mm-hmm. even if not total freedom, there's still like the most range that you could get that results in that negation. It doesn't yeah. take a lot of elaboration to see why the symbol expressly meant for the symbol of chaos would gain traction. 
Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I was talking with Margaret Kiljoy about this a while ago and she was like, yeah, like if you were in the 2000s and you were like a traveling crust punk, at least like 25% of people would have chaos star tattoos because yeah. that's because that like it's about yeah, yeah ex- expanding out in all directions you know you, you're uh, the those the single arrow is law and order instead we're expanding out every in in every possible way yeah um, i mean i have a chaos star tattooed on me and i i it, it's a it, it's it's for primarily ideological reasons as opposed to the fact that i spent my entire childhood <laughs> playing warhammer <laughs> um so so yeah, it's. I think now. So it is worth mentioning. So the Chaos Star was invented in the '60s by Michael Moorcock. Of course, there is. There's been other eight-pointed stars over the course of thousands of years of history. Yes, Jesus, um, of course. It is. It is. It is like a broad, like geometrical shape. Um, Every kind of star has meant something. <laughs> yes, but the the specific design was was made was made by Michael Moorcock. Um, and then because of because of Moorcock's like anarchist tendencies in fiction, his work was used or at least appreciated by a lot of the Discordians, which is also popular. Around the 60s a lot of the situationists um and then as the discordian and situationist movement kind of morphed and started to kind of intermingle with parts of occultism we have the chaos magic movement starting in the late 70s which started also using the the chaos star which makes sense because like what robert you, you were talking about how it's like it's not like it's almost like personifying chaos as like a thing to worship um which is actually a big part of early chaos magic text is is like like reveling in the idea of like chaos as like a primordial god which there's there's a lot of primordial gods um in like the actual like world you know like if you look like through through histories of various cultures like chaos is one of the original primordial gods so it is there is a big part of that in early chaos magic books about kind of looking at chaos as this like this very ancient force that should be kind of respected and i think that that is of that is a big part of why the chaos magicians started using uh, the the star. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of crossover between like sci-fi writers like Robert Anton Wilson um, and Michael Moorcock, who then Robert Anton Wilson was very influential in the chaos magic movement. So you you can see how this gets carried over from like anarchist sci-fi to chaos magic, and then because it's in chaos magic, it gets way more visibility. So then it starts then you start seeing it inside more more like underground anarchist scenes, um, and then. So around around this time, Dugan was starting his political career, and he was he was he was dabbling in a lot of various like occult circles himself. Right now, he's he's more of like a traditionalist, uh, like a more like a Christian traditionalist. That is kind of his primarily his, that is his, like his that is his primary kind of occult um, interest. As long as it could be called a cult. Yeah, it's 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 not it's not worth getting too much into the weeds on on Dugan at this point. I think people, but I, I think it's it's, it's worth yeah. mentioning. Like like he like he because he obviously did rip the he did take inspiration from the Chaos Star to make his own version of it. Yeah, he's um, certainly a because guy he who was had in those same circles, occultic leanings and and an, a degree of knowledge. I think again, like with a lot of things, a lot of things about Dugan are overstated, including his like closeness to Putin because he's yeah. this really easy. In part because he's like so prolific and and there's a lot available on him in English, it's really easy to kind of tie everything happening in in Russia to Dugan to, to him. Um, yeah. yeah, and I think that's kind of a, a degree of what's happening here. There's a website I've forgotten the name of, but I think it had like a bunch of like online reproduction of Dugan's various writings from the '90s, all sorts of weird shit about occultism, and yeah, and yet I do think that there's a very obvious gulf between the Dugan of that weird eccentric like esoteric Nazi sort of phase of like his relative youth 
versus today where he frames his entire rationale for multiplurality as a kind of Christian, a Christian crusade against a hegemony that he legitimately believes to be a satanic empire. He has basically said that, and it's not the only thing he considers satanic. Like, it, I, I, we, we should point out that, like, one of the one of the main forces that were uh, that were going like against Pussy Riot were Eurasianists at that at that time, and he called them like devils and witches, and taught his followers to show up with pitchforks. People in the West don't really understand them, so you get guys like, well, you get both Alexander Reed Ross describing him as an adherent of chaos magic and some guy from the national review referring to him as the leader of a satanic cult somehow. Yeah. And, and boy, I mean, there's a long history of people liking to flat, liking to flatten um, fascist movements with an occultic tradition to just Satanism. We're not going to talk about that at length, but it, <laughs> whenever, whenever you hear people talking about a problem and like they reduce it to it's Satanists, you should be a little on edge because usually they're wrong or at least incomplete. Um, and they just have, have kind of over anyway, we, we don't need to get terribly into that. The only, only reason I wanted to bring that up is cause like, this is around the same time that people that are fascists were trying to enter in a lot of different political like yes. subcultures, whether it be like the punk scene and industrial music, um, including like the the occult it's scene. What fascists like, it's just, do because that that is like their primary means, right? Like they they try to like they are an aesthetic driven movement. They try to co opt any aesthetic and use it for their own gains and to to kind of overlook the anarchist origins of this thing just because fascists tried to co-opt it at some point, I think is very silly. Well, because then, like, what? Are you going to throw away all punk music? Like, come on. Or, or, even, like, or even, like, crosses. Like, a yeah. lot of fascists still use variations of Christian crosses that still have essentially political Christian meanings. That I'd probably still assume that the majority of religious fascists do lean on some kind of Christianity. And to the extent that there's neo-pagans involved, there's sort of yeah. a minority. There's a couple of things that this is like. One of them would be kind of in the United States fascist co-option of, of the, the flag of the United States, which we can talk a lot about, like the fact that the United States is an imperialist power um, and the genocides done on under that flag without, it, while still acknowledging that, Attempts by fascist movements to co-opt it as a purely fascist symbol are problematic in part because that symbol, the United States flag, has a lot of power to a lot of people. And so if you if the fascists kind of co-opt it totally, um, that's a harmful thing. That's a thing that can like allow them to get their brain worms into more people, which doesn't like, mean like you should take and wave the U.S. flag. But it does mean that like. It, it, it's just a matter of don't you don't have to let them take the ground, you know. Um, and I, I think on a kind of a different angle, one of the things I think about a lot is uh, the first time I went to India, seeing especially in a lar large parts of India, you'll see swastikas hanging over the doors of many many houses all over the place. You'll see them hanging from cars. You'll see, they're they're constant things, and it's only unsettling if you have allowed yourself to forget that the swastika is a symbol that the Nazis stole from another culture, co-opted and invested with a new meaning. Um, you should see Japan. Yeah, you should, yeah, and and why should 
people in uh, uh, other parts of the world who have been using it for a totally different purpose for thousands of years, why should they be like, well, I guess we don't get this now. <laughs> also, like, or like it. also, it's like in India has had to deal with their own fascists yeah. as well. Yes. Like, well, yes. Like- <laughs> and, and, and there's, I mean, again, we're, we're, we're delving into a lot of very deep topics because there's a lot to be said about how the fact that the Nazis took the swastika led to degrees of sympathy within areas of Indian culture that allowed some fascist ideology to creep in. And like, that's also tied to the fact that both the Nazis and a lot of Indian nationalists were fighting against the British empire. It's all very complicated, right? So we don't need to. There are guys, guys like V D Savarkar did, who were founders of the Hindutva Mm -hmm. movement. Yeah. Did openly praise Hitler. And oh, yeah, yeah. It's kind of easy for some people to think of it as entirely motivated by religion, but his whole concept of nationhood is entirely racial. He outright yeah. says himself that it has nothing to do with religion. So, yeah, and it's 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 one of those things. If you actually want to understand things and engage with them in a useful area, you have to understand that history and grapple with it without like looking at a 2,500 year old Hindu temple and going, well, I guess they were Nazis. <laughs> Hash, hash, yeah. Hashtag problematic. Yeah. Uh, like, no, the, the last thing I actually want to talk about is how, how, how the kind of debate around symbols and use of symbols has just kind of morphed into just fast jacketing anarchists in general mm-hmm. and worrying about like, oh, the fascists are secretly infiltrating the anarchists and they're going to turn anarchists into fascists, which is pretty silly because, I mean, if you're going to if you're going to turn anyone into fascists, I think anarchists are one of the hardest people to do to do that too this is this is, there's a lot of other people it's way easier to convince to become fascists than although when are, anarchists go fascist they tend is, to go fascist pretty hard <laughs> well yeah, yeah but it, it, the, the, the type of like fear-mongering mm-hmm. around it is still it's really frustrating because like i'm looking at yes. all these I'm, I'm, I'm looking at all these tankies like fast jacketing anarchists for using us for using a symbol created by anarchists which has been used by anarchists for decades right um but then you also have like tanky superstar Caleb Malpin regularly hanging out uh. with like, like like Malpin regularly hangs out with Dugan. Um, and then you have someone who's like another like pretty like popular like like tanky influencer uh, like uh, Ben Norton who openly uses du- Dugan's multipolar theory, right? And so if if and if if you're looking for the most visible example of fascist and nationalist rhetoric trying to enter into leftism, you should look at like the growing like patriotic communists, you know, people. Oh, like, f- People like I Peter believe Coffin. it's referred to as like patriotic socialists, but yeah, yeah. But yeah, the idea is basically the same. But yeah, it's like people like Peter Coffin and this like growing like patriot communist socialist kind of live streamer grift, um, which is like because like the easiest entry on the left for fascism is in forms of nationalist authoritarian communism, right? It's like you know that 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 is, that is how you get like national socialism, right? It's uh, so, like they just had this like super cringy uh, Nosbill convention just a few weeks ago with, uh, with some of the best moments on Twitter <laughs> up until Will Smith slapped that guy. Yeah, but like you know, you have you have like Coffin and Malpin hanging out, and like Malpin regularly hang, regularly hangs out with Dugan. Like, so, like if you're gonna if you if you want to be watching out for like a fascist creep, maybe you should direct it towards the people just like doing it out in the open and not fast jacketing like queer anarchists who have been doing the thing that they've been doing for like decades. 
I guess one of the last things I will mention is uh, the the hilarious incidents with the Sith Empire thing of people just fully of like yes. fully getting consumed by their own brainworms and trying to insist that a Star Wars symbol uh, is secretly a fascist chaos star, um, and then doing the same thing to the Warhammer symbol. Um, it is yeah. Which, it is I, I, in in I mean it, it's funny because like in. Star Wars, it is a fascist symbol, right? That is, that's not a yeah. fascist symbol in the real world, but it is within the world of, of Star Wars. That but is absolutely a fascist but symbol. But it's also, it's also not a chaos star. It's not a chaos star. Uh, and in Warhammer, it is a chaos star, but it's not a fascist symbol. It's actually an anti-fascist symbol within the world you of could, Warhammer. You can basically argue that, yeah. Yeah. Because it is, it is just frustrating looking at all these people being like trying to play, trying to play the Where's Waldo game just to all like dunk on anarchists. And mm -hmm. it's, it just kind of shows a fundamental misunderstanding of the history of anarchist culture um, and the history of like anti-fascist anarchists. You know, most of the anti-fascists that I know use the chaos star because it's a because it's a red symbol it looks mm -hmm. rad it mm -hmm. looks cool um and yeah trying to like in insisting that we must cede this ground and let fascists use anything that they think is aesthetically cool i think is uh is a first of all like a losing battle to actually just like to just to just to to to, to start that now i think is uh yeah. would have some pretty bad implications for fascism and its use of aesthetics you don't have to give them things just because they want to take those things it makes sense that you would see like tankies do it because then if you're a tanky, you could basically get into a position where you can basically discard all sorts of symbolisms and just replace everything with like old like Soviet symbology or something. Which is which is obviously not tied to any atrocities that have happened. <laughs> no. Right. Uh, oh, 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 incidentally, don't ever tell them about Georgia. Yeah, don't don't tell them about Georgia, Kazakhstan, Ukraine. Ukraine. <laughs> that giant lake that was like the largest lake in Europe that they turned into a pile of poison. You know, don't mention a few things. And Tr Trotsky would be proud considering he wanted to turn mountains into like city structure. I mean that that actually is one of the things I think Trotsky was on the right ball about more Minas oh Tiriths, more God. Minas Tiriths. Let's Tirith oh, up it. some mountains. <laughs> so, any 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 final thoughts on our lovely circular uh, chaos star, chaos star? I'm thinking uh, I'm thinking of a, a quote from like uh, what was his name? Uh, Pablo Freire. I hope I've gotten that name right. Yeah, a, a quote I've seen going around that I think it was around something to the effect of. When the point of education isn't liberation, the goal is to become the oppressor. Um, you could sort of usually that quote is like relevant to like the material processes of like being inculcated into a capitalist system. So, so, so you can kind of make the most sense of it as basically like you are educated to become a boss instead of wanting to abolish all bosses. But on a, but on a, but on a micro level, you can sort of apply it. To the, to the ways in which people, even in like radical spaces, sort of so sort of become like self-styled cops, as it were. That I think is a phenomenon that a lot of the anarcho-nihilist tendency sort of responds to. Anyway, this is coming from a perspective that is sort of flirtatious towards anarcho-nihilism, but not necessarily. But it's like you could a lot of the interactions with like with like certain people demonstrate that. 
there are some instances of it where I think I can't quite tell if it's Poe or not. Um, somebody, I saw somebody posted like a photo of themselves with like a, like a jacket and they had like the upside down cross and the inverted pentagram on board and somebody, someone, somebody with like basically no followers who somehow blew somehow blew up when they posted that photo next to like a Nazi uniform to try and compare the, the inverted cross to a swastika or, or no, not if not a swastika, then like maybe some other part of the jacket and the, the pentagram to like the armband or something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I to think this day, I'm still not sure if that was entirely serious. That's See, that's that, that's the thing is like we have to be careful. Like I I don't like anarchist infighting. It's rarely useful. Um, and we have to be make make sure to be watchful for like how much of it is just people trolling or people trying to prompt infighting just for the sake of infighting right so if if like i tried for a long time to not engage in this debate because i don't like talking about this like i i I don't like infighting with anarchists i I don't like i don't like having these types of debates so hopefully the next time this debate starts we don't need to because we can just we can just point to how this last one went and say no look we clearly demonstrated that this is a this has a long history of use by anarchists and it was invented by anarchists and not start not start not uh, and not start the debate again because we we don't we we don't need to do it and there's no telling if people are doing it sincerely or people doing it ironically or people just doing it just to get you know people upset um and i mean like if you want to look at anarchists and look at okay i where where is right wing people where is fascists trying to kind of blend in with anarchists like look at like boogs right look at ncaps right these people who try to claim to be anarchists are very bad at actually blending in because they can't help themselves when they start talking about like the validity of anarcho-capitalism or the validity of like small nation states like it's it is it is it is hard it's hard to actually infiltrate anarchists this is the thing that the fbi has said multiple multiple times it's hard to actually do so whenever fascists try to blend in whether they're boogaloo boys they can't help but use their old like boogaloo symbols they can't help but just like like give hints it is it it, it is astonishing how how bad they are at this thing so they're also bad at like the protection that they claim to offer like there was a there was an article yeah. from like last year going over Oh, going over. Well, part of it mentioned that they were basically at this like purported protest that they were supposed to offer protection from, and most and most of what they did was get drunk and like piss on the sidewalks. The, uh, yeah. the Boogaloo Boys I've seen at actual protests who are like with like with like cops attacking protesters. The Boogaloo Boys are the first ones to run because they're cowards. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Uh, All right. Well. I guess. Uh, where can where can people uh, yeah. Black Ram, Where can people find you online? And where can people uh, read your uh, read your article, uh, "Chaos Nihilism and the Way of No Surrender"? WordPress, basically. Um, I could I call the site a left heretical domain, but the, the but the link goes like my thoughts born from fire dot wordpress dot com. I actually try I, I actually tried changing the URL once I changed it to a left heretical domain. I think in two thousand thirteen fourteen, but I figured that doing so would fuck up all of the stats and whatever so i just didn't bother well thank thank you so much for kind of writing the, what i would say probably the most definitive stance on this debate at the moment which we can always point point back to whenever this uh, inevitably m- comes up again in like a year or two cuz it's going to come I've, up I've, again i've, anyway. I've seen it i've seen it come up like every every few years you see it so thank you thank you for that and thank you for coming on um 
yeah. If you want to follow follow us, you can do it at the thing. You know the thing. You know Twitter the thing. Twitter and Instagram at Happen Here Pod and Cool Zone Media. You can look at my unhinged chaos tweets at Hungry Bowtie. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Uh, 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 nothing is true and everything's permitted. Mm-hmm. Also, at Ascotinus is where I go to like sort of ramble about politics and occasionally the occult and other things. We do, we do, we do love a good, we do love a good ramble. All right, that 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 does it for us today. Uh, fuck fascists, Nazi punks, fuck off, etc., etc., etc. Bean Dad, The Dress, Thirty to Fifty Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Imagine you ask two people the same exact set of seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver. And this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including actress and star of the mega hit sitcom Friends, Courtney Cox. You can't go around it, so you just go through it. This is a roadblock. It's going to catch you down the road. Go through it. Deal with it. Comedian, writer, and star of the series Catastrophe, Rob Delaney. I shouldn't feel guilty about my son's death. He died of a brain tumor. It's part of what happens when your kid dies. Intellectually, you'll understand that it's not your fault, but you'll still feel guilty. Alt-rock icon, Liz Fair. That personal disaster wrote Guyville. So everything comes out of a dead end. And many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. Mother's Day is right around the corner, and in true She Pivots fashion, we're highlighting moms who've dedicated their lives and their pivots to supporting mothers. The iconic Christy Turlington will join us to talk about launching Every Mother Counts after pivoting from her 90s supermodel days. And later, the co-CEOs of Baby to Baby will share how they're addressing the needs for millions of babies and moms. So tune in and subscribe to She Pivots. New episodes out every Wednesday. 
Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to It Could Happen Here, the only podcast where the host asks all listeners and guests to provide their social security number and bank account number, <coughs> routing number, all that good stuff. Um, this is a podcast about how things aren't always great uh, and maybe are kind of falling apart a little bit. And and it has also not been, for the most part, a podcast about the expanded war in Ukraine um, for a variety of reasons. Uh, we have done some coverage of that, uh, but we focused specifically on stories of individual people. And, and that's generally where I feel like our strength is as a program. But people have been repeatedly requesting we do a little bit of a bigger picture look at what's gone on in that conflict. And so I have brought Aram Shambanian into the studio. Aram, how are you doing, buddy? Oh, not too bad, man. How are you doing today? Fine and dandy like sour candy. Now, w w would you describe kind of your your uh, who you are and what you do and why uh, why you're you're someone people should listen to when we're talking about a conflict uh, like this? Because you are one of the people who, when everyone was like, "There's no way Russia will invade," was was saying, "Well, <laughs> it might happen." Yeah, I mean. Um... Well, I think one of the things that, that sets me aside from a lot of other analysts out there is that I never thought I would become an analyst and I never thought that I would do this. Um, I, it wasn't set in stone for me from the beginning. I thought I was going to be like a high school history teacher. And so I've always studied the world uh, in terms of reading books on different conflicts around the world. And, and I've tried to keep appraised on where these books have led to, right? So if I read a book about the second Congo war, it makes sense to then follow current events that are related to what happened after the second Congo war. Yeah. As a result, I followed things going on in Ukraine starting in 2014 with Yaromaidan um, and elsewhere in the world. But, but Ukraine has been one that I focused on pretty heavily because um, there's been a lot of information about Ukraine ever since 2014, because of how late the war happened in terms of human history and in, in terms of recent conflicts, 2014 isn't that long ago. Um, and so uh, I started following it back then. And I think that if you combine modern open source tools, modern technology, some of the stuff that organizations like Bellingcat can do with traditional research and, and, and knowledge, some of the stuff that I've done in school, you have a really powerful tool to combat disinformation. Um, and I think that's one of the best tools we have to combat disinformation is wedding OSINT with traditional research. Um, but yeah. And yeah, when it comes to open source intelligence, um, the Ukrainian war is actually kind of one of the it's not the conflict where that really started to become a thing that would probably be the Libyan civil war when when that um, began to be something people were talking about in a, a big way. But the Ukrainian the invasion of Ukraine by Russia in particular in, in 2014 um, is really where open source intelligence kind of came into its own in a really widely known way. That's when Bellingcat's reporting on um, the downing of MH117 like went out. And that was kind of like the first first really huge international story involving like open source intelligence cr cracking a case. Um, and now since the expanded invasion of Russia back in February, we've kind of entered... And again, this isn't really where this period started, but this has been kind of 
we've seen an explosion of what I think would be fair to call open source intelligence disinformation. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, you want to talk a little bit about kind of some of the stuff that you've seen? Because there's there's a number of accounts claiming to be doing OSINT on the Ukrainian war. Um, and boy, howdy, they, they are not all giving out good information. And it, it can be difficult for people to tell what they should trust, because if you're if you're kind of just scanning over it, bad OSINT or even outright fake OSINT can look very similar to good OSINT. Right. And, and so I, I would put a lot of the OSINT community into four rough categories. Uh, there's uh, OSINT analysts, and those are pretty rare. Those are the kind of people who combine what they're seeing in real time on social media with a background of knowledge in the area. So like a Ukraine regional expert combining that with what they're seeing happen in Ukraine, that's an OSINT analyst. There are some Twitter accounts that are more OSINT aggregators. They don't really have much analysis that they put into what they're, what they're producing, but they spit out a lot of information in real time. And so if you follow the right ones that use the right sources, you can get some pretty decent information from them. Then there's more of the misinformation aggregators, which are accounts that just kind of spread whatever they see without regards to whether it's true or not. Um, they'll sensationalize stories. You know, if there's the uh, a rare command and control plane takes off somewhere in America that's known as the doomsday plane during the Cold War, they'll tweet out, the doomsday plane is in the air. Does it mean yeah. clear war? Right. And they're not doing it to be hurtful. They're doing it for likes. And then yeah. there's disinformation aggregators who are deliberately out there trying to sow discord and sow problems. And those are four categories that I've seen all of them develop in their own ways in the yeah. last 10 years. Um, I think the best, best example of that final category, there's a, an account on Twitter called SMM Syria. And if you look at the account, it looks almost identical to the OSCE's special monitoring mission to Ukraine. Mm -hmm. it, takes the same kind of graphics and it has the same kind of terminology, but it's an Assadist disinformation outlet. And so, but they've woven their way into, if you just took a casual glance at the war in Syria, you might believe that it's a valid source. And that's the kind of more malicious disinformation that I'm talking about, where like they know what they're doing and they're trying to confuse people. And it's, there's, you know, I think one of the best examples of, something that really struck me recently as problematic in in the war in Ukraine is you've got a video going around um of that purports to show Ukrainian soldiers shooting captured Russian soldiers um which is a war crime and uh I think credible people within the OSINT community have said this is something that desperately needs to be investigated more seriously this this like is very has a very good chance of being legitimate and people should be looking into this. Whereas you've also seen folks who kind of reflexively jumped to uh, defend Ukraine against these allegations, putting out what I think is fairly shoddy OSINT claiming to show like issues with the video and stuff. And it's like people circling blurry sections of the video and saying like, this is, you know, looks like it could be edited or this doesn't look credible. And it is the kind of thing I think one reason people get tripped up by that is prior to the invasion of Ukraine, there were some Russian false flag events that involved like cadavers, bodies that had been autopsied and stuff, which was broken down by people like Elliot Higgins at Bellingcat. Um, and one of the things that, again, if you're just kind of looking at the surface level, you could see like, oh, well, that those were videos that were faked. And so these like the OSINT around this people like pointing out different sections of the video looks the same. Some of the differences are, for example, 
um, when they were analyzing the bodies in those those false flag footage, they brought in actual, you know, corpse cutter uppers, like morticians, uh, or morticians. Something. Yes, to to analyze like the cuts in the in the skulls and whatnot, as opposed to again just kind of a guy circling aspects of a video and being like, this doesn't seem right, and it's like. Um, but you can, I can see why people get tripped up by it, and it it is important not to get tripped up by that kind of stuff because um, war crimes are bad. I, I think is a general attitude that we we both share, um, and and should be investigated regardless of like whether or not they're being done by the side who's also towing Russian tanks away with tractors that you're you're on the side of, right? Like right, and and I think that that's that's exactly an important distinction to make because like. There are certain claims that have come out from the Ukrainian side, certain statements that have come out that as an OSINT analyst, I could probably look into more and maybe poke holes in stuff like the yeah. number of kills that the ghost of Kiev right. has claimed, right? <laughs> yeah. Okay, I, maybe it's not 30 kills or whatever it is that people are saying. Yeah, maybe he's not real. <laughs> maybe he's not even real, but yeah. that's not harmful. As right. much as did these guys shoot people in the legs, right? Right. And so one of those bears examination just because of the yeah. nature of the claim. The other one, maybe we can examine it after the war when it's not as yeah. a It doesn't really matter if there is an, an, a Ukrainian ace fighter pilot who's dropped a bunch of a crazy number, like obviously in a military sense if Russian tra- jets are being downed, that does matter. But like from the perspective of of people just kind of observing this war uh, as as news consumers, it doesn't really matter. Whereas whether or not a country gets away with a war crime absolutely matters. And people are treating it with the same reflexive hand wave as they do when they accept these, the ghost of Kiev yes. myths, right? They're saying like, well, no, but I want the Ukrainian side to win this war. So we can't even look into any claims of war crimes. And that's just not how it's supposed to be. Like, no, you condemn the crimes up front and you investigate and you try to move forward. And that's how we prove that we're better than the opposing side. Like that's, that's been the rule in this war. And it's been mm-hmm. the rule in wars past, you know, you, you prove that you're better than your opponents by being more decent. Yeah, and it's it's. I have seen some really unsettling logic from some people along the lines of like, well, these were artillerymen who have been you know shelling civilian areas, so why shouldn't they be be shot in the leg? And the answer is because like that's number one. It is a war crime to shoot captured prisoners. Like that that is a thing that we as a as a species have attempted to make illegal. Um, and prob- and ought to be. It is a thing that like should not be done. And there's actually a wide variety of like tactical reasons why it's bad for Ukraine if Russian soldiers believe they will be shot after being captured. It makes, for among other things, it makes soldiers less likely to turn themselves in. Um, one of the wiser decisions that the Ukrainian government has made in this war has been really deliberately pushing. Um, the idea that like, hey, Russians, if you surrender, we'll pay you. You can get Ukrainian citizenship, like bring in your tanks, you know, land your planes or whatever. Like we'll, you know, we'll make it worth your while, um, which is a lot, uh, uh, which is a, a potentially a force multiplier, right? Um, if Russian soldiers think when I get captured, they will shoot me, then they will fight to the death and Ukraine will lose more people in that fight as opposed to if Russian soldiers think, well, shit, I could actually have a pretty decent life if I just turn myself into these guys and refuse to fight. That means less people you have to fight. Um, so it, it it does it does really matter whether or not this is happening. Um, and it's also just like on a moral level, you you shouldn't accept it. And I, I see some really I think one of the things that I find so unsettling about that logic, like these are uh, these are, you know, artillerymen who have been targeting civilian areas. Why shouldn't they be shot? 
um, it's not that much of a leap to like some of the shit we saw people saying in Vietnam. You know, these villages are harboring insurgents. Why shouldn't we treat them like the enemy? You know, like the, all of this logic leads to people getting murdered who don't deserve to get murdered. And that is bad. <laughs> Right. There's the snowball effect, the slippery slope effect with the moral side of it. And then, like you're saying, the tactical side of it. I mean, if you look at part of the reason members of ISIS fought so hard in places like Mosul. Oh, God. Yeah. Was because once you're in that organization, Mm -hmm. your options are a bullet or like a desert cell. If you're lucky, they're not going to treat you well and reintegrate you into society. Come on. Like, Mm -hmm. no, that's not how it works. So you fight like hell, you know, and that's. That's a very basic rule that's pretty easy to understand, I would think. Um, yeah. So that's why this needs to be looked into. And if it's proven false, if it's proven to not be a correct, uh, true video, then yeah. that just strengthens the Ukrainian side. But if it is proven to be true, it's something that needs to be investigated. It can't be overlooked. It can't be swept under the, under the rug. Just because we, we want one side of this war to come out on top doesn't mean that we have to ignore potential yeah. crimes they're committing. Like one, a, a good rule of thumb to approach a war from when you're trying to analyze it is that there there has never been a side in a war who have not committed war crimes um so that should always be on your mind when you're trying to evaluate the reality of a war crime it doesn't mean every claim of a war crime is true that would be a very silly way to translate that but it does mean that when there is a claim that the side you support has been responsible for a war crime your default should be this is not impossible and I should I should proceed from the area that this could have happened and and it should be analyzed without reflexively dismissing it. And also without saying that like war crimes committed by a group of soldiers in a single part of a theater necessarily mean that the the war itself is being prosecuted in a criminal level by that government. Um, no, because, for example, well, I mean, <laughs> I, I was about to say U.S. soldiers committed war crimes in World War Two, but actually the prosecution of that war was criminal in a lot of fundamental ways. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe we'll um, let that one go for a minute. But, but uh, it does, that doesn't mean that like your granddad committed war crimes because right. other U.S. soldiers who were in the field executed, captured German POWs, you know? Um, right. Yeah. Which I think is something people have an easier time understanding when it's not a war they feel the need to have a series of 280 character or less takes on in Twitter. Um, yeah. It's, it, that's the weirdest thing about, about the social media age and, and kind of OSINT in general, is that while it does make it very accessible and easy for anybody to get involved in investigating these uh, crimes and these events, it also means that everybody thinks they have an opinion that matters on it. And, uh, and, and in that sense, they, they muddy the waters. They, they, a lot of people can, can imitate the OSINT look pretty well. They can circle things in pictures that look similar, or as we saw in Syria a lot, they'd take two pictures of, of two totally different dudes and say, these are the same guy. They're both members of al-Nusra or something like that. And it, they would compare the eyes and compare the chins and stuff. And it yeah. looked kind of like a Bellingcat image, but it wasn't, right? Yeah. It is. So the, that's the danger here is that like everybody can, can, can help, but everybody can hurt now too. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's one of those things every every aspect of this cuts both ways because like a thing people started saying rightfully so after the invasion or the expanded invasion i should say uh, of ukraine by russia is like well now all of these people who were experts in whatever the last big story was are going to become experts on the ukrainian conflict right which is absolutely a thing that happened you get all of these people who i think are pretty bad journalists and reporters who suddenly like rush to to have their commentary on this thing that they have ignored for the last eight years um 
But at the same time, it's to talk about Bellingcat, the founder of Bellingcat, my old boss, Elliot Higgins, was like literally an unemployed dude sitting on his couch when he started analyzing war footage um, and is now one of the most respected conflict analysts in the world. Um, and that is a thing the Internet has made possible. Um, I, I think a great example would be the Caliber Obscura uh, Twitter, which is just like a dude in the UK who has an almost impossible ability to recognize firearms and pieces of firearms. And so just analyzes people send him footage from all over the planet. And he'll say like, these are these guns and this is where they came from. And this is, uh, this one is like, looks like this kind of gun, but it's actually, um, a, 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 a fake one that's being made locally in this country. And it's supposed to look like this. And you can tell because like, um, that's not a person who caliber did not like go to some sort of fancy gun school. They just are, uh, uh, I mean, it's definitely not right to call them an amateur because, quite frankly, I don't know any people who are working at institutes and better at the thing that Caliber does than Caliber is, right? Um, but they did just start as a person on Twitter, you know? Well, um, and that's the thing about this This is that you get people who were not kind of born with the idea that they were going to become analysts in this, in this field. And so you have people like both of the, both of the people you mentioned – whom I, I know personally, I don't know Elliot personally, but I remember him from our days, mm. our shared days on a comedy website together. <laughs> yes, the website that shall remain nameless. That shall remain <laughs> nameless, right. Um, and, then, and then, you know, uh, Caliber and I have, have talked on Twitter a bunch and, you know, we're friends there. And it's just interesting to see that, like, both of them are very real people mm -hmm. behind, like, their professional personality and their, their expertise. They're also down to earth, real people, mm -hmm. which is rare in this field because a lot of people are kind of elitist um, and 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 yeah. uh, gatekeeper y. And neither of them are about that. They're both all about like getting as many people doing this as possible because more eyes are better. Like, yeah, I, I, Elliot is is. Uh, I mean, the whole reason my career with Bellingcat existed is because like I emailed him out of the blue one day and said, "Hey, I've been noticing this weird thing in videos of fascists." talking to cops can i write a thing for you and he was just like okay and and that was i mean like that was how that started um and he's i've met him since a couple of times and yeah is a very i think is very informed it, because of the fact that he did not come from sort of this big institutional background um has a, has a humility with which he approaches his investigations that uh i think is one of the thing you you should look for in trying to decide whether or not o o open source intelligence that you're seeing on Twitter, whatever, is credible. Is how 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 conclusive are they stating their claims are? How many times do they offer only a single possibility for what something is like? Um, you know, there's a number of things you can do. I think at this point we should probably move to a separate area of discussion, which is how's the how's this war going? Who's, who, who's, who's winning? <laughs> um, well, so I, I made a statement on uh, my Facebook page, my personal Facebook page mm -hmm. about three weeks ago, and I still feel confident in that statement. And that is that, uh, well, Ukraine has yet to win this war. Russia's already lost. They've already yeah. lost their objectives. They've already lost what they what their goals were and at this point it's a face-saving venture but, on the russian part but aram um russia carried out a cunning feint action to distract while they while they took the east by burning a fifth of their general staff and all of their armored vehicles it was a cunning feint <laughs> I, yeah i saw someone on twitter posit that it was actually uh, uh a move to mm. use up all of ukraine's ammunition Cut brilliant 
very, very Zap Brannigan logic on behalf of Vladimir Putin. (laughs) Uh, Ukrainians have a preset kill limit. And once they hit 10 generals, the the army will shut down. (laughs) Right, exactly. Uh, Mm -hmm. But no, the war is not going well for Russia. Um, And that's not to say that it's going great for Ukraine either. But Ukraine needs to do less well to succeed here. Yes. Than Russia does. It's... uh, I mean, because one of the things that is a black box, right, I I do think because there was a lot of discussion earlier in the war, particularly like how credible are these numbers that the Ukrainian government is putting out for for dead and for destroyed vehicles. And I think the OSINT out there, like the verified vehicle casualties and stuff that we can verify means that, like, obviously, the Ukrainian government is padding their numbers, but not by as much as a lot of people might have. Like, it's not wildly off. No, um, when I saw their first casualty count, I think first casualty count, I think it was like twenty five hundred dead. Yeah. And I was like, okay, guys, come on. It was on. like day two or three. It was like right? day two or three, right? <laughs> yeah. And then like all of the Western intelligence. Yeah, I was like, actually, yeah. They're like, yeah, it's probably about two thousand. Yeah. Like, oh my god! Like, wow. I mean, yeah, uh, I, that perspective for some people who may not that number may not jump out to them. Mm-hmm. We lost, you know, just shy of three thousand soldiers killed during the Iraq War. So yeah. 2000 in a couple days is an extraordinary number of losses. Yeah. And of course, the black box here, we don't have nearly as good an information on is what kind of casualties has the Ukrainian military suffered and what kind of civilian casualties have been suffered. And um, obviously, civilian casualties nearly always take much longer to get um, to the extent that it's ever. I think we have a better chance of getting objective civilian casualties for this, because unlike a lot of other conflicts, these civilians being killed are civilians under the aegis of a government that is a functional state as opposed to Syria, for example, where the there's basically the only people with an interest in accurately reporting the death count are a number of different non-governmental organizations um, because the the people being are being killed by one government or the other, right? Including like this is this was the same thing like in Iraq, the civilians who died in Mosul were technically under the Iraqi government's, you know, whatever protection seems like the wrong word to say but i can tell you from my experience there there was no we still do not have anything that approaches a credible civilian death count for for that conflict um and probably never will right and and on that note on the civilian casualties note um we were talking earlier about what um how you can identify a credible osin account versus uh one that you probably shouldn't give too mm-hmm. much credence to and one of the best ways to do that honestly is is a uh, look at their their morals, I guess. Yeah. If they're ever posting and celebrating the death of civilians anywhere, you should probably disregard them. Like, yeah, you'll never see Elliot Higgins being like, yeah, suck it. People of Belograd. Like yeah. you got hit with a missile. Like it's not, it's, you know, it's not going to happen. Yeah. It's not, it's the same thing as like, I, I get why people celebrate, uh, you know, battlefield victories. Obviously I don't think, especially if you're literally a Ukrainian living you know, in the area affected. I don't think there's anything morally wrong with celebrating opposing soldiers being defeated. But I, I am, I continue to be deeply unsettled by footage celebrating things like the destruction of armored personnel carriers full of 19 year old kids. Um, even though a, a non insignificant number of those 19 year old kids are, um, accessories to war crimes, right? Like it doesn't mean like I'm broadly okay with it. I do, I do feel a lot better about celebrating losses of special forces units like the VDV um, that have been heavily involved in war crimes around the world like that. I have less kind of an issue with, but 
Um, no, and, and I felt yeah. that personally, you know, I'm Armenian and during the Karabakh war in 2020, it was just day, every day I would mm-hmm. wake up to dozens of videos oh, of Armenian conscripts and soldiers being blown up and hunted from the air mm-hmm. and people on Twitter cheering for it because they were for one reason or another on the Azeri side. And like, I get it, you know, like you were saying, you want to cheer your battlefield victories. And, and I understand that from people who live on the battlefield and live near the battlefield, I get it. It's happening to you. Sure. But to people thousands of miles away cheerleading on the internet, what the hell is wrong with you? Yeah, maybe don't like, do that. <laughs> maybe don't do that. Like, you, what the hell? Like, you know those are real people in that video that never did anything to you. And this is not like a sporting event where, like, they go home at the end of the day and they've just lost. Like, they're but dead. Even when they do, like, I've spent a huge amount of my career talking directly face-to-face with victims of ISIS, right? I have been to like eight or nine refugee camps in two countries uh, at this point, specifically for that war, in addition to days spent on the refugee trail in between Hungary and Serbia, talking to to Syrians and talking to um, um, other people who had like fled the region. Uh, but at the same time, I, I can't help but, like, like I, I've literally been under fire by ISIS and then had those ISIS guys gotten killed. And I've, I have celebrated and cheered when that's happened. Um, and I'll never forget, we were embedded with this mortar team and we were under fire from this sniper. And the mortar team, I, I forget, you can in the article I wrote on it, I list the exact number of rounds fired, but it was like nine or 10, something like that, where they're gradually walking in mortars until they, they get this guy. Um, and obviously we like cheered when they fucking killed this dude because he was shooting at us. And I remember like kind of on our way out away from the front, my fixer, Sangar, was like, how many rounds did they drop before they got him? And I was like, I don't know, I think it was like nine or 10. I've got the footage somewhere. And he was like, I wonder what else they hit. And, and Sangar is a, 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 like was born and raised in Mosul. Um, and it was one of those things we spent the very next day, we were like talking to people fleeing their homes and stuff. And not only did we like see some of those people who lost family members to misses, um, both by Iraqi forces and by coalition aircraft and stuff, but like we came upon this dead ISIS fighter in a fighting position where you could see he had been in there with his wife for days and he had been wounded two or three days before he got killed. And you could see the evidence of the first aid she had done on him. And it was one of those things. I guess I could try to make the case that like, well, maybe she was a captive and didn't want to do it. But quite frankly, everything I saw in there makes me believe like she cared deeply for him and stayed with him until the bitter end, trying to keep him alive and fighting. Um, and that doesn't mean he's not like a monster and it doesn't mean he shouldn't have been killed because he's a fucking Dashi who was in the middle of doing in, enabling a series of terrible things. But he's also like you can't you can't ignore the humanity of of somebody when you have seen that element of what what happens in the conflict. And that has stayed with me quite a bit ever since. Yeah. And, and it's it's one of those things, you know, you, you got to you got to remember that the majority of, of young men of fighting age around the world who join a military or an armed organization or an insurgent group, whatever it may be, they do so typically because it's whomever is in charge of the area they're growing up in. Yeah. Right. You don't join the Russian army because you weighed all the options and the Brazilian army offers some good aid, pa- you know, some good healthcare packages. And I looked at the Italian army, but really I want to go with the Russian. No, you go with wherever you were born. Yeah. Whether and, it, and you know, and I was talking to my roommate about this last night. We were watching this 
footage from the flood of 96 here in Oregon, you know, and it's this National Guard helicopter where they're pushing bales of hay out of the back of the helicopter down to cows stranded out near Tillamook. And so depending on when you join the National Guard, you either fed cows hay from a helicopter or deployed to Iraq. <laughs> yeah. That's the luck of the draw, right? Mm-hmm. Like, that's not fair. No. They don't deserve to die any more than the guys dropping the hay out of the helicopter did, right? But people get, yeah, they get carried away with, like, turning it into a sport almost, and they forget that there's people on the other end, and that, like, while some of them are threats, and they may need to be dealt with, it's like, you know, a bear comes at you in the woods, you shoot it, you don't you don't skin it and make fun of it, like, yeah, you know, I, go kill its kids you know that's not that's not how it works you know so like yeah yeah don't don't be don't be a piece of shit like don't 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 lose your humanity um because i mean one of the things that makes it easy to lose your humanity is that like videos of shit getting blown up looks dope Right. Like it it does. It looks cool to watch things get blown up. That's, in fact, I suspect how a lot of people who become very good OSINT investigators, part of what draws them in is just like I'm sure that was a part of why Caliber started obsessively researching guns is like they're neat. Guns are neat. You know, weapons are interesting. People are inherently interested in in weaponry, um, right. which is <laughs> not a good thing. It's just a thing. You know, it's not a bad thing either. It's just like a thing human beings will always be interested in. Because warfare is as natural to us as eating and fucking. Right. Um, well, you're talking about the mortars, right? Mm-hmm. The mortars walking in. And there's this video on, on YouTube of made by an American Navy attack squadron um, of them dropping bomb after bomb on targets in mm-hmm. Mosul and, and, and uh, Raqqa, places like that. Yeah. And it's set to uh, the devil's going to cut you down. And every time there's a, a beat in the music, mm-hmm. you see a bomb drop. Yeah. And some of these bombs, it's like four bombs dropping at a time, dropping an eight story building. And so I'm sure there was a guy inside there with a oh, weapon, yeah. but like, you want to tell me there wasn't anybody else in that eight story building? And like, okay, yeah, you're celebrating the death of the combatant there, but like also all those other people are being celebrated indirectly. Yeah. And so, yeah. like, you got to remember that, like, these bombs explode and they take out a large area and these fights are happening in cities a lot of the time. Yeah. The weaponry that the United States uses is more precise than something like a barrel bomb, but not by as many orders of magnitude as you would hope. Um, right. And, yeah. and precision doesn't precision matters. Yes, it's not a non-important thing. It's not a non-important <laughs> thing, but ultimately it doesn't matter if your missile went right into that living room full of civilians and blew them all uh, up, or if you leveled the block and maybe, you know, killed them indirectly. Like, you got to know what you're hitting. The target yeah. is what really matters, right? So it doesn't matter if you can hit the target. You got to make sure it's the right target. And that's where we're starting to have issues now is like, we can hit targets really well. We just aren't always sure that it's the right. Yes, as opposed, I mean, and and you are seeing. Uh, so let's let's talk about. We we started this chatting about Ukrainian, a potential Ukrainian war crime. Um, what we have absolute documentation of is a tremendous amount of war crimes on behalf of the Russian uh, invaders, including a thing that they have done repeatedly in Syria, which is the targeting of of hospitals and and medical facilities, um, with with terrible civilian casualties as a as a result. And this is something that the New York Times actually published an incredible article based on a mix of OSINT and like I'm not entirely sure how they got them, but combat flight recorders, like the audio that these these Russian fighter pilots were sending back and forth to command as they attacked hospitals in Syria. Um, so we actually have a tremendous amount of detail about like what it looks like inside the cockpit and in like the control room and whatnot as 
airstrikes are being ordered on medical facilities. I, I really recommend people check that article out. Um, it's it's pretty harrowing shit. But um, yeah, are you are you surprised at all by kind of what you are what you've seen so far in behalf of the Russian forces in Ukraine? No, no, not even not even the slightest. Yeah, because um, I followed the war in Ukraine in Syria rather closely, and uh, I mean there was a point when they had to stop marking the hospitals with hospital markings because the Russians would target yep. them so consistently. The United Nations had to stop giving the Russians the coordinates of the hospitals in in Aleppo because they kept getting targeted. Um, there was an aid convoy that was struck, I believe, by Syrian aircraft, but it was mm-hmm. the targeting was given to them by Russian aircraft. Um, it was just an aid convoy coming into Aleppo, a United Nations aid, aid convoy, and it was bombed and strafed repeatedly for you know several hours. Um, things like that that happened so regularly in Syria to the relative silence of the rest of the world um, that led me to believe that when they go into Ukraine, they're not going to be any gentler. Um, a lot of people suspected early on that like, well, they it's harder to demonize people who look like you. So they're not going to have as much of an easy time demonizing Ukrainians. And I think there has been some degree of difficulty with that, uh, at least in terms of some of the conscripts on the Russian side. But the other thing we're seeing is that like a lot of these, a lot of people seem to genuinely believe the mission of denazifying Ukraine. And so yeah. if that's what you believe you're doing, then the, the bombing doesn't surprise, doesn't become a surprise, right? If you think that you're going into Ukraine to suppress it and occupy it, then bombing city, cities full of Russians, Russians and Russian speakers seems like a bad idea. But if you yeah. believe that they're all Nazis, then it makes sense that you might just blow them up because they're all the enemy. I'm not saying, yeah. I'm not condoning it. I'm saying. No, but I mean, that is literally right. what the U.S. government and the British government did in World right. War II, you know? Right, exactly. Um, there have been claims made that what Russia is doing in places like Mariupol um, amounts to an act of genocide. Um, what is your opinion on that? Genocide is a big word. Uh, it is. It is. There's a ton it's of a letters. It's a big word. It. It's yeah. <laughs> um, but you know, it has a lot of meaning behind it in the sense mm-hmm. that, like, just because somebody is killing large numbers of people and doing so in heinous ways does not make it a genocide. You have to prove yeah. that it was an attempt to destroy culture and destroy heritage and things of that nature. Um, as it stands, I would say that it looks likely that there are signs of potential genocide yeah. in Mariupol. I am not confident enough to come out and say that I th- conclusively think it's happening, but the way that it looks like the, the city is being deliberately targeted to either force the entire population to flee or to radicalize them. Yeah. One way or the other is it goes beyond military uh, it, targeting. Yeah. You know, it, I think the thing that were that I, that is the most like troubling potential sign of, of an intention of genocide is the reports that the Russian government has been evacuating civilians that they have cat in parts of Mariupol. They have captured to places in Russia, right. um, which is this is a misconception. You don't have to just be killing people. As you stated, it's an attempt to destroy a culture, which you can do by killing, but you can also do by things like separating people, moving people like forced migration and whatnot. Like there, there's aspects of that. Again, look at like the genocide of the Native Americans in the United States. It was not all straight up killing. A lot of it was forced migration, um, which is an act of genocide as well. Um, and that's the kind of thing where I'm I'm kind of waiting for more reporting on that uh, to the, the to see hear exactly what's happening and the extent to what's happening. But that really troubles me in terms of potential signs of a genocide. 
Yeah, and when they when they coined the term genocide after World War II, it, it was a uh, it was with reference to the Holocaust, but but what they had in mind was the Armenian genocide. Uh, yeah, it, when it when they when they drafted these yeah. words up, and, and because it was beyond just sheer number of people killed. If we're talking sheer number of people killed, the Nazis also killed six million other people. Yeah, in addition to the six million Jews they killed. <laughs> the yeah. reason we talk about the Jews is one. Six million is a lot of people. And two, it was a deliberate attempt to destroy their entire culture. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And make them have never existed. Yeah. And that's very different and very scary. Dying is also very bad. Yeah. But the idea of dying and then all of the people who were like you just don't exist anymore and all your books yeah. and your literature are gone. Like that's that's monstrous. Yeah. And it, that's why there's a difference between genocide and mass killing. Yeah, and, and it's it's the difference like we talk about U.S. war crimes in World War II, of which there were many, including the firebombing of Dresden, I would argue. But it's not an act of genocide because when they firebombed Dresden, it was certainly um, the killing of civilians without particular regard to d- the direct military efficacy of the action. But it was not an attempt to destroy German culture or obliterate the German people. And you, you brought up the Armenian genocide We'll talk about this at some point on Behind the Bastards, but you mentioned that that was kind of what the people, when the term genocide was invented, that was what people were looking at, even though it was kind of a direct response to the Holocaust. It's also worth noting that, like, when the Nazis planned the Holocaust, they used the Armenian genocide as a model. Um, Hitler's literal statement was when people, when he was asked during, like, one of his, his dinners with a bunch of Nazi officials, like, what uh what about kind of the international reaction to what we're planning to do he was like well who remembers the armenians you know like that was his that was his attitude is like we'll get away with it because nobody did anything during this genocide right Um, and 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 i think while i would hesitate to call the entire war in ukraine a genocide yes as of yet i would say that there's a similarity between the armenian genocide and the and how that led to the holocaust there's a similarity between the Russian war crimes committed in Syria and how that led to the war crimes being allowed, uh, committed in Ukraine yeah. in the sense that if the world had stood up earlier, we would not be seeing this now. Yeah. The problem is the world looked the other way when the Russians bombed hospitals in Syria, when they repeatedly bombed hospitals. In fact, the world didn't just look away. A lot of people in the West mocked it. I, I'm sure you've heard it as often as I have. The last hospital in Aleppo joke, right? Where mm-hmm. they're, oh, they're bombing the last, last hospital in Aleppo again. Well, the reason that happened is because when you bomb the hospital, they build a new one. And then it gets bombed again three days later. So they've bombed the last one again. So it wasn't a joke. It was just a tragedy that kept playing out that people couldn't really fathom. So they mocked. Mm-hmm. right? And, and so when that's the attitude of a lot of the world, it's no surprise that what's, what's happened in Ukraine has, has run out of control. Mm-hmm. Where do you think we go from here? What are you, what are you expecting to kind of see next within this conflict? You know, we, we, the most recent kind of reporting is that Russia's pulling, Russia's framing it as they're pulling back from Kiev to to focus on other fronts. Uh, the Ukrainian side is saying like, well, they've been defeated around Kiev and they're pulling back. What do you think kind of we're seeing next? What, what is your opinion on kind of the next stages here? So I think it really depends on Vladimir Putin's power and how long he remains in a position of unchecked power. I'm not saying necessarily he will fall from power. I'm saying that how long can he go as the only guy calling the shots? Because as it stands right now, it doesn't look like he's the same Vladimir Putin that we were used to dealing with. It seems like something may have changed with him. And that's a wild card because if 
if Vladimir Putin wants to continue to escalate here, he can continue to do so because he may not be getting the same reporting that we are about the condition of his army. He may think his army is doing better than they're doing and that they actually are just repositioning. So if that's the case, there's a chance that he'll escalate against potentially a NATO country. I find that unlikely, but there's still a chance for it. I think what's more likely is that we're going to see the Russian military refocus its efforts in the east in, in Donetsk and Luhansk uh, with an attempt to create a land bridge to Crimea through the area, through Mariupol and Melitopol mm-hmm. area. Um, and I think they're going to try to russify the area as much as possible uh, and remove as many of the Ukrainians as possible um, one way or the other. And I don't know if they'll be successful in that, but I think simultaneously while they do that, they're going to try to tie down and destroy as much of the Ukrainian military as possible. Um, which will be difficult because the units in the East are Ukraine's best equipped units. Mm-hmm. So I don't know how this ends. I don't see a, a reasonable end to this in sight, but that's just because there's too many variables at the moment. Yeah. I do think one thing that's kind of worth looking at this war in a historical context, a number of comparisons have been made to both of the world wars here. Um, I think the thing that it most reminds me of is world war one, not, in that it's a, a conflagration on that scale or in that um, it's a similar war in terms of the combat. But it is an example of the first big war that utilizes a variety of weapons and tactics that have been battlefield tested in a series of smaller wars, right? Um, and I, I think we are seeing in Ukraine for the first time the actual I think one thing that we have seen is that drones, and I'm not talking about the big ones here. You know, they get a lot of the Bayraktar and stuff like get that gets a lot of attention, but like small, the kind of drones anyone listening to this could pick up and buy today, right? Those drones, I think, are proving to be a game changer on a tactical level in a similar manner to the machine gun in in the the turn of the last century. Um, yeah, the century before the last century. Yeah. Well, with, with the drones, I've often machine guns a good uh, good comparison. I've often thought of it as like the airplane, in yeah. that we had airplanes and we even had combat airplanes before World War One. We didn't have very many of them because nobody really realized the utility of them in war. And then as the war got closer and then the war started, countries started to slowly build up these small fleets of aircraft. And then by the end of the war, everybody had an air force. I think we're going to yep. see the same thing with these small consumer drones. Yep. Is that like? By the end of this war or whatever conflagrations are coming after it, every military in the world is going to have yeah. little, little, you know, phantom, phantom threes or whatever, yep. basically for every infantry squad. One of the things that's so wild is that if, if you, again, if you sitting here right now have not an insignificant amount of money, let's say three to $4,000 and the uh, enough mechanical like competence to carry out modest repairs on your own car. You could, with things entirely available over the shelf, build a weapon system capable of disabling a variety of armored vehicles at night. You know, like you that that is a thing that individual people you could do that and you could have it up and running in a matter of days. <laughs> I'm just I'm imagining the next protest in unnamed city. Yeah. Um, and a consumer drone flies over the police line and drops a little thing on him that says bang yeah 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 yeah, exactly (laughs) like there's a lot uh, people even even as as influential and and meaningful as they've been on the battlefield in ukraine i think people still are kind of slow to understand the extent like there is one of the wildest stories that's come out of it is that the ukrainian military has a an outfit of civilian drone operators using hacked and home-built drones to attack Russian forces at night. Um, 
and they have been the documented eff- efficacy of their raids has been significant. And I can re- I can remember spending a brief period of time with an Iraqi uh, military unit that was just using DJI Phantoms that they had rigged to drop what were essentially mortar shells with shuttlecocks on them from a height. Um, and they were very effective at killing people, um, as ISIS drones were effective at, at sort of spotting, you know, mortars for folks. Well, and one of the things I saw ISIS use their mor- their drones for to great effect wasn't so much to kill large numbers of enemy soldiers. It was to do the same thing that American Predator drones and Reaper yep. drones had done for, for decades by that point to terror groups, which is let yep. them know you can't gather in large numbers. Yeah. If you gather in large numbers, you're a target. And so you saw Iraqi soldiers saying no more than two or three in a group. Yep. Any more than that will get targeted, you know, and it's they flipped the equation, basically. Yep. And don't I mean, I one of the reasons why I I have a general policy heavily informed by my time in Mosul that the last place I want to be in a anywhere near a war zone is an armored vehicle, Um, because that's really unless you are in something that's heavily up armored like an MRAP little bombs dropped by drones can do significant damage to something like a Humvee. And that's exactly what you target. You don't target a Toyota Corolla with a drone like that, unless you specifically know an individuals in that Corolla that you want to kill. But you may just behind the line, see a target of opportunity in an armor, see an armored, lightly armored vehicle and drop a, 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 a munition on it. And that's one of the things this has done. There was a lot of talk prior to the expanded Russian invasion about how immediately Russia was going to get air superiority. And that's obviously a bigger story than just drones. There's a lot of factors in why Russia, it's probably accurate to say they have superiority in a number of parts of the war, but they don't have supremacy. Like they, It's not like an absolute matter. And part of that is because um, it's not really possible to at this moment, someday, I suspect there will be more effective ways of stopping drones in, 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 at like a theater level, um, maybe, but it certainly hasn't happened yet. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's the thing, you know, there's there's the drones and then there's also on the Ukrainian side, they, you know, I think they recognize that Air Force against Air Force, the Russians have a numerical superiority. Mm-hmm. So you can deny the Russians air supremacy by shooting down their planes with man pads. Right. Mm-hmm. You don't have to have an air force to deny your opponent air no. supremacy. You just have to deny them the ability to freely operate in your airspace. And this is one of those things. There's been a lot of talk about a no-fly zone, um, which I tend to think would be a bad idea in the traditional sense, in terms of like the U.S. and NATO sending in planes to down Russian planes over Ukraine. There's a number of reasons why that's concerning. But you can effectively establish a no-fly zone by shipping in a fuckload of man pads. Right, um, exactly. Yeah, and I, I'm not against that. I, I think in terms of what kind of what kind of armed arms support is ethical to provide, giving people the ability to stop planes from bombing cities is broadly speaking one of the most ethical things you can do in terms of shipping munitions around the world. Um, right, and the other advantage is that man pads. I'm sure somebody could turn it into a lethal ground weapon, but they're pretty hard to yeah use against ground targets against houses things like that yeah. not really what they're designed for so it's not like just handing over you know uh some indiscriminate weapon to the ukrainians to use against russian cities you're, you're giving them a weapon that's specifically used against military aircraft mm-hmm. like most man pads can't reach the altitude that airliners are at even so yep so i think that's probably what we want to talk about today um, you want to plug your pluggables, tell people where they can find you and, and your analysis out in the world. Yeah. So, uh, you can, you can follow me on Twitter. My uh, handle is at Shabanian Aram 
and uh, I work, uh, I, I publish occasionally with the New Lions Institute. Uh, so you can see my work there as well. And I have a website that I seldom update, uh, the foldagap.com. Um, hasn't been updated in probably eight months now because I've been tired. But um, yeah, those are the places to find me. And uh, DMs are open on Twitter. Mm -hmm. So if you ever have questions or anything like that, let me know. I'm happy to talk with anybody who's got questions on these kind of things. Hell yeah. Well, that's gonna be us. So, you know, enjoy this analysis of the of the war in Ukraine um, before we return you to your regularly scheduled multi-part series on Nazi cat girls, uh, the primary focus of this podcast. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Mother's Day is right around the corner, and in true She Pivots fashion, we're highlighting moms who've dedicated their lives and their pivots to supporting mothers. The iconic Christy Turlington will join us to talk about launching Every Mother Counts after pivoting from her 90s supermodel days. And later, the co-CEOs of Baby to Baby will share how they're addressing the needs for millions of babies and moms. So tune in and subscribe to She Pivots. New episodes out every Wednesday. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you ask two people the same exact set of seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including actress and star of the mega-hit sitcom Friends, Courtney Cox. You can't go around it, so you just go through it. This is a roadblock. It's going to catch you down the road. Go through it. Deal with it. Comedian, writer, and star of the series Catastrophe, Rob Delaney. I shouldn't feel guilty about my son's death. He died of a brain tumor. It's part of what happens when your kid dies. Intellectually, you'll understand that it's not your fault, but you'll still feel guilty. Alt-rock icon, Liz Fair. That personal disaster wrote Guyville. So everything comes out of a dead end. And many, many more. 
Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. Money. Money. <laughs> this is well, welcome to It Could Happen Here. It, it is me, Christopher Wong. Uh, this is a this is a podcast about things falling apart, things putting back together again, and also today it's just about money. Um, and also, well, okay, it, it is not just about money. It is about money, and it is about seemingly seemingly esoteric dis- uh, arguments about the nature of money that actually turn out to be extremely important for any post revolutionary society or even just this society. So, yeah, and and joining joining me to talk about this are Kyle Flannery and Steve Mann, who are the co editors of Strange Matters Magazine, which is a new workers co op that's in the middle of a fundraising drive. So yeah, uh, go go support the magazine and. Uh, Steve and Kyle, welcome to the show. It's great to be here, Chris. Thanks for having us. The the basis of this interview is a piece that is coming out. Actually, when is it coming out? That's that's a good question that I should probably have asked oh, before this. Um, let's see. It will come out later this month. Okay, yeah, it, that'll be out later this month. That is about the history of money and what money is. So I guess we can we can start there. Which is, yeah, can can you walk us through a bit about? The, the the debate over what money is and how sort of various people have gotten parts of it wrong and parts of it right? Sure. I got into this debate as a economics graduate student in 2011, and a book that really kind of shaped my initial understanding was David Graeber's Debt, The First 5,000 Years. And Yeah, it's excellent. Um, it's, it's very long and it's a bit scattered, but I, I love what he put together with it. And um, so he kind of introduced me to ideas of from a school of economic thought called chartalism. And chartalism is kind of the theoretical forebear of MMT. And MMT is, which is modern monetary theory, is kind of in the news now as a theory which is saying like, okay, if you if you're a government that issues its own money, its own currency that is not really backed by anything, it's not backed by any other currency or any other commodity, then you don't really face a financial limit as far as how much you can produce. You, you're the sole source of that money and you can spend it into existence, spend by buying things, the money into existence. And people will accept it to the extent that they either need it or they want it. And that's one theory that's kind of in the air now. But chartalism, over 100 years before this, is putting out very similar ideas around money that is um, created by states in order to marshal physical resources. They call it biophysical resources, which is just a fancy word of meaning all of the material, people, techniques, um, physical processes that are required to create economic activity. So to the extent that people either need or want your money, um, you can use it as a social technology sort of to marshal those resources into action. And uh, you being a state, chartalism says. So from chartalism, we got MMT. But David Graver's book is about a lot more than just chartalism and MMT. So it's about the origins of money. And origins of money, uh, it turns out, are at least 5,000 years ago, as the title says. Um, 
there are examples of um, early accounting systems that are where people are just um, rather than there being a circulating medium of exchange type money, like a, a coin or something or a dollar bill, there were just records of what people own and what people owe and their debts and credits against each other. And it was in early Mesopotamia there. So we have these early accounting systems that yield more advanced credit systems over time that are ruled by temples um, which are sort of proto-states in a way, in terms of like they administer the flow of goods and services through their territory and between their territory and another temple's territory using their domestic money, but also international money. International money was facilitated through trade networks. Trade networks use things like um, they needed to convert between a domestic money and international money. And... Graeber goes through these like wonderful examples of um, silver and other metals being used as like international means of payment. Um, that's sort of our term in our piece, basically, uh, which is covering um, foreign exchange. But um, he says like in order to get from the domestic money into the international money, um, you need to have these linkages of experts in the temple and the trade networks to get together and make um, credit instruments, which knit them together into this trade network. And from there we go into, um, I don't want to spend too much time on the history, but we go from there to situations m thousands of years later, we get coins. Coins are being minted by starting in the, Roughly 600 BC, I want to say, Carl. Yeah. That, that sounds about um, right. It's going to be early first, Iron Age. Right. So um, the first, I someone can correct me if I'm wrong, but I've been doing some homework on this because I've been on a few podcasts and there's like, like numismatists in the comments and whatnot. <laughs> uh, but um, the first, okay, the first mixed gold and silver coin was sometime in the 7th century BCE and the first gold coin was not long after. I think it was like they were both Lydian kings. Like one after another. Anyway, <laughs> just wanted to hit that because someone said I got it wrong earlier. But um, <laughs> uh, These coins were kind of the first uh, widely used sort of retail means of settling debts like at the point of sale between people. So it wasn't just an accounting system. It wasn't an elaborate credit system with no circulating means of payment. It was a circulating money now. And it's getting around um, based on military conquest. Military conquest in the Axial Age spread the use of coins much wider than the domestic spheres in which they were first minted. Yeah, and I, th I think we should like... Just, just to talk about about like roughly when this is like a, a you know like if if you go back I mean this this is slightly later but one of the huge sort of like like the the, the periods where like the entire Mediterranean is using coinage right is you know you're, this this is this is when you're dealing with your sort of like classical Greek like mm -hmm. you have you have your Greeks and your Persians and you have your sort of like Athens and Sparta um and th those guys are very much uh they're engaged in this thing that uh Graeber calls the 
the military industrial coinage slavery complex. The military industrial coinage complex. Yeah, and I yeah, yeah and I think he, he adds slavery on the end because it's yeah, it's it's this giant sort of like, it's this giant warfare system, right? Like these are like the, like Athens is an empire, right? They run around, they steal, they seize mm-hmm. people's gold, like this gold and silver mines, and they like have slaves that work it, and it's this whole sort of yep, like yep. like this, yeah. You you get the system of empire that is like what the actual age is sort of defined by. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, whereas previously, like, so precious metals did circulate, but they weren't in coin form and they were more as like a bulk means of payment stored from one temple to the next, almost as if they were central banks, but central banks don't exist yet. And axial, the axial age coinage system gave rise to the more, much more sophisticated medieval coinage system and I'm going breezily through this because um, there's a lot there. But yeah. um, <laughs> several thousand years of there's history. Several thousand years are passing in a few minutes here. So um, bear with me. But um, there are, there now in the medieval and Renaissance times, not only do we have the coinage circulating, but we also have credit instruments um, which uh, are being submitted, transferred, transmitted rather between banks. Uh, between banks in different countries and territories that are saying, hey, you don't even need to, based on what is written on this piece of paper, I already know you're good for it. I will dispense with the coins uh, that I have in my bank because this paper signifies that they you're good for it, basically. And so that greatly speeds things up in terms of um, settling commerce debts and, and uh, settling bills between different um, states. So, but going through all this history, the point of it is that at every, at every sort of step of the way, you see, okay, there's a lot of different types of money that are circulating and they're being exchanged against one another. And there also seems to be a domestic sphere and an international sphere. The international means of payment, which is a analytic category that... Um, I and my co-author, John Michael Clone, thought up is kind of sort of sets the tune as far as what uh, what kind of hierarchy of money, if you will, develops in each of these ages. So like in the prior to the Axial Age, there were bulk, there was bulk settlements from one temple to the next in terms of silver, although it wasn't coins, it was just um, like bullion basically. Um, and then, and then later it was coins and then later it was bills of exchange. And then, uh, after a while there emerged gold standards, um, that existed between nations and they had central banks eventually, which, um, hoarded gold, not because, not just because they are fetishizing it or something, something basic like that, but rather because it was the established international means of payment and, if you either you need that or you need something that is easily transferable into that in order to conduct your trade, especially if you're a developing country or um, a otherwise like an upstart state of some type. Now, today we're in a dollarized world. The dollar is the international means of payment. From 1971 onwards, the MMT story, yeah, I mean, that's basically true. The MM, the for the U.S. government as the issuer, the sole issuer of the dollar, 
which is a fiat currency, which is not backed by anything. Um, yeah, you can make as much of that as you want. You can make, you can create and spend into existence as many dollars as the U.S. government wants, and then delete it from existence by taxing it away. And that makes perfect sense. Totally acknowledge that. But there's some problems, nonetheless, in terms of how they apply that into a more general theory. Because it's like, can you, okay, you can make as much of your own money. What about other types of money? From the perspective of a U.S. statecraft interested individual, like, why would you care about other people's money, basically, if you're just the full, sole source of the, U, of the U.S. dollar, which happens to also be the international means of payment. Of course you wouldn't. However, if you're like, say, Tun Tunisia, the Tunisian dollar is accepted almost nowhere as payment. Yeah, and and one one of the big thing, I mean, it, it's not the sole driver, and people sort of overemphasize this. I'm going to caveat this immediately because people will yell at me. But like one one of the very important things about the dollar is that the dollar is what you can buy oil in, and this is extremely important because if you are a society in the world, you need oil. Um, this That's is true. basically universally true, and and this you know and the but and the fact that you need to buy oil and and the fact that you need to buy a lot of other things that are manufactured in the U.S. means you have to find some way to get U.S. dollars. Now, yeah. again, the U.S. doesn't. This doesn't matter for the U.S. because we can just make them. Well, okay, a a it, 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 this is another thing. This stuff gets very weird and convoluted very quickly um but the, the the essentially the u.s can just sort of make this money technically speaking it's the federal reserve and there's all of this just incredibly convoluted finance stuff but yeah the u.s like doesn't the u.s does not have to worry about obtaining u.s dollars you could just do it but you know yeah if if you're yeah if, if you're if you're i don't know if you're tunisia if you're Denmark's an example I like. I know, yeah, Denmark. Yeah, like you, you, you need to find a way to get U.S. dollars because you need to have stuff where you need to use U.S. dollars to buy it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so in our international context, this is after all of the history I just went through since about 1971 or so when we went off the gold standard. Um, we have a system of central banks dominated by the dollar, and the dollar represents about 60% of settlement of all trade. And the next five or so currencies are, plus the U.S., account for like 80 to 85% of all trade. So there's really just a few currencies which dominate everything, with the U.S. being outsized among them. And when you look at the historical record, this is like very similar to other forms of international means of payment, where it's like, okay, I either need to have the one that's at the top, or failing that one of the other sort of reserve currencies, even though that 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 terminology didn't really exist prior to about say, 80 years ago. Um, but yeah, so like if you don't, if it's not gold, then okay, it's the US dollar. So we need dollars or we either need to be printing dollars because we're the US or if we're not them, then we need to get into either US dollar or the yen or the euro or one of the major trading currencies. And um, like China, China does a lot of trade with the U.S. and they they sell things to us. We give them dollars. They're rational. They put their dollars into treasuries to gain a little bit of a return instead of just holding the dollars themselves for no return. To explain, I guess, what a treasury is, because 
Yeah, sorry. Uh, a treasury bill is if you receive dollars, you can use them to purchase what's called a treasury note or a treasury bill. And it's called receive... T-notes too. So if you ever hear someone yeah. talk about T-notes, that, that's what this is. Yeah, so it's a way to learn. It's like moving from your checking to your savings account, essentially. So if you have just dollars in a bank, it doesn't earn hardly anything. If you're in a saving, if you go into the savings account, which is basically the treasury, the treasury bills, you'll earn a little more, and you'll earn dollars. You won't earn renminbi from them. You'll earn more dollars. Yeah, yeah. So and dollars like, are the international means sorry. of payment, so that's good. Yeah, so, so like you, you basically like there's the U.S. government puts out a bond and like you buy it and then it when you know, whenever it like expires there's, there's like a ten year T note that people talk about that's like in right, ten so years you buy it and yeah it, it'll it'll give you like a certain amount of dollars like later on that is more than what you paid for it. Mm-hmm, exactly. So you'll earn a little bit of interest over time, yeah. and then you may earn like a little lump sum when it matures in in the future. So China has tons of dollars. It's part of a huge strategy that they have in order to manage their foreign their foreign currency reserves or what's called forex. So forex is the and that's a term we're going to use a lot. Um, that just is the foreign currency reserves you have on hand in order to pay for things that are only available for sale in currencies that you can't make yourself. Okay, so you know you have this question of like, why do we care about this, right? Like, why do we people who want to make the world better care about this? And the answer is, okay, take 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 your hypothetical scenario. Uh, your 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 hypothetical scenario is the scenario in which like a a a a bunch of workers in alliance with like tribal confederations have taken Vancouver Island, right? And they've set up a new they've they've set up a new government. They have worked out sovereignty arrangements. Things have happened. You now have a new you you have you have a new sort of entity that is that is in vancouver island um yeah so so immediately you have you have both you have both uh resources and you have problems right you have a certain amount of resources that are on vancouver island right you have you know you have like you you have literally like what what you have the things that are on the island right you have cars you have like probably some yachts you've managed to like steal you have you know, you have you have shops, you have uh, production facilities, you have a, a, a extremely large number of very good Chinese restaurants. Uh, <laughs> you have <laughs> yeah. uh, trees. Yeah. Got a lot of trees. Yeah, there. you've got major, trees. Major asset. Yeah, you know the Chinese let, restaurants. I mean, also it's true. Like I, yeah, my, my my family spent a lot of time, like specifically going going to Vancouver Island just to eat Chinese food. Uh, yeah, you know, and say say like let, let, let's say you've taken Vancouver Island and you you expand out and you now have like a swath of Canada. Right. That, that is that is that is now sort of been liberated. And, you know, you have you have you have a lot of resources, you have sort of timber, you have I don't know, maybe you have coal, maybe you have other stuff you have. You have a, and you also have a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And I was about to say, yeah, yeah, you got whatever yeah, labor you can marshal. Yeah, you have a lot of labor and, you know, and those people have a lot of skills. They have a lot of dedication. They have like, you know, they they they, they have they have they have a belief that you can make the world a better place. And I think this is where. You know, this th- this is this is the arena in which MMT can sort of explain what you're doing next. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah. you have this. Um, you have a territory that has undergone revolutionary change, and you have biophysical resources that are in it, and biophysical resources that could be in it, and you have, and you also have the social technology of money. Some of the money you can just make yourself; other monies you cannot. 
Um, MMT in the, is applicable in the sense that it says, in this scenario, I think the most the way MMT is most applicable is to say everyone can be employed who wants to be employed. Yeah, There's you a, know, there, yeah. one of their principal ideas is a job guarantee, a federal job guarantee, and it could be applied just as easily conceptually in this situation. It says, um, there's nothing preventing a revolutionary government of some type, um, not necessarily a state, but any, any non-state type of um, administration from setting up something sort of like a central bank to make its own money to marshal domestic resources, domestic in terms of within its own territory, and to get everyone everyone who wants to be employed to be employed and to be paid for their work like not yeah. to be too vulgar but like why why this is stuff is important this monetary theory and this history is like people want to be paid for their work they're yeah, not going and, to go and barter things they want to get paid yeah and I, and i think this is something that like you know if 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 you look at sort of like the the thing that gets held up is like the the, the classic example of an anarchist revolution right is is what happens in spain in 1936 and if 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 you look at what they do, right, like very, very, almost immediately after the revolution, what happens is you have basically like a union of all of the bank workers, and those guys take over all the banks. Um, and you you have you have the individual work, like workers and different unions start seizing. They start seizing the factories. They start seizing like the trains. And once they've done that, they start just pooling all of their resources into, you know, like in, into like they, they, they have, they, they now have this, like they have, they have the banking union. The banking union is, is the, the sort of central body that has resources that can distribute it. And, you know, what, what, what MMT is essentially saying is like, yeah, so in, as, as long as what you're moving around is the resources that you have in your territory, like you can just create money in order to do that. And you can sort of, you know, and and you can use this to get people to do certain things, and like you know, the the the, the Catalonians, like they 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 equalize everyone's wages, for example. I mean, it would be better if we equalize everyone's wages. I I do agree with that. Yeah, uh, well, <laughs> you know, I, I mean, yeah. they, they they do have a lot of other stuff that's like okay, so like they they get rid of a lot of jobs that are like sort of managerial stuff or like just bullshit jobs. They just kind of eliminate and yeah, and you know, and this this frees up people to like do stuff that actually matters and is real instead of sort of. This like this sort of bureaucratic hierarchy that's above them, yeah. and yeah. But and I think the other thing they do that's that's very important for our sort of scenario and for us talking about money is that like they they immediately start like they start seizing gold and they start seizing uh, you know like they start seizing foreign currency, and yeah. And I think that this this is where we can get into where, where I guess MMT doesn't work because MMT like. <laughs> It's it's it it doesn't it doesn't really think much about the fact that like okay you you have Vancouver Island you have a part of like Canada right there is a lot of resources that you don't have absolutely yeah that's 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 going to be a, a lot of why foreign exchange matters so much as that uh, you know you inevitably you think. What if we just made an autarkic society? That's uh, sorry if that's a little. I probably should have jumped the gun a little bit there. What if we just made everything ourselves? What if we made a society that was fully economically independent? Uh, um, that's what autarky tends to be used to mean. And the answer to that is because that sucks. Yes. Uh, like, <laughs> that's the problem well. with it. Is that it, it? It sucks. <laughs> like you, you don't want to be trying to manage an autarkic society on multiple grounds. Uh, 
not least of which is that I mean, we've 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 seen societies try to do it, and uh, you know, we, me, me and Steve could go for hours and hours and hours talking about historical precedents of previous economic systems, many of which did try to be autarkic because that was something that monarchies liked a lot was the idea that their their kingdom could be fully independent. Because the thing is, is that when you're economically independent, that means that uh, you've got a certain amount of security of international security. Uh, and there's kind of a trade-off where the more stuff that you're reliant on importing, the more vulnerable you are to the people you're importing and screwing you. But it's just so massively difficult to be a good producer of every possible good. Yeah, and and this and this is this is true even if you have an enormous amount of resources. Like I yeah. think, you know, we we can talk about one case study of this, which is socialist period China, and mm-hmm. you know, socialist period China, they 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 have. They they they're they're getting resources and especially in the early periods they're getting some resources from like Hong Kong they're getting some stuff from the Soviets but you know they 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 get into like Mao famously does not like markets um this is a, this is a thing that is known about Mao and so Mao is like okay we're like no we're gonna shut off the sort of like market system that we that we've been running sort of through Hong Kong and then you know China had been getting technology transfers and aid from the USSR but. You know, the USSR and China got into a bunch of political fights and the USSR like pulls out all of its advisors. And, you know, China, China has an enormous amount of resources, right? They have, they have a large population. They have, they have just an enormous geographic mass. And so they, they basically try to, you know, build an autarkic society and they try to sort of just, okay, well, we'll just, we'll just marshal our resources and we'll just sort of like, we'll, we'll plan a way out of it. And they run into this problem, which is that there is actually things that they need from other countries, which is technology. And they they hit this thing I've talked about before, which is uh, like they they basically hit this bot this production bottleneck where it's like, well, okay, so in order to produce more industrial goods, they need more food. But the problem is, in order to produce more food to support a larger urban population, uh, you need more industrial goods, right? You need your like fertilizers, you need your tractors, you need stuff like that. And you know, and once they're cut off from sort of the rest of the world from through Hong Kong and from the USSR. They don't have a way. To, they they you know they're 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 sort, of, they're sort of scrambling to figure out how we do this, and their solution is the Great Leap Forward, which is essentially we're just, we're 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 going to just bust through this whole thing and we're going to do it by forcing everyone to work for like an absolutely enormous like increase in hours, right? Like we're we're gonna have, we're gonna have peasants working in the fields literally until they collapse from exhaustion, and it just doesn't work. It is a it is a epochal failure. There are millions of people die from famines. And you know, and and the sort of the response to this is that, like, is that China eventually ends up like winds up opening its economy again. Yeah, and yeah, and yeah, and like and, you know, and this is the thing. Like, if if China, which has like just just an astounding breadth of natural resources, can't pull this off, like it's probably just not a good idea because like, yeah. Uh, well, I mean, we even have like a, a very you know a very contemporary example that uh, you know makes. It will make certainly makes my blood boil, and I'm sure it will make some of the listeners' blood boil. The you know vaccines, uh, you know the the realistically, you know the the coronavirus is fun is a more or less is an incredible threat to basically every state on the planet at this point, and the re, really chemical and biomedical research is done in just a handful of places on the planet. Uh, and there have been attempts to create vaccines outside of those places, and they have been somewhat successful, but it has been difficult. And most places are just not in a position 
to create a to develop their own competing technology. Uh, and even China struggled with creating their own competing vaccination technology. And I'm not at all a bio, biology expert, but I understand it's a not quite as efficient vaccine, the Sinovac. But at the end of the day, this is like South Africa is not developing their own independent vaccine. That's a quite sophisticated economy. Yep. All of all the various South American countries could have pulled their resources together in theory. But it's so hard to turn a dime and develop from scratch, a primary research industry. Uh, it, it's so difficult and it's so not worth it. It's, you know, if you have trade relations with a country that has technology developments in a field that you really care about, it's just not really worth it. Like we don't, the United States doesn't really compete with several forms of Japanese technology because it's just not worth the bother. Uh, just let Korea and japan handle that for us and we buy it uh and they accept our our forex they accept our dollars but you know let's say you're the philippines you know how are you going to get those and uh this is this is now international trade and international politics and uh if we're creating our now independent vancouver island we have now entered into this territory mm -hmm. uh we have now entered into uh international politics and international uh trade mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and this this is an arena that's fraught in a lot of ways because it's it's you know as we've sort of been talking about right it's it's not just that you need it's not just that you need forex or like for example like you know if, if we you 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 have you have your sort of like you know you 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 have your new society in like Vancouver right yeah Vancouver Island uh you know you need the thing you need mostly is dollars mm -hmm. and this is this is a real problem because. It, this requires you to have something that you can turn into dollars and you know okay so you're, you're gonna have some amount of dollars that are just there right from from when you see society there's there's assets you can sort of just sell off that like okay like do we really need this yacht like okay we can, we can, we can sell this for some amount of dollars but th this becomes a, a a real economic problem because you you need to produce something that you can exchange for dollars and you know there's there's a pretty good chance that like whatever sort of new currency whatever new sort of like mmt currency that's like oh it's it's controlled it because we're producing it it moves our resources around we can make them as of it as we want like mm. yeah you have to actually be able to convert that into dollars and you know why why does the u why is the u.s going to want your currency yeah it's a bit dialectical because you have to okay you have your mmt currency which domestically is accepted because of tax receivability or something uh, or, or um, national fervor, if you will, to um, create a new uh, democratic confederalist society. Um, and that's accepted there, but yeah, you need us dollars. So like you, you need us dollars, but why do you need them? Partly because like you eventually want to not need them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And yeah. so you have what you can, you have assets right now that you can just sell. So that's one way, but long term, you can't do that. So you need to have cash flow over the long haul that allows you to buy what are called capital goods, which are, is a fancy term for machines that make machines or machines that make some sort of like in product, which is a physical thing. It's not like a service or something. And, um you want to classic like really classic economic development advice 
that is actually pretty good is you want to move up what's called a value chain and eventually be not producing um, just like a stable crop or something, but doing really innovative, advanced technology things later on. So you like, here's where I am. Here's what I have. Here's what I could have, though. How do I get there? Um, part of part of the formula to get there is, yes, acquiring Forex, but it's other things like saying, how do I cultivate political alliances that will uh, yield trade partners such that I have a stable flow of Forex and uh, maybe even technology transfers, you know, or something down the line, which could be a game changer. Um, you need to have an education system. Like if you're a fan of the economist Torsten Veblen, he thought, like in his mind, he thought the economic development was ultimately from the human intellect and like everything was downstream of that. So like you need to have money to, um, you can use your MMT money to create a basic education system and you can augment it with buying, importing things that you can't yet make and uh, using it to create like a university or something, which can do R&D work. Um, you have to... You have to find tools to get enough of the money that you can't just infinitely produce forex in order to augment what your society can produce beyond what it initially could, and uh, show essentially that you okay, I can make a better mousetrap. Like I, I don't need to, I don't need donations from well-meaning imperial powers or something. We're building what we need in order to move up the value chain and then build out our productive capacity in such a way that um, it doesn't leave anyone behind. Everyone is everyone's employed because we're doing the classic MMT stuff on the home front, such as a job guarantee, but we're also doing the international economic development stuff of assiduously monitoring our foreign foreign currency reserves and then using them to import things that we cannot yet make but can make things internally and then have a, a, um, a snowballing effect as far as being able to sell even higher value things, which um, to our trade partners who are hopefully share our values of like democratic confederalism or whatever you, whatever your chosen guidelines are. Yeah. And, and th- this is something that like, th- this is something that, that becomes very difficult in like the current market, you know, this is this is to some extent like why the Cold War went the way it did, right? Which is that, you know, once once you have the Sino-Soviet split, and once you have like, you know, I mean, you have Chinese and Russian troops killing each other on the border, um, China it, it like enters a situation where it's like, well, okay, so we still want to do economic development, but we've lost the Soviet Union as as a technology as a way to get technology transfers, and their solution to that was to ally with the U.S. And this is like. It, it it works out for the Chinese economy. It is an apocalyptic disaster for like literally everyone else on earth <laughs> because like it means that capitalism is the thing that wins the Cold War, and and this means that like you know I mean like if if you look if you look at how you know like the 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 things that China are doing in order to be able to get technology transfers for the U.S. It's like like there's so there there are joints like Chinese CIA like operations inside of china that are like monitoring soviet missile sites so there's just like cia outposts just like in china that are just you know doing spying 
like for for the US government there's like they invade Vietnam which is a <laughs> enormous and, and you know and it's not just that they invade Vietnam it's like they invade Vietnam and then they fight this like there's really you know the, the immediate war doesn't last that long but they fight this like horrible border war that goes on for like a decade that kills enormous numbers of people and you know and, and the end result of this is like yeah like you know trying to get the technology transfers and they developed their economy but uh, it Everyone else on earth. Yeah. (laughs) The cost is like everyone who's ever tried to be a labor organizer in like, uh, you know, in in, in like El Salvador gets murdered by a bunch of fascists. And it's like every development econ is so fucking frustrating because at every single step of the way, there's like, there's like a really razor thin line between risk and reward at every step of the way. And yeah. so, like, uh, imperial powers will dangle technology transfers or extended yep. trade agreements on somewhat favorable terms uh, in exchange for allowing them to just, like, go to war with your neighbors, like, uh, or rope you into it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or or extract resources that would be valuable for you later in your development phases. Yeah, actually, uh, th- this leads to me, um, you know, go- going to our hypothetical here, thinking about Vancouver Island, the People's Republic of Vancouver Island, uh, and we can kind of talk about some of the development traps because that's kind of what I'm was churning through my head right now because I'm looking at the Wikipedia page for Vancouver Island at that incredibly <laughs> deep level of research, uh, and so what they list under the economy is there's a tech sector, logging, fishing, tourism, and food. Um, and so, you know, we talked first about, like, you could, like, sell off, like, the yachts and the cars and stuff like that. Uh, and that's, I don't even know if that counts as a sector of the economy at that level. That's a uh, zero yeah, you, have, you can have sector. a yard sale. <laughs> yeah, you can have Let's a yard see. sale. Uh, but, you know, logging and fishing, those are those are pretty solid primary sector economies. You know, uh, you know to that, describe the terminology, you know, they've got this, this is part of that hierarchy that Steve was talking about, that, you know, the chain of development and a primary sector is like a basic extractive element of your economy, a mine, uh, logging, fishing, food production, you know, basic goods. And then, you know, you talk about a secondary development, which is like manufacturing and then a tertiary, which is, you know, services. Uh, those are kind of your basic. Those are usually considered like sectors of the economy, but in a way they kind of correspond to development um, and they require different amounts of development and you know, the thing about primary is that everybody needs those things. Like, unless people just stop using wood for construction, which we are very far from doing, we still use a lot of wood for construction, uh, your logging industry is going to have buyers. Um, until people stop buying eating fish, your fishing industry is going to have buyers. You know, up to a really ludicrously bottomless reserve. Uh, but you're going to be stopped on that secondary industry until you have capital. Like, I don't mean just like the sense of having a lot of money, but, you know, as, as Steve said, the right capital, money, the right money. And well, you need capital production, you need capital, you need the machine. Yeah, you need like you need, you need yeah. your factories, you need your. Yeah, like, you need, yeah so printers. you uh, and wealthy countries, uh, partly in, in order to maintain their power, they have they they want to be the only seller of capital goods. Yeah. And, and they're going to be very um, withholding about it. Um, like like a really good example for right now with like all of the inflation stuff going on and like the chip shortage. Yeah. So the machines that make the machines that make the chips, holy shit. Those are like, those are, they only make like 50 of those a year. Yeah. And it's all two companies. Yeah. Well, you know, I I wasn't, the the, the, the thing with the thing with the chip shortage, right. It's also like, so if, if you can be, 
like the people who do that, that gives you a lot of economic power. Like this is this is one of Taiwan's things, right? Which is that like, you know, it's like, okay, so why hasn't Taiwan just sort of been bowled over by by China? And like, I mean, there's a lot of sort of geopolitical reasons for that, but it's also partly it's just that like, yeah, like Taiwan has this enormous chip making industry. And it's incredibly advanced, and you know, and it has like, you know, and this this is a th- I think another thing that, that that's a real problem for sort of revolutionary society doing this is that like, yeah, like Taiwan's chip making economy, like it's not like people like fall in like vats of chemicals like mm-hmm. a lot, like there's a lot, there's a lot, like just horrible sort of labor exploitation, and, and this comes back to even your sort of like, like you know, if you're talking about your your, your sort of primary primary sector stuff in the economy, which is that like, okay, well, yeah, I mean, like oil is a particular example of this, but like, you know, same with timber and same, same with fish is that like, these are extractive industries. Yeah. And this becomes a real problem for a lot of your sort of like newly revolutionary developing societies, Absolutely. because you, you get this tension between um, like, and you see this a lot in, in Latin America. It's like, this is a th- there's a huge tension like this in Bolivia, for example, you see this in Ecuador too, where like you have different factions of, you have different factions of the political movements where you have people who are like, okay, yeah, I'm I'm okay with just like, you know, building these highways through indigenous land or just like yeah. doing mass deforestation or like digging, doing open pit mining. And those people will be like, well, those people will be leftists, right? There'll be people who are like, okay, well, we need to do this because we need to like, you know, this is an anti-poverty measure. We have to move up the value chain. We have to increase our mm-hmm. production. But then, you know, you have the indigenous people who's like homes these are. Right. Yeah, yeah. You and, can and, you can rationalize a lot of evil shit if you've yeah, got the right yeah. intellectual backing. Yeah. Yeah, and like and this this happens like in in China too. There's like like a lot mm-hmm. of the industrialization has been absolutely devastating. Like, and 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 this this becomes a real like the the, the fact that you need forex becomes a this like incredible trap that that mm-hmm. you you sink into because it's like on, on the one hand like yeah like there are resources that you need in order to have a functioning society, but it's also that, that you can't get in, in, in your territory, but also like the cost of getting that Forex is enormous. And, and a mm-hmm. lot of times it's, it, it's, it's, it's a, it, it, it's something that just essentially destroys the revolutionary project. Yeah. What hit me when I looked at this list of uh, Vancouver's uh, economic sectors was, uh, you know, tourism being listed among the big ones. And my mind immediately went to Cuba uh, to pre-revolutionary pre-Castro Cuba yeah. And you know, pre-Castro Cuba has all these things going for it off when you when you're looking at it from like a developmental standpoint. You know, it's got this like very good productive base of you know primary resources like sugar. Uh, it has uh, great relations with the United States of America, particularly through the mafia. Uh, you know, yeah, wonderful, right? Uh, it has uh, you know, the, the tourism industry is is very successful. It's producing manufactured cigars, so it even has a secondary industry bridge. But it is still absolutely failing to develop in a way that is meaningful for the people living in Cuba. You know, pre, pre-Castro Cuba was a nightmare for most people. Uh, and that's, you know, that, that's that, that, like Steve said, you know, there's this razor thin thing between uh, risk and reward. And uh, during that, you know, during the 40s and 50s in Cuba, it was just it just made so much sense to just stick it with this impoverished extractive tourist heavy mafia friendly economy and yeah they were friendly with the u.s they could have gone technology transfers in in principle but were they actually going to uh and that's something we have to think about with our our people's republic of vancouver island is you know yeah like people are going to want our logs people are going to want our fishing american tourists are going to come here and 
go whale watching and that's going to bring in forex yeah. but are we going to be able to like leverage that and how so, would we leverage that yeah yeah and i kind of want to move the conversation to like i think people might be listening and saying like okay yeah i can see why forex would be important but like what are the specific ways in which we can acquire it but also manage it and it's like okay well Without if being I, evil, it, which we want. We, without we, being uh, evil, with, yeah, I mean, with, you can, while you, being socialists who want yeah. democracy. Um, okay, so I think if we're, I'm, I'm picturing some sort of assembly structure taking shape because I'm a libsoc, libertarian socialist, um, and uh, it could be something else. But in any case, uh, I think they should appoint fifty or so people. Some of them experts, some of them not to examine, they should do a thorough economic analysis of the entire island. And you should do it on the basis of, here are the assets we have. Here's where we want to go in terms of assets. How do we get from here to there? And one of the assets that you have is, okay, we have so many US dollars. We have so many Canadian dollars. We have reserve balances. So we need to import things. We can make some of it ourselves and we need to buy the rest of it. We can't buy all of it now. We need to cash flow some of this. We need to we need to do export-led growth as the develop the classic development econ people would say, where we say we have some industries where we can gradually and consistently ramp up to the point that they give they give us the types of money which we need in order to input capital goods the machines that build machines, to buy them, learn how to use them, and maintain them, and then build more ourselves, ideally. And over the course of, say, basically, I'm basically suggesting that Vancouver Island should have a 10-year plan. <laughs> they should have a 10-year plan for, for their economic development. And it should be as democratically decided upon as possible within the limits of like, okay, there's some experts which will obviously be needed and not everyone can do that, but um, whatever assembly structure you have should be given oversight ultimately. And you should say, um, just be really frank with it. Like we have, these are our biophysical resources now. In 10 years, they should be this. In order to get there each year, these things need to happen. We have to have this much foreign currency. We have to have this many workers involved in this industry. Um, we can change things along the way, but we're constrained by these factors. We're like, we need trade partners. We need uh, to reverse engineer some technology that we've acquired or something in order to, to educate ourselves on how to like create chips or something in the future. Um, yeah, there's like, there should be like an extremely vigorous discussion of what assets do we have? What do we need? What's our goal? And then thread together a development plan from there and then use your MMT money to marshal the resources that you currently have and that you need for like the next year, say domestically while monitoring and augmenting your foreign currency reserves and, um, using the tools of monetary policy to safeguard those reserves and economize on them in order to import what you can't yet make. 
so that you can make it in the future. I think the the thing that we should learn from the fact that like a lot of these projects haven't worked is well, I think it's twofold. One is that you have you, okay, there there there's constant sort of like there, there there's traps you have to avoid that have to do with like for example like who actually has access to the forex because this is what this is a way that like mm-hmm. you know and, and mm-hmm. also like like cause it, 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 it it's it's very very easy to like access to sort of like incidentally redevelop ruling classes when you're trying to do planning technology stuff and when you're trying when you're dealing with enormous amounts of foreign currency mm-hmm. and this is a problem and you know and in the second problem has to do with sort of like how 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 do you make sure that your economy essentially doesn't end up as a resource colony? Mm-hmm. And this has this has other components. And, and you know, and I think I think this is something that like like the, there is a lot that can be done if you control like a region of territory, but there's there's political limits on it. And the political limits have to do with you know who actually controls the sort of like vast majority of of resources and technology, and the only way to really deal with that is that like, you know, you can't, you can't sort of have like you, if, if, if you want to actually have sort of long-term stability, you can't just have your sort of like your, your like libertarian socialist councils in one country. Like that's, it's a, it's a thing that has to like keep moving and keep spreading because otherwise it, mm-hmm. it becomes, it becomes just increasingly difficult and you come under increasing pressures, you know, for, you know, in, in order to do things that you do, that you need to do in order to make sure people don't starve, in order to make sure that people have education, in order to make sure that people, you know, are able to sort of live, live their lives. And also, like, in order to make sure that you don't just annihilate the, like, annihilate the entire environment while doing this, because that's something that happens a lot when you, in these developmental estates, is that, like, you know, you, you, you get, you, 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 you get groups who, like, come in the power and are like, well, okay, we're like, we're going to be an ecological regime. And then, you know, they wind up having to, they wind up doing oil extraction and like open pit mining because that's, you know, that, that's the easiest way to, to, to get money. And I, and I think, I think like, I, I, I think it's, it's valuable that like, these are things that if, if you're serious about taking power, you have to think about, but I, I also think it's, it, it's important to keep in mind just the, 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 the the inherent limits that you have if you're just sort of an, if if you're if you're a completely isolated like if if you're a completely isolated revolutionary movement in one place it doesn't have people where that you can you know give stuff to and move stuff around between oh um, yeah I mean it, yeah. it's 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 always been kind of, I mean that's that's been like a kind of inevitable thing that like you know uh, there are there are communes in my extended family you know I've got members of my family who live on you know those little farm communes and they're not fully economically independent. Um, and I'm sure that we could find people who would be willing to say, Oh, you know, this is like, this is totally fake. This is not a real commune because they, you know, sell, uh, you know, sell sunflower seeds at the farmer's market and stuff. Uh, and that's kind of the unfortunate, that's kind of like the tough reality that, uh, Unless you manage to create a truly global revolution, as I said, unless until you've got like two thirds of the population under your umbrella, uh, you're going to have foreign relations and you're going to have foreign trade, uh, which is going to uh, it's going to be it's going to be difficult to manage. You know, you're going to have to be both. You're going to have to have like a you know a diplomatic core. That's something we're barely mentioning here, but like we're going to need to have 
diplomats coming out of this council, if we're talking about them having relations with the U.S. and Canada, uh, and you know, negotiating these trade deals. You know, these trade deals don't happen out of nowhere. Um, and uh, you know, we kind of brush this aside, but it's a it's a bit of a, it's a bit of a misperception that people tend to have that uh, the United States is pro-free trade in like an extreme sense that like any trade with the United States is done without any tariffs. Oh yeah. No, I don't think that you, if you believe that without having done a lot of research, I do not think that that is an absurd thing to believe because that is the propaganda that is passed along in common knowledge. A very quick examination of how trade works between international actors will reveal that there are thousands and thousands and thousands of tariffs active all the time in every trade deal. Yeah. And like the, <laughs> like the, 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 the big one with the U S agricultural subsidies, which mm-hmm. are just, it is, it is, it is illegal to have them. We have like just in just like billions and billions and billions of dollars of agricultural subsidies that oh, have yeah, us producing cheap food. That's like, yeah. we're not even good at making it. Like it's, it's a complete disaster. It, I mean, this, like th- this, this is just single-handedly annihilated the economies of like enormous swaths of the globe because th- because no one can compete with with American agricultural subsidies and it's you yeah. know and, and but like it, when when you join the free trade system like that's one of the carve outs that was that's 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 in the WTO is you can't have uh, subsidies for for your agriculture programs uh, except for the U.S. Yeah, and it's and, it's great, and, and by great and, I mean everyone dies. Well, and there's all sorts of like weird technical ways that you can create pseudo subsidies. You know, mm-hmm. uh, you know. Italy very famously has a price floor on wine. Uh, and this means that, you know, if you if you make a bottle of wine that nobody would buy for the minimum price, the government will buy it off of you for that price. And so there are, there are wineries in Italy that just produce wine at such a, this is so bad, nobody would buy, nobody, you'd have to pay people to drink it. Uh, but the government just buys it at this minimum set price and then throws it in a, in a giant Olympic swimming pool vat. Mm. Uh, to go rot, uh, and like there are, yeah, there, there, the trade is, you know, there, there's a lot more complex. The, the free trade is kind of a myth at the international level. Uh, it is at it's at the most cynical. Free trade as a doctrine is a cudgel used by more powerful countries that they impose that you have to do free yeah. trade with them and that they get to do protracted trade with you. Well, it's yeah. a it's well firstly like you mentioned it's a myth mm-hmm. and historically speaking we had like we had infant industries in this country that were highly protected from the very earliest days through most of the 19th century and into the 20th century and we had uh we had export led growth from infant led for infant industries in the US and that's precisely the opposite advice we now turn around and give via our imperial like apparatus from the IMF and the World Bank to, to developing countries. Yeah. Well, and the, the, and uh, like countries countries that that examined what the US was telling them to do and did the opposite are the ones that succeeded. Yes. Like yes. South Korea said, nah, fuck that. And they and they went up the value chain and they did all of the things that we said Vancouver Island should do basically. Yeah, except except uh, not being evil, they did not do that. Uh, well, they, okay, yeah. they were evil. They were yeah, evil I, for a time, and they were dictatorial. But yeah, the, in yeah. terms of their economic development plan, divorced from political reality, which is probably naive of me to say, mm-hmm. um, they took the opposite advice of the IMF yeah, in terms yeah. of that narrow scope. 
Well, yeah, and I, I think the the other thing that's kind of important here that we haven't really touched on yet is that like, so part 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 of what was going on with with South Korea's economy is that South Korea's economy was was a war economy, and it was a war economy designed to build. I mean, originally just it was it was a war economy because they were fighting a war, right? But then it became this. I mean, it was central axis of sort of the the production of the Korean War, and then it became this axis that. Uh, like it became a huge part of the American sort of arms industry in in Vietnam, and this is the same thing. Japan has this too, where both of these economies are like a huge part of the reason why they're able to develop is because they get enormous amounts of just money and then guaranteed yeah, contracts and stuff true. like that from American military development. And and this is a, this is another really big problem for like your sort of free state that like you've created, like whatever your sort of like council republic, your like autonomous mm-hmm. zone, your like indigenous confederation is that like. You need weapons, and the people who make guns are like the U.S. and Russia, and this is a real you know and and you know we've we've been talking on this show about about producing mm-hmm. like three D printed weapons, but I mean you know in terms of things yeah. like you know your like artillery right like in yes. terms of your mortars and like things like that or like you know you you can't you can't three D print to best of my knowledge. And I'm like 99.99% sure about this, that like, unless you had extremely advanced facilities and even then it's not clear to me, like, I, I, I like, I, I don't think anyone on earth has ever pre 3d printed like an anti-aircraft rocket. Like you, 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 yeah, like, you know, you I can't mean, make, you can't make stingers, you can't make man pads, you can't make like anti-tank, anti-aircraft weapons. And, not to, not to get too much into it, but like the way in which Ukraine is fighting like Russian tanks in its very specifics is kind of encouraging actually. Yeah, but like, like things that you, you like the like specific. Yeah, I mean, there's only a few companies who are making the components for these things. Yeah, so like, that's a problem. And that's like that's the, the, like the personnel launched uh, the in law or whatever things. Yeah, like the the, the anti tank and anti aircraft weapons. Like, yeah, if, if you can get them, they're effective and they they do they they do stuff. That's they're mostly just you, handed like, out from by the U.S. or the U.K. Yeah, yeah, and that's and that's that's a huge problem if you're you know not trying to like be a political colony of these two things and, stuff. and and this this is another trap that you see like you see dictators especially falling into which is that that they you know okay so like on the one hand yeah you do need weapons right like you you need you need some kind of military complex and you you need arms in order to make sure that like you know you're not like the US doesn't roll tanks across the border but simultaneously like there's there's a thing that happens a lot with this is happening particularly with petro states where you know okay so you the, the 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 U.S. is like okay, so we need this oil, right? And how how do you, how do you deal with this sort of balance payments deficits? And the answer is we just sell them like a hundred billion tanks, and we just like we just like dump F thirty fives on them. And you you can get into these scenarios where like you get these like because I mean the, the the problem with weapons, right? It's like okay, so you need them to survive, but they also they don't produce anything, right? In fact, they're, they're sort of they're sort of net economic negatives because the only thing you could do with a gun is I mean I guess you could technically hunt, but like you know the the thing you're doing with a weapon is destroying value. Yeah, like yeah, and, and I mean, and and they require maintenance. Yeah, yeah, and, you know, and, like and, these things are substantial net negatives. Yeah. yeah, and 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 you know, and and countries get sucked into these traps where, like, you know, okay, we're we're just going to keep buying American weapons because of security, or like, uh, we 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 want to invade some yeah. other country, or like, or you know, and you see this with, with Soviet weaponry too, like back back when that was a thing, and and today modern Russian weaponry, where it's like, yeah, you can you can get funneled into these traps where like the ruling class of your society just decides that it the thing that it wants to just spend his forex on his weapons and and you have to be very very like you have to be you know and, and this is the thing that happens like like evner hoaxa for example famously like makes just a bunch of bunkers right and like militarizes society and it's like well 
you know, part of this is just Hoxa being extremely weird, but like, you you have to be very careful when you're a society that is genuinely under threat that you're not sort of like mm. just throwing all of your resources into into stuff like that where mm. you it, you know it doesn't it doesn't produce anything but you know and it, yeah and also I mean this is it also is part. a it is a need like yeah like, uh, whatever the the Vancouver Economic Planning whatever group should like one of one of the objectives would frank would be military of course yeah um you would need to i don't know if you could get your hands on in-laws or man pads or anything like that but you um i think you would be foolish frankly not to distribute and train on weapons and stuff like that yeah and use, I, I, I use think, some of your forex for that yeah yeah like i th- i think like yeah it's like you have to use some of it for that and it sucks because this is something that like it, this this sucks you into the arms complex right yeah, I mean, but like Ro- Rojava, like- Rojava is using its oil revenues um, to fund like fifty percent of its expenditure. Almost is at least like in twenty twenty or the last time I checked was uh, to defense forces. Yeah, and like, and yeah, this, this is I <laughs> and mean, a lot this of that. Thing. A lot of that came from dollars, euros, and um, Turkish lira that they yeah, acquired and- through oil. Yeah, and like this, and this is the thing that, like, yeah, this, this, this is a problem if you're in your revolutionary society, surrounded by people who just literally want to murder you. <laughs> it's like stuff like this winds up happening, and you wind up like, I don't blame them. Yeah, yeah I mean, it's, it's like it's, it's obviously hard to, real. It's like, just a reality. Yeah, and I, and I think that's a you know that that that's a good example of like what happens if the revolution doesn't spread, and if you get mm. sort of like if you get isolated and contained by imperial powers who just want to murder you, <laughs> is that you wind up like. You, you you basically you you wind up fighting an endless war against both the proxy forces and the real forces of armies that are significantly larger and more powerful than you and mm-hmm. yeah and there's a, you know, a lot of times there's not much you can do about it but it's like I think you know in in terms of like like in in the school of high principle like this is why internationalism is important I mean yeah and the, the, of course obviously the other answer is you know selling out on the revolution and you know yeah. we, we we you know the, there's the example that people tend to think about of Saritza. Uh, you know, Saritza gets elected on all these like radical promises for Greece and then just doesn't do any of them. Um, and then you can look at, say, Nepal and, you know, the the communists won in Nepal and then they establish a government that's functionally, you know, it's a liberal government. Yeah, my, 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 my favorite Nepal fact is that uh, the, the OK, so the, Nepal has like 17 different like Maoist factions, but the, the guy it's who was the head yeah. of, 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 the, of the largest Maoist faction. Uh, yeah, yeah the, I, I think it's him. Is, is he's, he's the one who now lives in the mansion of the guy who used to be the Nepalese head of security. I think so. Yeah. Think and it's like, huh, huh, we've well, this is this. This has gone great. We've, we've changed the person in the mansion. <laughs> it's like <laughs> you've got to. <laughs> Yeah, and uh, I mean the and, and you know uh, not too surprisingly, uh, you know the second leader a couple about a year ago, Kiran was uh, on the verge of declaring a new people's war against the Maoist faction. Yeah, like, you know a Maoist war against the Maoists. Like, yeah, I mean that's you know you 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 end up it's yeah it's it's, it's tricky to try to like game it out so to speak because you know my. I, I I maybe I'm just squeamish. I, I am hoping for things to not happen with a river of blood. Yeah. Uh, in in life, I, I hope that uh, I hope that we don't get rivers of blood. Um, 
Oh, plan plan for war so you get you get peace. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but you like 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 Chris has said, you know, you can get trapped into like that that escalating security dilemma. Yeah. Uh, and of course, you know, investing in security doesn't actually necessarily lead to security. We have you know over a century of looking at Latin American countries that uh, investments in the military is just investments in the next civil war. Yeah. Um, or, or or you get cooed, and that, yeah, that's that's cooed. another yeah. real problem. Like like I mean, it's weird because it's like a double it's a double edged sword because like the 20th century like. There's a there's a lot of like socialist governments that come into power just from military coups, but also mm-hmm. like probably more of those governments like get overthrown by their own coups, and it's yeah. Uh, if there was yeah. if there was one lesson I learned from playing Tropico, it's that <laughs> if you try to invest more in your no matter how much you invest in your military, it only will ever get you up to fifty fifty odds of surviving a coup. Yeah, this is a, a don't have colonels and don't have generals. Yeah, like, the whole like, problem is then, then then you get captains coups. So yeah, you know, no, like, Jesus, it's always colonels. Like, yeah, it's always colonels. It's it's because they're like passed up for generalship by the next administration or something. Yeah, yeah although again, again, so, sometimes sometimes you do get like sometimes you get like your Pinochet, and sometimes you do get your captains coups, and it's like this is a. That, that guy was, that's ambition right there. When the captain coups the government, that's yeah. ambition. Like, <laughs> yeah. You know, once, I, well, once your captains have hit fuck it mode, it's yeah, like, like almost, things are bad. <laughs> yeah. That's indicative of like bigger, deeper problems. Yeah. Well, and I think like the, the Bathists are an interesting example of this because like, okay, so like the Bathists were never like good, but like, you know, the, the Bathists like originally like were kind of a mass movement, but then mm-hmm. increasingly like over time as, as they consolidate power through military sort of, revolutions like it, it becomes increasingly just the bathists are powerful because they have control of like various portions of the military and you know and like the the, the end result of this is like instead of having revolutions like you just get you just get like, all political power has nothing to do with whatever's happening in the street you get these giant protests that are like we want to go back to being part of united the the uh, uh united air republic and it just doesn't matter because the actual political power is just what happens when the army fights itself mm-hmm. and yeah i think like there's no easy solution to that other than just like don't have an armed body that's separate from just the masses of people, which is difficult to do, but yeah. also like I mean Or just yeah. arm the people somewhat. Yeah. And and you know, it's, it's, uh, it's means of violence should be more evenly distributed. Yeah. Um I will say that, that was uh, I guess part of why the, the scenario we had started off with like you've declared the People's Republic. Because the question of how you get that People's Republic feels like that's a seventy five percent of your podcast podcast episodes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, we've done we've done we've done just like a miracle has occurred, but like a revolution has occurred, and yeah. then, I don't know. They like blockaded well, I mean, the, all the you know, roads it's, it's, or something. Um, like, I, I as I like to say, it's good to have a plan for if you win. Yeah, well, you know, and, and, and I think it would like, suck to win and then fumble once you've already gotten. Yeah, like, and th- this this is something that like that actually does happen a lot, which is like you you get into the, you get into these revolutionary like moments, but then there's just sort of like no like no one has any idea what to do next, and so they sort of bungle it. Or you know you get into revolution scenarios, yeah, or, or you get into revolution scenarios where like nobody's thought about what yeah. happens next, and that that's that's another way that like yeah these these things collapse all the time. And that's another way you get like. You know, I mean, this this is in some sense like the the, the whole of the sort of yep. like the trial and error of the twenty of the the twentieth century, which most of which just sort of ended in error, is that mm-hmm. you know a bunch of people were experimenting and a lot of the stuff they tried didn't work, and there are so, lots of reasons for that. But you like you have to in order to win, you have to actually be serious about taking power, and you have to be 
you know, you, you have to be thinking strategically and, and have a, like, have at least a vision of what you're going to do before you, like, you know, like, b- before things happen, because otherwise there's just sort of, like, you, you know, you just you just get sort of mass confusion. And yeah. And, yeah. and say, what, say what you will about the fascists. Yeah. They know what they're yeah. going to do when they seize power. They're not confused uh, about it. It's more, well, <laughs> their, their problems are what you do after. Yeah. yeah, they're, they're, yeah. They're, they're not confused about that. Those first like forty eight um, hours when things start falling that, away. Like, I hope that nothing we've said. I hope that nothing we've said on this podcast kind of makes people think like, oh, they so they have like one weird trick basically to like secure secure no. your power. Like, yeah. obviously no. Um, and like, and that and that we aren't like singularly focused on acquiring forex or something. Also, yeah, no. I, I mean, this, uh, it's this just like, like yeah. it's an important lever to to have at your disposal and like, well, number one, you should know that it's important. Number two, you should have yeah. tools in place such as like, uh, running, a running, a fixed extra, uh, fixed exchange rate or something to make it a bit easier to acquire Forex uh, on the whole or, um, doing capital controls or doing price controls or something like that. And you should have these tools in mind in order to get from year one to year 10, in terms of your biophysical resources, like here's what we have, here's what we need. And, uh, you know, some of that could be military, some of that could be economic and some of that could be political. And, um, no one, like, I don't have the answers. We don't have the answers, but, um, at each step of the way, you need to find groups of people who can come together and think objectively about them. Yeah. I, I, I want, uh, yeah, it's not that I think that there is an answer. I, I'm kind of thinking about it almost a little bit parallel to like, we know that if we create our, you know, if if socialists manage to seize any amount of power, they're going to reform whatever healthcare system they're currently existing in. Uh, we know that it's going to be better because it would be hard for it to be worse. Uh, but, you know, that's making a good hospital system is not the entire thing that makes a revolution happen. It is just one of those things that you need to do and you need to think about it. And my objective here, and it's uh, a lot of my objective with, you know, making this whole magazine project is that my socialism means that we we have say over our lives. You know, that's fundamental to me, that we have say over what we do with our lives and I want to make sure that the people who are in this with me, which is hopefully everybody, I am an optimist. I'm hoping that everybody is with me on creating a, a better socialist world, that all of us are at least somewhat informed about the decisions we're making. I, I'm not actually economically trained. Uh, you know, I'm, I, I've learned this stuff as I've gone. Uh, it's not in, insurmountable. Uh, and uh, it's, you know, I, I would want the decision about how do we make a socialist economy, you know, the, the core of socialism, worker control of the means of production, that the people involved, again, hopefully everybody, uh, has, you know, at least has uh, an inkling of what's going on. I don't want people to be confused and baffled by the d- decisions being made on their behalf. That's, you know, a mm-hmm. fundamental evil of a capitalist system that... We don't know what the fuck decisions are being made for us by powerful people. Well, part of the part of the problem comes back to education because, like, people are um, the bourgeoisie have hogged, they've hoarded the knowledge of how to plan in certain respects, and I think socialists socialists will sometimes look at the body of knowledge in terms of planning an economy and say, like, well, 
because they are the only ones who know how to do that, the knowledge itself is tainted. And like, I don't need to learn this because it's evil, basically. I don't need to learn how to manage a, a currency board or do forex management because that's money and that's evil stuff. Yeah, and I, I hope mean, I hope what we've described so far says like I don't know if it's evil or not, but it's important and it should be. I think I honestly think you're going to probably probably fail if you don't uh, consider these things at each step of the way. Yeah, and and even in your like, one of the things that that you see a lot with socialist countries is they have basically have like a firewall, right, where they they try to keep a separation between the parts of their economy that like are planned and the parts of their economy that like are about moving forex around and i think like okay like uh, there are varying degrees of effectiveness of this but like this is like even even if you're like okay like we want to get rid of the economy right like we want to get rid of labor we want to get rid of all the stuff as a concept like you're gonna have to deal like uh, until until you like win right like until until you've like until you've like raised a flag over like New York, Berlin, Shanghai, like and New Delhi at the same time, right? Like you're you're gonna be you're gonna have to be dealing with this stuff. And how how you do that and how quickly you're able to to figure this out, and how quickly you're you're able to implement it, and how quickly you're able to sort of like seize control of and use the resources that you have in order to advance your political project is you know that 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 that's going to be one of the things that determines whether or not your revolution survives, no matter what it's fighting for. Mm-hmm. Like in addition to all the military stuff, um, military and economic, I think you have to just say, like, you have to get to a point economically and militarily and all the other rest of stuff to where you can just say to international powers, like, I don't need to make some moral claim to you. I've built a better mousetrap. I'm going to let the people decide. And it's like it just shows people living freely together uh, and enjoying a good standard of living, and they don't need to exploit each other to get it. And like for not everyone, but many people, that will be really appealing. And you have to have like, uh, well, more than just a diplomatic core, you have to have like an entire, like a full court international push to say, like, it's just a better mousetrap. It's like, it's, um, I don't need to focus on moral claims about like, well, it's better because you should just care about people because of like, you should care about people more than capitalism permits because it's just morally right. Um, that may be the case, but also people want to get paid and they want to be treated well and have a decent standard of living at the same time. And we can do it. So here's, so here's how, like you've, You've shown them specific steps you've taken, and you've shown them the material standard of living that is shared democratically. And um, it's not just like a state giving handing things out to people. It's like a a um, true industrial democracy where it's like you you get plugged in, you make decisions each along the way, and um, yeah, basically that. <laughs> Yeah, and I think I, th- I think I think that's a pretty good note to to end on as a a a a thing that we want and things that are going to have to be components of it, and also I guess thinking about 
you know, like rejecting theories about money as incomplete that don't deal with the fact that you don't have all the resources in your country and you in fact need other things to acquire them that you cannot simply create into existence. Yeah. Do you two have anything else you want to say before I guess you move into plugs? I, I mean, like, like I said, I mean, I, I, you know, we, we, this may have sounded like a whole bunch of, you know, high minded theoretical egghead crap, but again, I am, I'm not formally educated on this stuff. Uh, this is stuff that I have learned and participated in, uh, as a socialist first and foremost, and it's been driven, uh, from the get go, at least for me, from, um, a really fundamental desire for egalitarian, for egalitarianism and for people having a say in their own lives. And, uh, I, I hope that the people, uh, who have stuck with us through this, uh, who didn't know these concepts before, uh, feel a little bit more equipped to participate in a discussion uh, about um, how you would handle these things. And as, as I kind of alluded to, this scales all the way down to, you know, uh, 12 hippies on a farm. Yeah. Uh, you know, this, this, <laughs> this scales yep. all the way up until you've got a total, total global communism for pretty much anything below that. Uh, this, this, these principles scale. And uh, I, I, I hope that people feel um, more able and more willing to uh, engage both, first of all, you know, to, to tell liberals to, you know, shut the fuck up, uh, that I should have a say over how I participate in the economy, even when that's things like Forex that seem very abstract and far away. Like, yep. I, I am, I'm a person who's affected by this, therefore I've got a stake, therefore my opinion matters. Uh, and that you you can get there, you can learn, and you should be allowed to participate in that. And yeah, the, this this is what I'm trying to create is you know that socialists do not feel like they can they'll just get browbeaten out of the room of a discussion because some liberal nerd pushed up their glasses a whole bunch and spun their bow tie and then <laughs> sense of bullshit. Like you, no, you, it is your life and. Uh, you have a right to have an opinion on it. And this is not an insurmountable thing to, it's, it's hard. I want to be clear here. This is hard and I want, but I want you in the discussion. Well said. Yeah. So I guess speaking, speaking of uh, things that people are involved in, uh, I can, I can do transitions like this because I'm a professional. Um, yeah. Do you, do you two want to talk a bit about your magazine? Sure. Like we mentioned at up top, we're, uh, Kyle and I are both co-editors of Strange Matters magazine, and we're in the middle of a fundraiser right now. You can find the fundraiser at the URL tinyurl.com slash strangematters. No, no dashes or anything. Um, you can also follow us on Twitter at strange underscore matters. And the magazine itself is going to be a, we're a literary magazine and each issue we're, we're, publishing in both print and digital and the print issue one is about 300 pages and it's split in half between the front pages which is um topics like economics philosophy politics um more technical fields and then the back pages is art um uh like culture reviews um Anthropology is a anthropology like uh, more sort. We we kind of attach it to the word meaning, like meaning <laughs> development, and um, and 
There's a middle resting spot, which is actually called the futon, which is a play on, a play on the word fuyaton, which is like kind of a resting spot between those two halves where there's going to be short pieces of usually of humorous nature. And um, overall, it's going to cover a wide range of topics. And you can find out more of us. You can find out more about us on our fundraiser on our website, strangematters.coop. We got a couple articles already up on strangematters.coop. Uh, we have a Steve wrote an amazing piece explaining a, some very, uh, in very layman's terms, some arguments about what inflation is and why we should care about it. You know, it's very quite good. Yeah, very relevant right now. Uh, we have a truly delightful um review of of very contemporary very recently made cyberpunk works uh by elizabeth sandifer author of neo reaction of basilisk which anybody who listens to this podcast needs to read neo reaction of basilisk uh and she did us the wonderful favor of doing a pop culture review for us uh we've yeah we've also got a, a work uh by the editors uh words for our present reality about what how how can we discuss what actually exists in the world and what are the shortcomings with our current with just like the basic levels of our discourse and how can we advance beyond beyond this difficulty and it's you know it's something that sounds like it's supposed to be this very high level philosophy but we've met i i think uh I don't want to take too much credit for this because I, I was not the main writer on it uh i think that uh, we've successfully managed to uh bring it down to a to a, a lower brow level uh you know to a to a a level that uh doesn't require you to have 18 letters after your name of various college degrees <laughs> uh we also managed to publish a piece by a russian dissident and we I'm, I'm very excited for the the works that people are going to see in the future from us we've got a history of black cooperative movements uh we've i, I wrote a nice little ditty about uh, colonialism in modern board games uh I'm I'm very excited for people to get the chance to read these and uh you know it's all kind of in the service of us creating a more of us democratizing the socialist world and making it making it meaningful making it useful and also making it pleasurable for people to be socialists and to fight for a, a freer and more equitable world. Yeah, do you two, do you two want people to find you on social media and if so where? <laughs> Okay. You can say no to this. People do sometimes because cursed <laughs> hell site. Okay. I well, we don't have social media. So. <laughs> Your Kyle's not really on social media. Uh, I am on some social media, so you can find uh, you can find me at at Capim in Wackham, and I'll spell that out because it's kind of confusing. <laughs> at C A P M N W A C C M. <laughs> spelling your own username oh boy. um right. yeah so strange matters is our our campaign will run through this month and it's going pretty good so far but we can use uh every little bit of support goes a long way so yeah find find us at our website and also the fundraiser yeah we're we're not getting paid uh, just to be clear, this is the we we need to pay the authors. We need to pay for the printers. But you know, this is not us <laughs> trying to make a quick buck. This is us trying to make sure we we are not willing to accept paying our writers substandard yeah. writing yeah, fees. Yeah, we're going to that pay our bullshit. writers higher than market rate as uh, on principle because we think the market rate is just too low. 
It really is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, um, oh, and by the way, our, we're, I think I mentioned it, but we're a workers cooperative. So we're a hundred percent worker owned in control. There's no, there are no levels of employment or ownership. We're all horizontal. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, go, go check out strange matters. Um, yeah. Thank, thank you to both for, thank you both for joining us. It was a wonderful Thanks. time, Chris. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Yeah. And uh, if you want to find more of us, uh, we're at Happens Here Pod on Twitter and Instagram. I keep saying Instagram. I've never actually, I'm not on Instagram. So I, I've been told we have one. I've never interacted with it. Uh, yeah. And uh, Cool Zone Media has our other shows. Go listen to them. Uh, they're good. And we work a lot on them. All right. Bye bye. <laughs> Goodbye. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Imagine you ask two people the same exact set of seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver. And this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including actress and star of the mega hit sitcom Friends, Courtney Cox. You can't go around it, so you just go through it. This is a roadblock. It's going to catch you down the road. Go through it. Deal with it. Comedian, writer, and star of the series Catastrophe, Rob Delaney. I shouldn't feel guilty about my son's death. He died of a brain tumor. It's part of what happens when your kid dies. Intellectually, you'll understand that it's not your fault, but you'll still feel guilty. Alt-rock icon, Liz Fair. That personal disaster wrote Guyville. So everything comes out of a dead end. And many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. Mother's Day is right around the corner, and in true She Pivots fashion, we're highlighting moms who've dedicated their lives and their pivots to supporting mothers. 
The iconic Christy Turlington will join us to talk about launching Every Mother Counts after pivoting from her 90s supermodel days. And later, the co-CEOs of Baby to Baby will share how they're addressing the needs for millions of babies and moms. So tune in and subscribe to She Pivots. New episodes out every Wednesday. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, it could happen here, and it's currently happening there. There being Ukraine, which is in the midst of an invasion by the Russian government. I'm Robert Evans. This is a podcast about bad things and how to make them better. I'm joined as often by Garrison and Chris, my co-hosts, and we are talking about some of the advice, good and bad, that's been going around on social media about how to disable and destroy armored vehicles. This is something we've kind of waited to do until the conflict was a little bit more of a mature state. But in brief, if you have been following what's been happening in Russia through the lens of social media or what's been happening in Ukraine through the lens of social media, one thing that has happened is in the early stages of the invasion, a whole bunch of people flocked, particularly to Twitter, uh, but also not this did not just stay on Twitter. There were a large number of mainstream news articles published on the subject of the things people were saying to talk about different ways civilians could disable uh, Russian armored vehicles or otherwise stymie and thwart uh, the progress of Russian military units through their cities. Um, and this has been accompanied by things like the Ukrainian government giving out information on how to make Molotov cocktails. We talked about this in our Molotov cocktail episode and putting out really neat infographics on where to throw Molotov cocktails to disable armored vehicles. Um, but it's also come with a lot of bad advice that I don't want people who are maybe looking at the potential of urban combat happening in their future to take away from this conflict because there's also a lot of disinfo. So that's what we're talking about today. Yes. And I guess one of the first places to probably discuss this urban combat idea is the probably the guy who's tried to make kind of a career out of talking about urban combat, which would be sure John Spencer, mm-hmm. who, who wrote a relatively viral Twitter thread on this he topic sure and has been writing about this thing for the past few years. Um, he's uh, he's the, the chair of urban warfare studies at West Point's Modern War Institute and served for like a quarter of a century as an infantry soldier, uh, including two deployments into Iraq. And yeah, the past few years, he's tried to kind of make a name for himself as the guy who writes about urban combat. And yeah. uh, obviously, since this was happening, uh, largely when Russia started invading uh, Kiev, John Spencer put put together some of his thoughts that went pretty viral on this on this said topic. Yeah. And it's it's frustrating. You've got a quote in here from one of the articles about who he was giving out that says some of his advice, such as preparing simple Molotov cocktails, is already being str- seen on the streets of Kiev, which is kind of framing it as if Spencer advised the Ukrainians yeah, to make Molotovs. No. Absolutely <laughs> not true. Before he made that thread, the government was urging people to resist. And also like Molotov cocktails got their name from people in Finland, not super far from Ukraine, resisting the Russian military in a very similar way to how they're being used by Ukrainian civilians now. Yeah. Um, what I I believe what John Spencer did, he's a guy with some qualifications, um, certainly like not a, a random person. We'll talk about random people giving advice too on Twitter. But he's also, all none of his advice is new. None of it is from him. None of it is counterintuitive. A good deal of it is bad. 
and most of what he said that is good is just him pulling things from U.S. military combat manuals and from Ukrainian military combat manuals and then putting it up in social media in order to go viral and try to get another book deal by making it look as if he is giving advice that is being adopted in real time, which is not what is happening. Yeah. I mean, like a good good instance of this is, yeah, just claiming that they're making Molotov cocktails due to his advice. I mean, there's a picture in that very article that was taken before he even posted that thread. So it's like, no, they're, they're, people know how to make Molotov cocktails. That's not hard to find out. In a lot yeah. of cases, the Ukrainian Ukrainian government was giving out instructions on how to do it. And I mean, and if you if you look at this picture, um, it looks very similar to a lot of a lot of like the 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 almost like small defensive weapons factories that we saw across the states in 2020. You mm-hmm. would often see just collections of bottles uh, just ready to be thrown, all kind of laid out mm-hmm. in 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 melt crates, very similar to, to this photo. Now there was there was less actual Molotov cocktails, but the way that this is whole, the way that this is all set up looks looks very similar to any kind of insurgency tactics of being like, yes. yeah, there's going to be spontaneous on the ground organizing because people are just kind of naturally gifted at that. And on a on an objective level, Molotov cocktails have a place on an urban battlefield. They can be useful weapons for disabling armored vehicles, for causing distractions, for injuring and even sometimes uh, killing soldiers they are they are capable of doing that and they that's part of why the ukrainian government put out these guides showing like where to huck the sons of bitches in order to disable you know transports and armored vehicles and whatnot now that said attempting to attack a military column with a molotov cocktail in most circumstances is very close to suicidal and i've watched a number of videos of ukrainians do it and the times that seem to be most successful is when you have areas where the Russians are attempting to establish control. You have small groups of vehicles that are moving down residential streets. You have a significant amount of traffic, of civilian traffic, occurring alongside those military convoys. And as they pass the convoy, a civilian hucks a Molotov. Or as they pass a building, a civilian hucks a Molotov. Um, And those seem to be, broadly speaking, the situations in which people have kind of gotten away with it. We don't have any kind of I'm not aware of any kind of solid uh, overarching analysis of all of the use of Molotovs in this. But that is, broadly speaking, a potentially effective way to use a Molotov cocktail uh, in order to degrade military capacity of an occupier. What doesn't work and what Spencer and a number of other people suggested is is huck and paint at tanks uh, or other armored vehicles. Yeah. (laughs) And that may be surprising to a lot of people. I think there's a lot of folks who want to believe this, uh, want to believe that 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 could really work because it it's like Ewok shit, right? It I mean, feels it, like the kind of thing insurgents should police. be doing. Yes, but here is the thing: when you have police officers who are tear gassing an area, and you huck a bunch of paint, and you get it over their face masks, and they cannot see, it reduces their ability to tear gas you for a while. It makes them uncomfortable. It makes them have less fun and it damages gear. When you huck a bunch of paint at an armored vehicle, the armored vehicle will return fire with a 50 caliber mounted Dashka or some other similar gun, which fires bullets that are large enough to take chunks the size of your head out of concrete and you will be torn apart and your organs liquefied in a hail of metal. Um, Meanwhile, the paint that you are attempting to throw at that vehicle is almost certain to have no impact on it. Um, Not only are you unlikely to get close enough to use the paint, because you have to be considerably closer 
to do that than you have to with a Molotov in most situations. But also, tanks are built with the understanding that it is possible that one or more of the ways in which they see will be obstructed. Tank drivers are trained to drive blind. There are ways of utilizing tanks when vision is obstructed because in the kinds of fights that tanks are built to get into, they are often in situations where there is so much smoke around them, so many things bursting. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. That there is effectively zero visibility, which is why when Spencer started talking about people throwing paint at tanks, a number of tank drivers came out and said, that's actually horrible advice. (laughs) Like They don't work that way. And I was... I was chatting with a couple of people. Um, There was one fellow, a former Green Beret named Mike Nelson, who was posting about Spencer and very angry that he was basically copying material directly from stuff published by the Ukrainian government. And then like getting up anytime journalists or media figures would comment about Ukraine would like like, there's a nasty post here where uh, Ann Cabrera, who I think is some sort of reporter, was like, I feel heartsick upon the latest news out of Mariupol. My God, just like expressing horror at a humanitarian tragedy. And Spencer posts a link to his personal website and says, me too. Not sure if you saw my mini manual for the Urban Defender, but it is available in English and Ukrainian. Oh, boy. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh-huh. it's, so like, anyway, grifty shit like that. But Yeah, because that, and it's all that's very different than also like throwing paint at like, a squad car or a, like a riot, yes. like a riot truck that's coming through. Because if you're going to obscure their vision, the worst that they can do is crash into a wall. They're not going to start firing uh, massive uh, head yes. explosion rounds from a central. Uh, yeah, so they they do not like. For one thing, the like the police, as bad as they can be, their default when they come under any kind of like attack is not to start firing machine guns wildly in all directions not not yet <laughs> which <at> russian <laughs> soldiers do <laughs> yeah. not yet at yeah. least um but you know the other thing i was chatting with uh matthew mora who's a is has been one of the guys who's been yelling at spencer on twitter matthew was a marine corps tank commander and was blown up in afghanistan so he was in a tank that was attacked several times and eventually destroyed um, so he's, he has some firsthand knowledge about what works and does not work against tanks. And one of the things he pointed out is that the people who destroyed his tank put together, I don't know, $100, $200 worth of various accelerants and random scrap metal and made a bomb that destroyed an Abrams tank. That works a lot better than paint. Yeah. And it's it's the kind of thing where... I think one of the things that's frustrating here is you've got a lot of these like American kind of military academic guys. And I know Spencer served, but that doesn't necessarily mean much. It doesn't mean just being deployed to Iraq doesn't mean you did anything. But they were deployed and maybe they did see urban combat. But I have watched United States soldiers in an intense urban combat environment. Uh, And most of what they did was be inside of MRAPs because it's very hard to blow those up while the Iraqi military did a great deal of the fighting. And when U.S. soldiers did engage in fighting, they did so with absolute air supremacy and with artillery supremacy, Um, which isn't to say that it wasn't dangerous, but it is a profoundly different situation than engaging in urban combat when the airspace is contested and when you do not have artillery supremacy. So what does that mean in terms of like what can people actually take away that's useful from this? Um, Well, on an individual level, some things have been extremely effective. Ukrainian territorial defense militias have been very effective at doing things like picking up small arms, going out in small patrols into uh, rural environments around the area where Russian troops are moving in small convoys and oftentimes 
because of the way the advance went, you would have a single or a couple of Russian munitions trucks, essentially alone and unsupported, trying to find their way around. Um, you had civilians doing stuff like turning signs around, like removing yeah. signs. Which they were instructed to by yeah. various Ukrainian officials as well. Yes, yes. And which I'm sure some people just started doing because it seemed like a good idea. Um, but that sort of shit causes them to burn fuel, causes them to abandon vehicles. You had these kind of independent groups of farmers towing away abandoned vehicles. You had small raiding parties attacking convoys and attacking isolated units. You had cases where, you know, Russian military units early in the fight would get into Kiev uh, kind of on accident and be ambushed by territorial defense units and wiped out. And those are all very effective examples of of decentralized kind of ground up resistance against a, a, a major military force. Now, one thing we don't know that is important if you think about the potential that you might have to endure something like this is we have no idea what the casualties were like among those. Yes, yeah. it is a total black box. And it's it's probable that part of why Russian forces did the war crime they did in Bukha um, was because they had an attitude that all civilians were insurgents, which is, you know, what happens when you have kind of a people's war, which doesn't justify an act of genocide. Um, but it is something people should keep aware of when you start fucking with the signs and ambushing the convoys and throwing Molotovs. One of the things that will happen is it will accelerate the violence that is being done. Yeah, and it, it makes to them the seem civilian more population. of a justified target in some, you know, propaganda lens. Yeah, exactly. And that doesn't mean, like, uh, it's you should resist if you are invaded. Um, but these are things that also should be noted is this is what happens when you resist, right? This, this is what a, a modern war of this type looks like. Other things that I, I'm not sure if they've been effective, but they're certainly not bad strategies, is the construction of a lot of vehicle barriers, tank traps, That was what blockades. I was talking about next, is, yeah, 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 is, yeah. Is, is the barricade thing both in what we've been kind of seeing or being speculated about in the East, and then how we've seen, you know, barricade setups a lot in the past few years in various resistance movements to, a, you know, a variety of success levels and non-success levels. Yeah, yeah. And 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 it, these are like you know b barriers, tank traps have a very long history in in warfare, so they absolutely can be and have been effective many many times on the battlefield. So this is not an area of does this thing work, but it is a question of like and and this is something we just don't seem to have perfect data on. Did it did it particularly play a role in what's happening here? And yeah. um, that's harder to tell, uh, and is probably going to be different, you know, depending on the tactical in area you're talking about, and which kind of like theater you're talking about. But, um, you know, one thing that's like the way in which these kind of barriers, hedgehogs and like whatnot work is they're they're an area denial tool. It's like uh, an area denial tool for vehicles um, and it makes military units slow down. It makes them take more time in clearing area. Um, they have to tow things away or blow them up. Um, and they also can provide, depending on the type of thing, cover for infantry in, in urban combat situations, which obviously can cut both ways a little bit. But there's a reason why you see these kinds of things in every conflict and also a reason why people put them up in protests. It can be very useful to deny the vehicles of the enemy access to an area temporarily. And a big pile of metal always does that 100% yeah. of the time. It requires something to deal with it. Yeah. That was something that was very kind of considered when there was an increase in like vehicular attacks uh during 2020 of like a lot of vehicles ramming into massive massive marches there was definitely a concerted effort to try to block off streets where stuff is happening whether that be like you know corkers for marches of people who specifically block off 
the sides of streets with their own cars to follow the march around or, you know, less, less effective barricades, like throwing a chain link fence in the middle of the street, which yeah. is, I guess, better than nothing sometimes, but also maybe not the most effective thing. Yeah. Um, in terms of trying to, like, build layered barricades, that's not just, you know, one flimsy wall, but it's a, a series of things that can compress down. And when you're talking about barricades in a, a kind of militant situation, there's there's broadly speaking got to be two purposes. One of those purposes is to create a, a to add to the friction that you are attempting to create for the enemy. And that's that's all in search. All insurgent warfare is about creating friction, right? Because friction degrades assets. It, it's over time. It, it, it caused basically like, OK, so say you blocked off a bunch of roads and you've added 15, 20 miles to the transport distance that this convoy has to go. Well, generally speaking, in the case of war, when we talk about war, it, it's assumed that about one mile is in terms of wear and tear, like 10 plus miles um, because of how much more difficult the strain on vehicles is in those situations. So you've added a great deal more strain on the vehicles. That increases the chance that one of them's going to blow a tire. One of them's going to crack an axle. One of them's going to have an engine block go like blow or whatever. Um, which means over time, if you're doing this a bunch, if you're setting up barricades and you're effectively increasing or all the amount of travel time or at least the amount of idling time that forces have to go in by a significant amount, you're guaranteeing a certain number of those vehicles are going to break or be rendered inoperable in that time. And you're also – the other thing that they do is they allow you to deny area and funnel the enemy into a specific – to, into a place more advantageous for you, right? And this can be advantageous if you're trying to set up an ambush, uh, if you're just trying to buy time for forces to move back to a better position. Um, it can, you know, there's a number of, of, of uses for it. But if you set up a, a series of obstacles like this and guarantee that they're going to have to find an alternate route and you know, broadly speaking, because it's your terrain, what kind of route they're going to take, um, then you could do stuff like drop, throw a drone at them. Or if because of the the damage you've done to the roads and the difficulty, you've, how difficult you made it to advance, they wind up just parked for a long time. That's also a great situation to bomb people with a fucking drone, which is by far the most effective weapons unit that we have seen built by civilians in this war, by the way. Uh, uh -huh. It's not Molotovs. It's certainly not paint. It is uh, civilian volunteers who put together combat drones using generally DJI drones that they have upgraded with uh, thermal imaging uh, cameras in order to see at night. And they have used 3D printed parts in order to drop bombs from. Um, and they have done carried out for weeks now, hundreds of extremely successful nighttime raids on Russian positions. And this has been effective for a couple of reasons. One of them is that the Russian military does not widespread have effective night vision. Um, we don't need to get it. The, the reasons for this are complicated based in a mix of like appropriations, corruption, issues with the technologies they do have, yada, yada, yada. But they do not have the capacity in large scale to carry out operations at night to the extent that the Ukrainians do. Um, and so you get when nighttime comes, these forces that were advancing in places like Kiev clustering up and huddling for the night. And then these hunter killer drones would sneak in at night and they are impossible to fucking see in daytime. I can tell you from experience at night, they're ghosts just dropping bombs on on armored vehicles and on groups of soldiers. Um, and these, you know, what you have seen with these units, which have been integrated, they are like started out as civilian volunteer groups. So they have been integrated into the military to a significant extent. And I think what you do have 
some of this is conjecture on my part, but you've had a lot of Russian officers and generals killed, generally because they have been communicating over open phone lines. And I suspect some of what's been going on is when they figure out where one of these guys is, they send some of these fucking drone units in to blow them up because it's not hard if you know where someone is to kill them with a drone in this way. I think the other thing to talk about in terms of you know building obstacles, building barricades, is the whole cover versus concealment thing, where a lot mm-hmm. of people think that if they hide behind a barricade, they're now impervious, um, which yeah. obviously isn't true if a drone's going to get you, and obviously isn't true for a large a large number of the munitions that get fired, whether they be bullets or tank rounds. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, and I, I think that's something in videos I have watched of Russian soldiers responding to contact. You have seen a lot of people in ambushes that they lost hiding behind vehicles, um, which if it's an armored vehicle, definitely can protect you from small arm fire. But if somebody shoots that vehicle with a with a javelin, you may find yourself next to a cooking off tank. Um, and I've seen shit like people hiding behind fucking fences, which is terrible to hide behind. Um, failing to go to ground, which is always your best bet is to kind of get behind a berm or something, get low to the fucking ground. And it, it's it's interesting to me, a lot of the worst videos of responding to contact that I've seen on the Russian side have been their, the Rosgardia units. I'm, I'm not great at pronouncing Russian, but they are essentially police special forces units. That actually makes sense. <laughs> yeah. They have every video I've seen of these guys handle being ambushed very poorly because they're not trained for that. They're trained to go bust into a house and arrest somebody, you know? Like, yeah, this is not where they're what they're supposed to be doing. The, the other thing that Spencer really focuses on is this whole like um, uh, sniper idea of of being afraid of someone of someone just cutting you down from above, which obviously kind of is, you know, more, more of a thing with the drone stuff as well. But this idea of not even being good at firearms, but just having the threat of taking fire from somewhere that you can't see. Um, yeah. In terms of like knowing your terrain better than whatever invading force does and knowing how to set up spots where it's it's less you're less likely to get shelled um i mean yeah and that's that's very i mean this is very basic and old you know military (laughs) doctrine but this is like you know the the way a sniper can work in a dense urban environment is you have a large number of guys and they are trying to move to a specific area and if they take fire um that limits their options from forward movement unless they're willing to just risk getting hit. And generally they're not. And then you find yourself kind of holding up for time to take out the sniper, which can be an involved and difficult process for just a single sniper. And yeah, that's definitely a thing like that. You don't have to be the fucking uh, Chris Kyle in order to effectively work in that kind of situation. Now, what makes that effective? Because if you just have a sniper attacking police officers or soldiers in an urban environment, generally speaking, there exists the ability to deal with that pretty fucking quickly. But if you have small units of snipers, kind of of oftentimes just like civilians with hunting rifles who are doing that within the context of soldiers also being resisted by other soldiers and dealing with like an active combat environment, then yeah, a handful of people with rifles can be a significant force multiplier. It's a lot extra to deal with. And I suspect shit like that has been part of why you have seen cities like Mariupol resist so long under overwhelming force is that there's a a pretty wide comprehensive amount of of resistance going on in those areas um and yeah a, a single person 
if they're not like the only person engaging with the enemy in that in that area um, can make it a lot harder for them to effectively respond to contact. I think the the last thing I wanted to kind of get into today is the whole, I mean, this, this kind of ties into the weaponized unreality aspect of being like all of these people who are giving, you know, unsolicited advice on Twitter.com, whether they be John Spencer, whether they be, you know, the wife of a former Marine, whether they be there we you go. Know, tank mechanics, whatever, like everyone's, everyone's doing this now and it's all seen as like completely valid, right? We're giving instructions on how to do urban insurgency online. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is totally fine. Yet when, you know, pr- when information from Hong Kong gets used in protest kind of, uh, propaganda for ur- urban insurgency instructions, then it's like international, like organized, t- like, terrorism yeah yeah um, if, if you're you know, telling people how to use fucking laser pointers yeah so like the the selective thing how you're like okay we're allowed to tell people how to do urban insurgency right now but when this is over or in the past it's it's, it's not allowed right you have john spencer who i doubt would be giving i, I doubt was a big fan of any black lives matter demonstration mm-hmm. um just yeah just I, I don't know personally but <laughs> but i mean <laughs> i certainly doubt was giving people instructions on how to disable bearcats yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I don't think he was giving instructions on how to ambush police officers or, or you know, anything like that so you had this whole like coalition of people on twitter.com giving all this advice out how to do urban insurgency and whatever while also you know whenever something is is happening like that where they live it is that that is obviously bad and obviously not a good thing whether you know for you know you could talk about whatever like ideological drive people have but i think this is just an interesting thing worth talking about in terms of yeah. how we will off we will view you know this type of discussion of urban insurgency is always like a bad thing right it's always this thing that like terrorists do you're helping you know you're you're always you're rooting for the destruction of civilization or whatever um then it just takes a few things for you to get you know an instructor at west point to start, you know, posting threads to help sell his new book on these very same topics. Yeah. I mean, there's, I think, a little degree to which I might push back on some of that. Not necessarily with Spencer, but I can remember during, like, the Fed War in Portland, which was the the, probably the part of Portland that, like, most people are aware of when you had a bunch of federal agents snatching people. It was the most warlike part of the summer. Yeah. You you had for this brief period of time a, a lot of folks because I, I took that part in true. this like giving true. out advice on Twitter to respond to and handle police munitions um, that went I think that certainly went more viral than it would have gone in a different sort of situation. That's true. Um, and and I think you do have I think part of what you're seeing in Ukraine and this is just sort of a general thing that happens online is when something a, 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 a news moment blows up in a way that is like big enough it disrupts the norms and suddenly for a while you can talk about things like how to disable government armored vehicles and fight like yeah you know Re- reality suddenly becomes so much bigger and yeah. what is what is acceptable discourse suddenly yeah. expands out much bigger than what it usually does it becomes a lot more permeable and i, I do think broadly like we're shitting on spencer here because He's frustrating to me. Um, but I, I do think that like really, really broadly, um, it's good when stuff like it's good for people to think about, even if I, I don't I, I certainly don't. I certainly do not want there to be. I don't want anyone listening to this who has not experienced urban warfare to experience urban warfare. I will. Yeah, absolutely. Not. I will. I will say that right now. But it is not bad for people to be thinking about and talking about the ways in which a civilian population can do damage to an invading organized military force. That's not a bad discourse to exist, and it's not bad for people to be thinking in this way, and it's not bad for the 
people who are potentially in power to have that in the back of their heads, you know? Yeah. I mean, like the one of the first things you sent me when I started working for Rick Adapt and Here was the was the city is not neutral piece um, on, yeah. on why urban co combat is is hard. Um, so it's yeah, it's horrible. Def it's definitely <laughs> yeah. it's the thing that yeah, it's it's always it's it's worth thinking about. But you don't want to. It's, we're not trying to wish it on anybody. And I think mm -hmm. you can you can look at all of like the weirdos on the internet who have like you know the, this you know there's some degree of like Nazis who have done this, but also just like random other people who've like flown to Ukraine to help join fight off the Russians because mm -hmm. they think it's going to be cool and they'll be able to work with the Azov Battalion or something who then get stationed to basically be cannon fodder because they're this like 20 year old from America who's never actually held a gun before. I, I hope that one's true. It, it, it is just like a post because if it's true, then it means that someone in the Ukrainian government is consciously making the choice to use wannabe Azov veterans as cannon fodder, which is, which very is funny, funny <laughs> extremely funny if it's happening. Right. We don't. That's not that's not confirmed. Certainly. A, a percentage, probably not an insignificant percentage, of dudes who have done shown up to do this have like been like, "Oh my God, what the fuck?" Um, some of them, I'm sure, just didn't have much experience. I'm sure some of them were dudes who had experience being on the side with overwhelming air power, um, and were like, "Oh fuck." But you also do. It's fair to note, like the the stories of people like having like freaking out go viral. Um, there's plenty of videos of like mixed foreigner units in heavy combat, including a bunch where you can hear U.S. and British dudes like yeah, fighting absolutely. the Russia. Like because a lot there's a lot of people who have legitimate like hard combat experience who have have volunteered to go do this. Yeah, the the one thing I also do find kind of uncomfortable is, I mean, not it's not super unlike what what we're doing now, though we're trying to come at it from a more uh, like critical standpoint, but like. Americans who maybe have gone to a protest or two, but no real experience just going on Twitter.com and talking about yeah. how they think beating an army is uh, best done. <laughs> how that works. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and like, you know, if, if you look at like the, the OK, like. The, the times that like the U.S. has actually attempted to fight its own army, right? Mm -hmm. Like the, the last time this happened was the LA, LA riots in 92 and they got their shit pushed in like it. It 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 went really really badly for the people on the. It streets. was really ugly. There was a lot yeah. of bodies. Yeah, and like and you know and part part of what you know and I I will say like part of what's I guess useful about this is like yeah this is I mean this is a thing that is I mean I wasn't alive for it but like a boat like Robert you were alive for that like like that 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 is a thing like in living memory the army has been deployed oh, yes. on American soil and one of the things that went wrong is that the people on the ground had basically no time. And this is something you can read from from like the army's accounts of this is that like the, the people that they were dealing with had no tactical experience whatsoever. They did it. They had no conception of tactics and the army was able to sort of very quickly crush them. Yeah. And, you know, if, if you don't want that to happen to you. Yeah. Like there, 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 there is a way in which this stuff is important to be thinking about. But also like, dear God, that is the worst shit. Like, yeah. yeah. You don't want that. Here, here's what's what's important to understand about that. Any time you are dealing with any kind of conflict, like physical conflict that involves violence, and and that can be as narrow as like a protest, you know, where people are squaring off with the cops, or an actual like full on military conflict, the winner is the person who is most disruptive to the enemy's Oda loop, right? 
um, observe, uh, orient, decide, act. It's the loop that you go through when you are trying to decide how to act in any kind of a kinetic situation. Um, on the streets in a protest, one of the things where I where we have all seen people be the most successful against cops is when you change the rules on them, is when they are in a situation they did not anticipate being in because they tend to freak out and they tend to respond ineffectively, right? You do not want to, if you see them preparing to act in a certain way because they believe you are doing a specific thing, you ideally do not then do the thing they are preparing for because that is a situation in which you're going to wind up battering yourself against a riot line, right? Yep. Um, that's what the that's the core of the move be like water thing from Hong Kong is the idea that do not engage them in a way they are prepared for. And that yep. is, that that is a that is a piece of advice, broadly speaking, that's just as true in a war as it is in a protest situation. Do not meet but them on their own terms. <laughs> what this also means is that you don't want to be playing by a set of rules that are ineffective in the situation you're getting into. So like when you had protesters in 93 in LA engaging with the military, they were playing by the rules of how do you deal with cops? And suddenly they were dealing with soldiers. And yeah. boy, howdy, do, are the rules different, you yeah. know? Um, and likewise, the Russian military was trained and blooded to a large extent in conflicts in places like Syria, where again, they had air supremacy, um, they had artillery supremacy. They were backing the state that was fighting against these insurgents. Uh, and so their soldiers gained the combat experience they had with every advantage in their pocket. Um, meanwhile, the Ukrainian military, if you're talking really about like, because we've talked about a lot of little things that have maybe had an impact on the conflict here and there. One of the things that's had the biggest impact on how the Ukrainian military has responded and and comported itself in this war so far versus the Russian is for years, eight years since this conflict started, the Ukrainian military has developed a posture of having soldiers sign up for these brief contracts, sending and rotating them through the battleground in the Donbass, so that when this war started, they had a huge number, more than anyone else in Europe, of combat veterans who got their experience fighting against a peer adversary when they did not have supremacy in artillery or air support when they engaged them. Um, and then the Ukrainian military very intelligently spread these guys out amongst their 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 units, uh, which is what you want to do. Any military is going to want to like spread out your veterans among units because you're not everyone's not going to be a combat veteran, but you want some guys who know what it's like to be shot at in every kind of unit that might get shot at because they stiffen the back of everybody else. And this is what so again, when when the war started, to get back to what I'm saying, the Russian military entered preparing for a police action, like the ones they carried out in Chechnya, um, like what they did have done for Assad in Syria, and they got a war. And the Ukrainians came into that fight prepared for a war. So you, you, it, 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 I think one of the things that is important when you look at, consider any kind of possibility of being involved in a conflict, is you want to know what are the rules your opponent is going in ready to abide by, right? What are the things they are expecting to happen? What is kind of the rubric with which they are looking at what they expect to occur in this conflict? And by God, you want to be going in there with a different one, you know? Um, and that, again, depending on how you do it, that can go badly or that can go really well. Because like I said, if you're, if you're going and prepared to fight cops and you wind up dealing with soldiers, that's not great. Um, but if you have prepared if you are able to kind of lock your enemy into the kind of conflict that they're not ready to face, um, 
then generally speaking, you'll win. We have 20 years of experience in the war on terror of more or less that going down. Yeah, there's a there's a there's a good example of this also with the like with the IDF's uh, war against Hezbollah in 2006, where it's like the IDF is a really good army, Mm -hmm. but they'd spent like, I don't know, like they spent like 40 years basically just sort of like. Yeah, they spend about forty years doing police actions. Yeah, and then they run into Hezbollah, and they expect Hezbollah is, is going to just you know they invade Lebanon in two thousand six, and their expectation is that Hezbollah is going to go to ground, they're going to do a guerrilla war, and instead Hezbollah like I mean, they go into bunkers, but they stand and fight, and the IDF gets smashed, mm-hmm. and like you know they 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 pull out and they spend a bunch of time just like murdering people from the air, but like they don't win the war, and like yeah, like that that happens a lot, especially with these armies that are used to dealing, used to doing these sort of police action things. And they lose to enemies that like the, 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 the fact that the IDF lost a war to the Hezbollah is like by like balance of forces. It's like this is inconceivable. Like how on earth did they possibly lose this? But it's like, yeah, this stuff happens because they weren't like, yeah, they, they, they were they were doing they were doing this police action thing and they weren't used to they hadn't fought an enemy that was actually going to stick in and fight them since like the 70s. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the great defeats in military history are because a a force came into a situation expecting a different kind of fight than what they got. That was a part of what happened to Napoleon when he invaded Russia, right? And the Russians did not respond the way that he expected a state to respond to having their capital occupied um, and effectively kind of starved him out. There was other shit going on there. Attrition had really depleted the, the, the French military before it got there. But but yeah. Um, I guess yeah. How how I would want how I would want to wrap up this is basically saying like, in all of that stuff regarding how this war has really prompted a lot of things that were seemingly more unexpected and seemingly thought to be previously more impossible, um, in terms of how fast both rhetoric around these these types of conflicts can spread and morph, and the role in which like disinformation and misinformation is used for you know both both sides to 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 gain to gain ground on the other. And how, you know, relating back to it could happen here is term, in terms of like the urban crumbles or like, you know, the small, small, like urban collapses um, and, you know, escalating, escalating like inter intercountry conflict uh, in various places around the world. How fast certain things can happen that we once thought are kind of more impossible or improbable at, at the very least. You yeah. know, how, how fast you can get people giving advice on how to take out armored vehicles on Twitter.com. How mm-hmm. fast you can get, you know, people like people who are, you know, seemingly are part, are, you know, seemingly not not tied to certain to certain like ideas or ideologies, giving out, you know, information on types of types of ways to resist invading or oppressing forces. It is, uh, it is an interesting kind of. It's like case study is the wrong word because it is it's it's obviously having horrible effects with, you know, thousands and thousands of people being slaughtered. Um but it it is it is intriguing to watch how you know in terms of like the microcosm macrocosm idea of of eventually you know conflict if conflict breaks out in other places around the world in the next in the next few years how our current like social media landscape how our kind of rules around like urban conflict like urban conflict and all of these things kind of interact with each other and how we view yeah what is what is likely and what we you know who who you're going to predict is going to do X thing based on people invading a city that it's not theirs. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think in terms of stuff that, that people can take out of this, you know, without necessarily needing to prepare to fight in an urban insurgency, one of them is that anytime 
big shit happens and and more big shit is going to keep happening for us, you have a window of opportunity through which you can get things across to people that they would not normally listen to. Yep. Um, and that is a really important time. And it helps to think about the kind of situations that might occur and the kind of things that you want to push out into the world. Because um, this is this is as true with climate change as it is with war, right? We're going yep. to have more disasters. And when those disasters hit, it will be easier to get people to talk about radical solutions to things like climate change. Yep. And it will be easier to do things like get out in the fucking streets and get large groups of people agitated. You know, we're, we're at some point, fucking God willing, we will have the climate change equivalent to what happened in 2020, where something so terrible and fucked up happens that a lot of people take to the streets. And hopefully we will succeed to a greater extent in forcing actual change than maybe we did in 2020. Yeah. But but that's that's something like that could very well happen. And so that's one of the lessons I think you can take out of this again without sort of obsessing over military technology or getting into gunfights with fucking soldiers is Ukraine is is hard evidence that that is the way the media environment works. You get these moments where you can really yeah. push some wild shit to I people. Mean, that's that's why I like the whole uprising or insurrection model more than the revolution model. Because the uprising model posits that basically you have, you know, base, base society, based reality, you know, always at like the baseline level. Then an uprising happens. It's like it's like shooting up onto a graph. Suddenly mm -hmm. so many things that are just outside the normal way that we view, you know, systems of governance, systems of, you know, yeah. social control. So many things become so much more possible in this like heightened place. Yeah. Um, and that's what the uprising does. It gets things that were suddenly that were once so far away and once just only in the imagination. It almost it makes them so much closer. Right. Yeah. The, 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 there was this feeling in like July of 2020 during the height of the Fed war being like so many things feel possible in this one moment. Nothing is true and all is permitted. Like, yeah. you can you can get away with some shit. <laughs> yeah. And so using the uprising model. Yeah, it can really and or or the or the insurrection model like it can really it can really make things feel so much more possible than what they usually feel like. And th there's, you know, brief moments in time where massive social change can happen. And, you know, you have to learn how to recognize when those moments are happening and then organize effectively when they do happen. Yeah. Yep. Well, I believe that does it for us today. Um, yeah, I, we've been we've been wanting to you know talk, talk about this topic for a while in terms of, you know, one of the fir very first things that started happening was various governments giving guides out on where to attack armored vehicles with Molotovs. You're like, oh, wow, this is this is intriguing to have a government giving out instructions. Yeah. Um, yeah. This is probably has some implications on how we view, you know, uh, uh, collapse in a, in, a, in a general concept. So, yeah, ever since that started happening, we wanted to talk about it. So, it yeah, cer it certainly leaves us with a lot to think about. And I, I didn't get to go on my rant about the structure of the Russian military vis-a-vis -vis their lack of an NCO core, but maybe we'll talk about that in the future. I'm sure we'll have enough time to talk with this in the future. Mm -hmm. uh, well, everyone, uh, I don't know, do do something productive. Yeah, do do something productive. Uh, don't charge armored vehicles. Don't charge armored vehicles no. with paint. But yeah. maybe think about the different things you would like to get a bunch of people suddenly radicalized on Twitter to do in the immediate wake of a horrible climate disaster in which large numbers of folks are suddenly willing to take to the streets seemingly overnight. Maybe be thinking about that and and trying to 
talking with your buddies about it and being like, hey, if everybody gets out in the streets again, what kind of information do I want to spread? What would yeah. be good to get people talking about in that instance when they're suddenly listening for, I don't know, about two weeks? It feels like you get about two weeks. Two, honestly, yeah. About, that is, about that is two the time. weeks. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, in the, in the wake of the new IPCC report, we, have, we sh- certainly have a lot to think about. So. Mm-hmm. All right. Bye. Bye. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Mother's Day is right around the corner, and in true She Pivots fashion, we're highlighting moms who've dedicated their lives and their pivots to supporting mothers. The iconic Christy Turlington will join us to talk about launching Every Mother Counts after pivoting from her 90s supermodel days. And later, the co-CEOs of Baby to Baby will share how they're addressing the needs for millions of babies and moms. So tune in and subscribe to She Pivots. New episodes out every Wednesday. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you ask two people the same exact set of seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including actress and star of the mega hit sitcom Friends, Courtney Cox. You can't go around it, so you just go through it. This is a roadblock. It's going to catch you down the road. Go through it. Deal with it. Comedian, writer, and star of the series Catastrophe, Rob Delaney. I shouldn't feel guilty about my son's death. He died of a brain tumor. It's part of what happens when your kid dies. Intellectually, you'll understand that it's not your fault, but you'll still feel guilty. Alt-rock icon, Liz Fair. That personal disaster wrote Guyville. So everything comes out of a dead end. And many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers.
It's goblin mode! Uh, welcome to It Could Happen Here, a podcast that is today in goblin mode. Uh, you know what it's about. You've heard us say it like about 20 million times. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I'm your host, Christopher Wong. And uh, with me today, we have Juniper, who is a really Twitter shitpost extraordinaire uh, on to discuss language, media, culture, the nature of reality and goblin mode. Uh, Juniper, welcome to the show. Hi, how's it going? It's going good. It's going much better since Goblin Mode has <laughs> seized control of the world. And we are it's, now living in the age of Goblin it's, Mode. It's the year of Goblin Mode, as the Drew Barrymore show said this morning, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's been quite a time. I, I didn't realize just posting would like just posting would influence so much around yeah. me, I guess. I don't know. It's, it's been an interesting time for sure. Yeah, so so I wanted to talk to you about sort of the absurdity that is goblin mode um and i i want to hold off on talking about what goblin mode like is or isn't for a bit because i think that's actually weirdly the less interesting part and i want to start with instead the story of how goblin mode became like a thing and why i am reading uh i i i keep i keep like every every time i look for more goblin mode headlines there's more goblin mode headlines like there is yeah, yeah. I, think, I think uh my favorite so far is from bloomberg it's a uh, diesel diesel prices have gone goblin mode forget crude oil this could be the real energy emergency yeah that that is by far one of my favorites too uh <laughs> the the full headline too if you search for that one is uh it, it's what you said but then it adds on uh thanks to the ukraine war yeah i never thought that i would see an official bloomberg headline with goblin mode and the ukraine war in the yeah <laughs> I gotta say that, that's just by far my favorite one for multiple that's reasons. Amazing. Oh. Actually, <laughs> the, the other part of to me that's extremely funny is that I uh, so the, the the people who are doing these articles I uh, keep getting asked. So someone is someone is asking like an intern to find a picture of a goblin, and they keep posting pictures of orcs, which is like enormously funny to me. <laughs> okay, so <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure what they're searching to get those. Yeah, yeah I don't know. It's it's really incredible. <laughs> okay, so. Yeah, I guess I should, so we should start from the beginning of this story, which is, yeah, can you talk about your shitpost and uh, what you were thinking at the time when you made a shitpost that randomly, like, has has had months-long ripple effects on the world? Sure. I I, I think you were right, though. Like, the, the, the post itself, and that's, like, the least interesting part of all of Goblin Mode, in my opinion as well uh like just seeing the ripple effect is what's been super interesting and really funny to me but um sure yeah the, the post um basically i think it was like the day that um uh, what kanye west and julia fox which just a quick note i i've never heard of julia fox before any of this <laughs> so i just I, like sometimes if like you, you know if twitter is all talking about one thing the most recent thing being like the will smith slap like everyone's talking about that so whenever like some like big event like that is happening and everyone's posting about it, I try to like think of some creative different post I can do, you know, just to get in on the the discourse or whatever you want to call it. So I just I I, I really don't know what compelled me to make a fake headline, but basically <laughs> I just I, I just decided to search. I think I was driving home from work and I just decided to search like Kanye West Julia Fox, and I just found the first headline and I just edited it to say um, Kanye West doesn't like it when uh, Julia Fox goes goblin mode, basically. And that's why they broke up. That was, that was the whole essence of the, of the post itself. 
Um, and I, I really didn't think too deeply uh, about it beyond just making the post. And it just, it caught fire with like, I, I guess what we would probably call normie, normie Twitter, like people that aren't even like necessarily leftists or anything like us. Um, it just really caught a hold with the whole of Twitter. And uh, pretty much like most of the people that saw it, you can you can go back and check the replies. Most people think it's real at the time. Like yes. people posting it <laughs> and replying about it all think it's real. And no one, like hardly anyone verified it. It, it was like kind of insane to see. <laughs> yeah, and again, you could just you could just cost. Yeah, I think it's funny because again, like you could very you could just you could just Google this, right? Like you could just Google it and it'd be like, oh wait, hold on, this isn't real. But like no one did that. And it was like yeah, yeah, like you could have just easily searched the, the, the main part of the headline, like Kanye West to Julia Fox. It was literally the second or third headline. Yeah, that I searched you could have found the same website, same author, but seeing that it wasn't the the correct headline. Although that does remind me, when there was a, the initial article about my post, um, I forget who wrote it at this point. I think it was um, the focus. Yes, that's right. It was the focus. They, um, they, they, for some reason made the assumption when they decided, when they decided to talk about my tweet, that the, the website, like the headline that I made, made up the original website, like edited that part out. So they thought that my headline was real, but it was just <laughs> edited and taken away. And yeah. changed. so that also affected what some people thought about it too. Like they thought a lot of people thought it was really real. That's, that's what's insane to me about this yeah and like yeah and like like vogue like picked this up this was just like a thing that that like everyone yeah. believed was real everyone was just reporting on it as news and the, the, there's yeah, so much yeah. like there's so much like incredible stuff about this like part of it you know uh, so one of the articles uh, that that gets published about this, like after, so like there, there's this initial period where everyone is running around going like, "Oh my god, it was goblin mode," and then Julia Fox has to make a statement that's like, "No, I, there's, there was no goblin mode. No one said this." Yeah, yeah, that's that's the interesting about the, like the evolution of goblin mode, uh, like stemming from my post specifically is. At first, the coverage was talking about whether my post was real or fake, and talking about that aspect of it but as time has gone on it's kind of evolved away from that like you you won't see any goblin mode article talk about the original like julia fox tweet that jump-started this whole thing anymore it's kind of like shifted away from that initial uh that initial post which i found really interesting that that's what's sustaining this i feel like yeah i I wanted to read a uh I, i wanted to read a passage from one of the, I don't know why I'm calling it a passage. It's just like a sentence, but I read part of one of the articles <laughs> that, that came from, from the, the initial surge, which is from the streetwear company called high snobbity. Uh, don't tell me if I'm in, like pronouncing that uh, wrong. I, well, okay. That's, that's not true. Twitter. If I'm pronouncing that wrong, uh, my Twitter is at, I write. Okay. Uh, yell there. Um, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I, I, I want, I want to read this quote because I think it's interesting. It, it, so the, the article, they have this whole thing that's like, okay, they, they, they get to the denial. They post your tweet about like, oh my God, I can't believe Julia Fox had to respond to this. And then they say, I'm not saying Fox was lying, but wearing a borderline not suited for work dress, a purse trimmed in human DNA and DIY eye makeup to an Oscars after party is goblin mode to a T. And, and I think this brings up an interesting question, which is to what extent was goblin mode real in the first place before 
your sort of meme to went went viral. So, so like the phrase itself, you mean? Like yeah, what, yeah. Like at what part of the, the phrase existed before my post? Yeah, and, and I, I think it was also like, what what were you thinking? Like, did you have like a conception of what Goblin Mode like was before you made the post? <laughs> so, so the only thing I had in my mind at that point, um, it's, it stems from specifically. Um, do Do you know the the user on Twitter, uh, Hottie Pants? Do you happen to know that guy? Uh, I don't think so. No, uh, he goes by, I think his ad is like punished pants or something like that. But anyways, uh, he, he, around that time, he was posting a lot about like goblins. He was, he would post a lot about like goblin time and like, it, oh, it's goblin time. And he would just make like a, a bunch of just like posts like that. So goblins were on my mind at that point. And then I forget his username, but his, um, I think his username is, um, uncontrolled I, I, for, I forget his user i'll have to tell you afterwards or something I, I i don't remember off the top of my head but he he made a, a post that went viral uh something to the effect of like um your honor um i was going goblin mode at that time you know that format <laughs> that's like you're, you're in court but yeah the excuse is like oh i'm going goblin mode it really in in my head that's really the only reference i had so I, I didn't make up the phrase a lot of people think i, I made up the phrase yeah. goblin mode which i i definitely did not um but I, I think just there was a lot of people posting about, about goblins around that time, like early mid March. Yeah. And I, I, I just in my mind, I was like, oh, you know, I'm just going to say goblin mode on this, this <laughs> shit post about Julia Fox. I don't, I really don't know why. It's just the first thing that popped in my head. And whenever something pops in my head, like a, a tweet idea, and I laugh to myself, I'm like, okay, I should post it. I don't know. And it seemed to work. <laughs> did, did you end up? So one of the things, one of the other things I think is really interesting is that, right? So, Okay, so you you have you have your first wave of like it's the goblin mode thing, and then you have your second wave of articles that are trying to explain what goblin mode is. And I was I was wondering if if you'd see if you'd actually even seen uh the post I just li- I linked to the chat. Um, there was like like the the, the 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 thing I'd seen from goblin mode before this like all started was this like Reddit. It was, it was someone on Twitter had a tweet that went viral about goblin mode and it was about just like someone it was about this reddit post of like someone creeping around their house and pretending and acting like a goblin yes <laughs> yes so i didn't see that until i made my post like in my initial uh, goblin mode post because i think someone linked it under my post and i was like oh shit is this like a thing like this is actually <laughs> like a thing and then it started popping up more because people saw that reply and were like oh shit this is like actually a thing and to my surprise it like totally worked out for me like everything kind of just came together in a really insane uh fashion oh that's another tweet too the one that you linked the the that's when i was going that's when i was in goblin boy that that came before my tweet too yeah had you had you seen that one before before you made it i follow her Uh, i do i i follow kelgore i might have seen it i don't remember i remember the the other one i was referencing before um i i might have seen this one though yeah, like I, I, I think like that. That was what just, what was interesting to me about this was that like the moment it went viral, there was this whole sort of like attempt because there was an attempt to figure out what it is, and then there was an attempt to like back project a history on it, and so you get a lot of these articles, and you get a lot of people like I don't know, like I would talk to people about this, and they would like. You know, okay, so they do this thing where it's like, okay, so they 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 go to know your meme, they look at the the Google trends, and then like the people sort of like. You know, okay, like there was an Urban Dictionary thing from like 
2009 that was like a complete like a weird sex thing it was like completely unrelated to this but it was interesting to me the way that people like okay so you have this thing that goes viral right and like you're just fucking around (laughs) like there's no act like it just sounds cool but then like yeah there's an extent to which it it becomes this like you know it, it, it gets into the sort of like virality machine and so you have all these journalists who like have to cover it, right? Because like you know the the way the journalism model works is okay. So you 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 have this trend, right? People can see it trending. You see something on Twitter. Uh, you do like four sets of Googles and you write an article about it. And it's like, well, okay, because they're trying you're trying to like capitalize on on the clicks as fast as possible. So when someone Googles what is Goblin mode, it's like, okay, your thing comes up. But it's interesting because it's like it's like they they have to fill the content in because there isn't any. Yeah, yeah, that's what was interesting about the specific, uh, that, that first one, the focus article, it, it was just a lot of, like, filling in where there was really nothing. Yeah. That's, and that's that, what's interesting about that. Yeah, and then, and then, like, after that, like, all the other articles are, like, like you, you, you get to see this proliferation of sort of how, of how the media works, where it's like, okay, so you have the initial article, the initial article Googles some stuff and is basically just making it up. Because they're they're trying to, like, give coherence or, like, give a meeting to an empty signifier, and then... After that, it's like all of the other articles are just copying off of the first article and you get this like Ouroboros of like everyone just is repeating the same thing over and over again. And none of them seem to understand that like it was not the, the thing that they originally talking about was just kind of. I mean, I can it say just it a, was a funny phrase. Yeah, it's yeah, just, a funny, just like, phrase. <laughs> <laughs> like that's really all it was. And uh, it, it's it is interesting to see how it is just able to proliferate off of as you yeah, as you were saying they just google search urban they find an urban dictionary and it's like yeah. hey, i'm putting that in my article urban dictionary is a, is a good source <laughs> yeah and, and like i i think it this this is like i mean i think there's there's like a few interesting things here one of which is about how yeah like i i had this before like i'm not sure if i actually talked about this on the show so the day of the atlanta shooting uh garrison and i spent a lot of time trying to like track down the shooter and there was there was this like fake Facebook post that was going around, and you know Garrison and I had spent like a lot of time looking for this guy, and we okay, we, were, we realized he's, like, this guy just doesn't have a Facebook, right? And so we were like, so like I, I was like, look at this, like I, I saw this fake Facebook post, and I was like, oh, this is fake. And then like a bunch of uh, a bunch of like a bunch of like actual journalists like found you know people have, like because journalists have been passing around the fake Facebook post. It's like, oh, this okay. is a post alleged to be a thing. And then and then suddenly they were like, oh, oh, hey, this is fake. Hey, you can see all these things. Like, oh, look, it's like uh you know, like there, there was like the the it, it was pretty clear of it like his face had been copied and pasted into like a thing that's it was supposed to look like a Facebook post. Like, there was all these like minor details about it that were just wrong. And it was like, okay, so this isn't real. But the the media cycle of it was like all of these people saw my Twitter post that was like, this is fake. And then they just wrote a story off of it and like never mentioned that, that, that they literally got it from like me fucking around on Twitter. Like, and it's like, <laughs> and it's like, and it's like, you look at this stuff and, it, and the, the extent to which these people are just like these people who are journalists who are, you know, supposed to be real journalists are just like woefully unprepared. Even people, even who, people who are extremely online, like, wind up being woefully unprepared to deal with like anything like they're woefully unprepared to deal with anything of any complexity or deal or like figure out that they're being like hoaxed. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, no, you're 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 really right about that. I mean, I mean, I think this it's I don't know what I would call this phenomena, but it, 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 it there's definitely something there where it's like they will see something like I, I don't know I don't know what it is about specifically Twitter that like I feel like that's where a lot of people get news just in general, but I feel like a lot of journalists just assume anything that they see. Maybe I'm overgeneralizing, but if they see something on Twitter, even if it's like a joke, like they'll just assume it's real or something. I'm not. I'm not entirely sure. Like, it's super easy to make a fake post. I do it all the time. I, I make all sorts of like fake, fake things. Most of them are more obvious than Goblin Mode, I guess. Yeah. But I don't know. They're. I don't want to say journalists are too trusting. Yeah. Well, and, and, and space, but. I will say, like, there are times when it's genuine. Like, when you first started posting the headlines of, like, the actual Twitter articles that were about Goblin Mode, I, I like, I didn't even bother looking them up because I just assumed they were fake. Yeah. And no, I was I like, a lot. <laughs> a lot of people told me that. Yeah. Like, I think specifically the, the, the one that, like, the, most of my followers realized that they weren't fake anymore was the one that was, like, um, as a disabled uh, woman, goblin mode, this goblin mode trend is really problematic. And people people decided to look that one up and were like, oh, it's real. And then everyone was like, wait, were all these other ones that you were posting real? And I'm like, yeah. fucking yes, they were all real. The yeah. only thing that was the, the Julia Fox one. All yeah. of them have been real. All it of was... these different <laughs> agencies have been, or all these news organizations have been writing all this insane shit about nothing <laughs> yeah and, and there's there's you know i mean i think that th- this one is funny just because like yeah i mean like it's goblin mode right like it's 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 just funny like there's no like you know but but i mean i think that there's an interesting thing that happens with with the the, the specifically the disabilities one because the disabilities one isn't like it's basically about something completely different that the goblin mode thing spawned which is that like like the, the other thing that happened with goblin mode was that okay so people saw goblin mode and then specifically on like tiktok um, I, I don't I don't know if they knew where it came from, but like people like people turned goblin mode into an actual thing where like it became this thing about like uh I like I I think I think this is also influenced by like some of the like shit post answers that you gave the media people that were like goblin mode could be whatever you want. Uh it's when you aren't awake in the pandemic or like you're not doing your makeup in the pandemic or whatever. <laughs> and like <laughs> yeah but 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 it's interesting yeah, i'm not sure how much that like fueled like the I, I really don't know if the tiktok thing came before or after i, I only I th- really i think about, it's like, after TikTok. yeah was th- it from, after okay from, from what i've seen it, it it's it seems like it actually became a thing after and that was really interesting to me too because it was like it, it's this way in which like you know okay so y- y- you start running into these sort of like fundamental problems about the nature of reality where it's like Okay, so we, we made this thing that is fake, right? But then it became real because enough pe- enough people believed it was real that it it turned into a thing that people actually use to describe stuff. And then, you know, that that's how you get to, like, you get a bunch of people complaining about how, like, there, there was an article that was, like, the Great Resignation and Go in Goblin Mode are, like, the two great threats to employers as they try to force yes. people back to work. <laughs> it's like... <laughs> yeah, it's, it, it's like... It, it, the goblin mode like self-manifested into reality like i feel like a lot of journalists are saying like people being lazy and like you know how the, the, the whole meme of like oh no one wants to work anymore yeah, yeah i feel like a lot of people are trying like attributing like oh not wanting to work and being lazy to goblin mode and it's it, it self-manifested 
through the media or TikTok or whatever, whatever it might, yeah. might be. I, I truly don't know. But it, it's it's become a thing now in, in a really strange way. Yeah. Yeah. And I think I think this is like an, this is an interesting way of looking like, you know, like this was the whole sort of like. Like in 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 terms of like, okay, in, in insofar as posting can actually affect reality, which it can, but not as much as people seem to think. Like mm-hmm. there are there are there are people who like seem to think that like the three letter agencies care what they post on Twitter, which is like <laughs> it's like no 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 hold on hold on if if we post correctly, interventions won't happen. It's like have you seen the CIA? Like, but like like there's there's this whole thing where it's like. You know, I mean, this it it, it, it it okay. This this is gonna be the like someone's gonna pull this out of context and be like, ah, hey, look at how dumb Chris is. But like, you know, th- like this this is kind of what happened with Trump, where it's like, like this is this isn't like what the meme magic was. It's like if if you just meme something long enough, you can kind of turn it into reality by just sort of convincing enough people that it's real that it and and you know, and once you've done that, like you you have effectively made the thing real, right. And what's interesting about yeah, this that's... one is, is this like, cause like a lot of people like do that on purpose, right? Like this is how like, pro- this is like, there's a lot of propaganda stuff that works like this or like, you know, this is like what the, the, the meme, like 4chan Trump bullshit was but, like, you did this like completely like as a joke on accident. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I didn't, I didn't intend this. I just made, I was, I just wanted to make a one-off joke. Yeah. I, I didn't think that would happen, but, but you're, you're, you're totally right about the whole, like, I don't, I don't know how much like the Trump meme magic was really a self manifestation of him kind of just, winning the election and pe- becoming popular with a certain group yeah. of people but it definitely feels like uh like that self-manifestation of like posting to, to a certain extent really can become real if it just like hits a certain zeitgeist of some yeah. sort and like they just get I, I think a crucial part of it is it needs to get picked up by the media and taken seriously by journalists specifically yeah because the the, the thing that really uh I feel like broke the camels back in, for goblin mode specifically was the first journalist that uh, reached out to me because she she wanted to interview me about the whole the whole experience like and and her coverage of it was about the whole fake meme thing and then how it became sort of a thing in in that aspect um and then um from there they all a a lot of different journalists and uh, websites referred back to that article and now it seems to be the 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 one that everyone's referring to now is the the guardian article about it that seems to be like the, the media's favorite piece about it which is the one that talks more about it being like a lifestyle trend. And I, I, I think that's where it really went off is when like some people took in the TikTok aspect of it and kind of manifested it that way. I think there's a couple of interesting political consequences of this. One of which is that like, like Twitter as a platform isn't really, I mean, since Trump got banned, it's kind of like, it hasn't really been where most like, stuff is happening like tiktok is exploding i mean you still have like the boomers on facebook like it it hasn't (laughs) like it hasn't been the sort of like driving force of politics that it normally is but the one thing that it has is that all of the journalists are still on there and that means that like yeah like there's all these weird political consequences where like yeah you can sort of like like you can just sort of will things into existence by convincing journalists that it's real and that's I, i think really scary in a lot of ways for, because you know, like the the people who are really really good at this sort of manipulation are right wingers, and right wingers have sort of like, like I, I don't know, like I, I people are probably mad about me for this, but like one of the things that I remember from like, oh god, was this 2016? Was like there was this whole discourse about like uh like there's a bunch of ra- like all a bunch of people are really mad about like there being a black stormtrooper in Star Wars, 
And oh God, yeah, the whole the whole last yeah, shit. Or yeah, yeah. The, the, the thing that was interesting <laughs> about it was like, uh, yeah, I think I think that was, just, yeah, yeah. There, there, there was the thing that was interesting about it was like, so I know people who like who like looked into it beforehand, and it was like the only people who were talking about this. It was like people who were confused because they thought that stormtroopers were all clones, and were like, wait, why? Wait, what? <laughs> and then, and the other thing, the other the other group of people who were mad about this was Stormfront, right. And Stormfront was able to like turn this into like like a, a discourse. Like they they, they were able to conv- they were able to convince journalists that like this was a real thing that like a significant number of people were mad about. And then it like actually turned into a thing that a significant number of people were, were mad about because you can sort of just like like you you can start these like panics. And like this is one of the things we were talking about in in our trans episodes, where like you know a a a, a fairly small network of well funded people can cause like enormous swaths of the U.S to just lose their shit and get mm-hmm. extremely violent and get like, you know, and, and, and the, the specific thing they're mad about changes like pretty frequently, but you can just sort of like, if, if, if you're able to manipulate the media well enough and you, you know, there, there's other ways to do this. Like, you know, you could do it by like weird memes. You can do it by, you know, being the cops or just like having press releases that you send out. You can, ha- you can do it through like these sort of like AstroTurf, like, uh, I don't know. You have like an astroturf intellectual, like what's his name, Mark right. Rufo. But it, it, it's it's interesting to me that like it, they they all seem to work. Like the, the the pathway through it all seems to be very similar. Which is you what you do is you convince a bunch of media people that something is real, and then once once they start taking it seriously, it sort of manifests itself into reality. Yeah. No. That that is what I realized what was happening. Like I, I one of my initial points that I was trying to make after. Um, the whole goblin mode thing after the first article came out, I was like, it, it really made me realize like how potent fake, I, I hate saying this phrase just because it's become such like a, a nothing sort of phrase, but like fake news, how, how easy it is to just, yeah. like what if, what if instead of goblin mode, I decided like, maybe, let's say I'm like a crazy right winger and I had this weird zeitgeist moment causing a panic about like trans people. And I, I made like a fake tweet, like, that you would we see that happen all the time like trans people a lot of people hate us um and yeah. it would be super easy put it in the right community um make this fake tweet or a fake headline and people right wingers specifically will go wild and it'll uh, really influence the discourse i mean look at the the current i mean it's it's kind of over now but the, the the last i think it was last week the swimmer the the trans swimmer yeah, that yeah. won the, the women's competition i mean the, the amount of vitriol that was able to be created over that. Yeah. Just like imagine what, like, as you said, like a well-funded tight network of, um, that's, I don't know, but I, for lack of a better phrase, like fake news creators, just yep. all, all they need to do is put something out on Facebook. The boomers see it and then it's over. <laughs> it yeah. What, what, real are, to them. What, what, one of the things I learned about, like, while I was doing research for weirdly an episode about Reverend moon was that like, People figured so. Th- this is sort of like this is like how the Republicans came to power. Like they, they figured out you could do shit like this, and like uh, Robert Vigieri, like in in like in like the sixties, figured out that like if you just if you sent like you, you you could just send letters to like like they weren't I guess they weren't even boomers at that point. If you just send letters to old people that would say stuff <laughs> like uh, uh, Planned Parenthood is uh, harvesting baby fetuses, you could just get them really mad. And it's like, and it's funny because yeah. you know, oh, yeah. in the sixties, like he's he's doing this like by mail, right? Like he 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 is <laughs> mailing you a chain letter. <laughs> it's just like, <laughs> stuff. Yeah, it, it it became this like the, the proto uh, chain email. 
Yeah, yeah. It's like just like it's, funny, it's weird because you can watch them invent this, and then it's like, oh yeah, this guy was funded by like a a weird cult guy who was trying to take over the world, who was being backed by the Korean CIA, and it's like. I don't know. It, it, it gets into this. Yeah, it, it, it all sort of comes back into this weird thing where, yeah, I mean, I, I like one of, one of the, what the sort of political transformations I've had since I started working here was like, I didn't take like it's sort of similar to what you were saying. Like, I didn't take the like weaponized unreality, like fake news stuff like that seriously. And then it was like, right. you, you cover it every day and it's like, oh, my God, like the like the the weird like like watching like 4chan like invents the actually, I don't know if it was 4chan. It was I, one of uh, watching like just weird right wing like message boards invent uh like the, the whole <laughs> Ukrainian bio lab thing, which like Grant, oh, Glenn God, Greenwald yeah. now tweets about, and like like oh, like <laughs> the, 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 like the official state media of Russia and China are like talking about these bio labs, and it's like it, it, it's turned into this weird like like thing where like yeah like like actual countries with like nuclear weapons are like basically using shit posters as like as like a way to do propaganda and it's it's just like really weird i don't know it, it's it's just really weird and incredibly disturbing media space to live in yeah it's it's like a, it's a weird synthesis of uh shit posters just posting online to like whatever audience and i guess like media of some sort not maybe not like um in the in the case with the 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 bio lab i don't know too much about that Especially because I'm blocked by Glenn Greenwald, so I, I don't see a lot of his stuff. <laughs> yeah, but um, <laughs> but yeah, no, it, it's it's interesting how how kind of interlocked they are. And and to your point about er, earlier about the the whole Trump meme magic thing, like I, I didn't take that too seriously at the time. Um, like in 2016, I was like, oh, all these silly right wingers making these dumb yeah. memes. Like this isn't going to do anything. Like, I I don't I truly don't know if it really had an effect. But I mean, it, it's we can't really ignore the power that just simply manifesting something, even if it's artificial can actually have a hold on certain people. Um, as you were saying with the, the mailing letters, I mean, if, if you just say enough, if, if you say something enough to the right type of person, they'll just believe it. I mean, yeah. it's, it's not hard to lie to people as horrible as that is to say, it's really not yeah. that hard to lie to people. <laughs> Yeah, like I mean, that's the, the the whole sort of like everyone yelling groomer like constantly about trans people. It's like, yeah, they just lied over and over again, and like half the people who are like saying this stuff are actually pedophiles, and it doesn't matter because <laughs> you know if you just like do this shit over and over again, you get these, you get you just get these like hate mobs, and it's yeah, no, the the, the right wing right wingers specifically are phenomenal at creating hate mobs. Yeah, it's it's kind of incredible to, to witness. It's it's really scary, but it, it's it's an incredible thing to see. There's not really an equivalent, I would say, on the left in in the way that, um, even in, maybe in liberals, there's an equivalent, but like on the on the left, there's not really like an equivalent to like some like a mob in that way. Yeah, that I've noticed. Yeah, I mean, I I, th- I think that's you know like okay, the, the, there's always an extent to which like these stuff the stuff has like material constraints. Like, you know, I, I talk about, like, constantly on this show, the fact that, like, this is, like, this is the stuff that the neocons believed, and then they ran into the material constraints of the Iraq war, and their entire project imploded. And, mm-hmm. like, I mean, I, I think one of the reasons why this is easier for the right is that, like, there's, there, there, there's, a, there's, a, there's, there's, a, there's always a, a political base for them that is there that, that they can access fairly easily, which is, okay, they, mm-hmm. they, they, they have access to 
like you know that they have access to like a, a, a vast swath of petite bourgeois they have access to a bunch of, of white business owners they have access to like this sort of like this like white professional class they have access to this sort of like white gentry e class and like those people can very easily be sort of like whipped into a frothing rage and like part of it is because like that that's essentially that's just what their that's what their class interest is that's what the sort mm-hmm. of like like their status the racial racial hierarchy like brings them to do already and you could sort of like you know if you just shuffle a bit of coal on it you can you, you could make the fire go absolutely and i mean I, it's talked about a lot i'm sure but like the the, the one thing that is really powerful is Fox News? Um, yeah, yeah. Fox News will pick up literally anything. Like I saw, yeah. I saw a post on Twitter just the other day, a screenshot or just a just a picture of uh, Fox News, and they they cited the the libs of TikTok Twitter account yeah. when talking about school classrooms. It's like, what is that? Like, no, like right wingers will just take the source of a random Twitter user that has a TikTok also, that, to- that takes messages from random people that message them, and then that's their news. Like that oh, is like- just insane. To 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 be fair to Fox News, which is not a thing I will ever say again, uh, <laughs> it, it it wouldn't it wouldn't surprise me if that whole thing like well because so the the I don't know if you saw this the the, the lives of TikTok person is like is is that that thing is run by an old Bush administration person? Really, I did not know that. Yeah, no. so it, it it wouldn't. I mean, okay, like there the, the, there's probably a three in four chance that they just saw someone who's like trying to own the libs on TikTok, but there's like a one in four <laughs> chance that like all the the old like Bush Network people like know each other, and that's why they're promoting it. Which, yeah, no, that's that's a good point. That's a good yeah. point. I mean, they have to know that they brought. Well, that maybe I person. I don't know. Like it's it's, it's <laughs> one of those things where it's like it, it becomes, I don't know. It, it becomes really difficult to to know the extent to which the right believes yeah well how organized they are and to the extent to which they believe what they're saying because right. part of that like that becomes like you know if, if if you know who's behind that it becomes easier to sort of be like oh yeah we're just sort of playing a game but it could also just be like right. nah this is this is content that we like uh we were all too lazy to go <laughs> or just message the person to see who they are like <laughs> i mean they had the specifically in this case the the libs of tiktok lady they had her like on fox news once talking oh yeah yeah so I, they, they referenced her multiple times so they they have to know her yeah they, they probably I, do. I do yeah they have yeah to. that that's that, that's another technique that they do a lot which is that they 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 take someone who is like it you know like an like an old part like an who's literally a republican operative right Mm-hmm. and just launder them as an actress actually the, the funny part is you you see like like the new york times and shit like all the main street outlets do the same thing too where it's like oh right yeah well well the, like a, a, anytime you see an article that is like i was a democratic voter but i'm gonna vote for the republicans <laughs> I, nine times out of ten that person is a republican operative and if you google their name and look hard enough you can just find it and it's like <laughs> it's <laughs> and, and, and that's yeah, everything you're, you're so right yeah, that's another thing. Where it's like I, I don't know whether they whether they're just lazy and don't check, or whether they're just sort of like doing this kind of like I don't know the, what, what what whether they're doing this on purpose because I mean that, you know that's that's the thing with journalism like it's it's difficult to like when someone screws something up it's it's difficult to determine a lot of times whether it's malice or whether it's they're just the only research they did was they googled something. Yeah, <laughs> like, I, 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 feel like, I feel like in the, the, the realm that we're talking about right now with like right wingers, I think a lot of it, 
obviously is pretty malicious a lot of the time. Yeah. At yeah. least with like the big outlets. But in terms of like the whole goblin mode situation where that, that stemmed off just from like random like Guardian whatever articles, I think I think that was just more of like a, oh, let's kind of try to explain this thing that is apparently now a trend and we're manifesting it in real time. Yeah. I, I do think there's a distinct, like a dis- distinction between that. Cause I feel there's no like uh, <laughs> like with goblin mode, there's there's no nefarious aspect of it. But it, it, that like technique can be used in a very nefarious way, and I, I think that manifests in in the most easy to waste, uh, easiest to see ways in right wing media. Yeah, I, I do want to also mention that like the, the, the yeah I I think I said briefly like the people who do this the most often are cops. Like the cops, and if if you see a story about the police in a mainstream newspaper, and you see the same story in another paper, it's because they're basically printing a press release. And you know, I mean, this this gets used to like launder just straight up police lies about shootings. Uh, they manufactured like the entire crime wave thing, like the whole thing <laughs> about people taking boxes off of trains. It's like, yeah, y- y- you look into it, and it's like, yeah, there's these like the, the there's these sort of like shadowy police networks of people who are basically running i mean they have enormous budgets to do this too like they they have these enormous um like departmental uh like public outreach budgets and those public outreach budgets are basically them running information ops on us which is incredibly fun (laughs) you know that that is absolutely like a real phenomena I, I I don't know too much about it specifically in cops but I know I know the White House does that all the time they've they've done that forever too where it's like oh there's a White House leak and it's like, oh, no, they wanted people to see this. This was yeah. entirely intentional. <laughs> yeah, they, they try out balloon stuff a lot. And that's, I don't know. And like, the, this is, this is. Go- Go- Goblin mode is like the fun version of looking at how all of this <laughs> stuff works. But this stuff happens with stuff that is extremely deadly and has real world consequences. And yeah, it's, it's some, it's something we need to be thinking about and trying to I don't know if use for good is the right thing, but like it, it, it's something that we need to be really conscious of as we're dealing with, you know, a bunch of fascists trying to murder everyone. Absolutely. I mean, that, that's been the most interesting thing about this to me is watching like, I, I hate calling it this, but just for lack of a better word, kind of like uh, goblin mode is like being manufactured, like manufacturing consent in real time, like from the genesis of my post watching it in real time, seeing all these articles come out and kind of all tie into each other and refer back to each other. It's been, it's been kind of eye-opening about this topic that I, I think a lot of leftists kind of know a lot about, like in terms of like media manipulation. And you're, it's, you're right when you said it's like the fun version of that. Yeah. And, and, and it has been the fun version of it, but deep down it's like, oh, this is kind of like watching, watching like how they did like the real, this might be dramatic, but like how they did the Iraq war in real time. Like this is on some level, a very similar strategy, yeah, like media yeah. strategy. And I think, I mean, I think, I think there's, with specifically goblin mode, I, th- I think there's, cause it's like the Iraq war. There was a lot of just malice there. And, yeah, but, but in this one, it's like, yeah, like the, you know, not all of the media, like all of them, like, okay. It, 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 in order for something that's completely fake to get traction it doesn't require everyone involved being malicious what it requires is one person saying a thing and then a bunch of journalists being too lazy to actually look into something and then just you know basically reprinting the article but like rewording a few things which happens constantly right and 
Yeah, and and that like you know it the the, the thing I think that's scary about that is it, it reduces the number of actors who actually have to be involved in a thing for it to just sort of like take off like this, which mm-hmm. yeah, like and I think like there's there's an extent to which okay like Iraq's like something on that scale is pretty rare because it requires like an, an enormous amount of buy-in from a lot of people, but I, there's lots of small examples of this stuff that just happens sort of constantly. And that stuff like, yeah, I mean, I, you know, as, as we've been talking about like that, that, that kind of thing with small numbers of actors and then people just sort of lazily reprinting articles like that stuff. Right. I mean, I think the best example of this currently, at least just in my mind, because I am trans, the the whole trans panic that's happening yeah, right now. Yeah. I, I think that's an, a really good example of it. It was just where like some website will print this certain thing and then it becomes a hysteric panic. Yeah. The, and then the, more the websites spa. and more people will keep talking about it. Yeah. Like I think the most, the most recent example of that was that, that spa where it was like some person claimed like made it made a bunch of claims where they were like, they, they might have seen a trans person maybe and it oh, turned right. into just like literally mobs showing up at this spa, like anti-trans mobs, just like a bunch <laughs> of fascists showing up, a bunch of like, like yeah, and, and that kind of stuff. Yeah, is, that that affects reality. That, that yeah. affects people. That, that really affects people. Yeah, and and like the 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 other one, the other one that, that we've talked about in, in the trans episodes is people to people are starting to uh, do these kind of stuff with gender clinics, and it's you know oh, it's God, only, yeah. Yeah, and it's like yeah, like that. That's only a matter of time before they start killing people. Like, yeah, as sad as that is to say. Yeah, the media can easily whip someone into frenzy to do that. I mean, it, we've we've seen that in the past with, I think, as you referenced before, like the whole like abortion. Yeah, the whole like what was it, in the nineties and the early two thousands, the whole yeah. abortion panic. Yeah, I mean, we saw we we saw people die over stuff like that. Yeah, it's it's, it's insane. Yeah, they did bombings mm-hmm. like. Yeah, and you know, and the other thing is that like they're winning, like they are on the verge of after this like half a century long battle, like they they are on the verge of overturning Roe v. Wade. They are, and, yeah, yeah, like you know that, and that's I think a really grim thing for the left, where it's like, like what one of the asymmetries here is that like if if a leftist like assassinated the head of ICE, right, <laughs> like. There would like I I would be in prison in like a day and a half. There'd be like fifteen people who'd be shot in police raids. Like yeah, yeah. But, but you know, but like when, when the right wing does ter- like does terrorism, like just murders abortion clinic writers, it works. Mm-hmm. And that's a really grim asymmetry, but it's sort of the reality of of the situation that we're in. Right. And yeah, that, that reminds me of the. This is a while ago. This was during the Black Lives Matter protests. I don't even remember why he was on the the um, Fed's radar. But there was a dude I think in Portland, and there was like a there was like a raid, and they just shot the dude in the street. Yeah. Do, you, do you happen to remember that? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it happened yeah, again in. Uh, yeah, they just murdered him, and then like it happened again yeah. with uh, Winston Smith in uh, uh, in Minneapolis, where like the like the cops were mad at him because he was like he was one of the leaders of the stuff that's happening in Minneapolis and they just walked mm-hmm. up and shot him. Yeah. And that's insane. Yeah, and it's it's it, it it is a really bleak look at 
you know, how this country actually works, which is not really what I expected this episode to be ending up. <laughs> and I was like, we'll do a fun episode about Goblin Mode. And now it's like, yeah, here's the state just assassinating people and uh, they're going to keep doing it. And also they're going to like to start bombing abortion. Uh, not, well, I mean, keep bombing abortion clinics and start bombing gender clinics. And it's like, yeah, well, let's uh, hope that doesn't actually happen. But, but yeah, I, I think, I think it was, it was uh, our point was that it was like, we've seen that happen in the past. Yeah. Yeah. By, by the arm of the, the reactionary media fueling this hysteria through it doesn't even matter if it's real or fake stories that's that's the main issue is it can be totally yeah. fake and it'll it'll just fuel um, hysterics against anyone any any target yeah and it's just that easy like yeah like what the, the we should probably close out but like the the, the one that's been fun for me and i by fun i mean dear god has been the the the, the fucking the wuhan biolab shit which was like literally, oh like like literally this 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 like literally this whole thing was a psyop by Steve Bannon, who was like, "This is how we can have Trump win the election by 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 <laughs> uniting everyone in like anti Asian hate," and like it worked. Like, well, I mean, okay, he he lost the election, but like you know, all like eventually this 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 just like completely crank like absolutely batshit. All of the people who are advocating for it are like. Like they like they're like mushroom scientists or they're like people who like you know like like they're they're like weird ivermectin truthers like all these people you know like yeah, were, yeah. Were, were legitimized by the media and like that had that had an enormous impact on the last sort of two years of anti-asian violence like that's like that that's the thing Absolutely. that made it get as bad as it did and again it was it's just completely fake there's nothing it's it's they're, they're just they're just you know like a, b- a bunch of fascists made up a lie about a plague so that they could try to win an election by like murdering Asian people. And yeah. Yeah. yeah and it's, it's and that's, that's the interesting thing is that if you look at um, like polls about like, Oh, how do you feel about China? Like you go back even just four years ago, most people were like, I, I don't have exact numbers on my head, um, but most people, it was like maybe split like, Oh, like, China's kind of scary or like China, China's okay. But like most Americans at this point, even like a lot of liberals do not like China. Like it's like yeah. deep in the red, do not it, like China. It's like, it was just manifested through the whole, maybe not all through the whole Wuhan um, lab, but just the last few year, years of both Biden's government and Trump's government ra- uh, ratcheting hard against yeah, and- um, China and just uh, like anti China's or even anti-Chinese like people sentiments. Yeah. There's an interesting thing there too, where it's like, okay, so for the first about, so this pivot starts in like 2018 when the, when Trump starts a trade war. Right. And Mm -hmm. there's this interesting thing where it's like for the first about two years of it, it was like the views about China were changing, but the actual level of anti-Asian violence wasn't doing much. But then when COVID hit, it was like, cause you know, it, it was, it was, it was kind of like an abstract thing, right? It was like, okay, well we don't like China, but like there was nothing, there, there wasn't like a, a super strong like thing you could point to to directly tie it to Asian people. And then the moment the moment the pandemic started and then the moment the like Wuhan shit started, it was like suddenly there was like a concrete thing that you could point to. And it was that was like, hey, look, it's the Chinese people. The, they're, 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 they're spreading the plague. They manufacture the plague in a lab. It's because they're dirty. And like the, the, the moments became that was when mm-hmm. everything just like all the attacks skyrocketed like that that's 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 when like everything just sort of like really like kicked off and right that was, that was like hysterics. that was like the targeted hysteria of yeah. 2020 and then most of 2021 
I would say, yeah, yeah, and it's well, you know, the 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 fun thing I'm bracing for is like, yeah, this looks like it's going to be the Democrat strategy in 2022 as well as Republican strategy, and it's like, oh, hey, uh, more of us are going to die. This is going to be fun. So, yeah, Uh, yeah, no, yeah, it's kind of scary. Yeah, this this started out as a fun episode, but (laughs) yeah, it's now gotten less fun. (laughs) So, I guess. It was still a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, do, do you have anything else that you want to say or do you want to tell people where to find you? Um, I don't really have anything to say necessarily. Uh, all I really do on the internet, at least like my, my whole internet presence right now is just on Twitter. Um, if you want to follow me, it's um, at meow meow meow. Um, I don't know if you'll have like that linked or anything. It's kind of yeah, hard yeah. to spell with the last, the, the whole meow. It's M-E-U-W. But um, that, that's really all I have is just my Twitter. <laughs> yeah, that's all. That's all I really do online. I mean, it, it 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 is extremely funny, and every once in a while, you'd create goblin mode as an actual thing, which <laughs> is yeah, it's fun. <laughs> yeah, no, I have, I have a good time on Twitter. People people complain about that website a lot, but yeah, I, I since I joined in like 2019 or whatever, I, I haven't looked back. It's 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 a lot of fun. I've met a lot yeah. of cool people. I, yeah, I've I've known of you for a while, but it's nice to actually talk to you. <laughs> yeah, you too. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, it was it was a good time. Uh, yeah, so uh, go goblin mode. Uh, don't <laughs> let the fascists murder trans people. Uh, yeah, uh, this this has been it could happen here. Uh, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Happen Here Pod. Uh, yeah, have fun find cool trinkets suppress the turfs <laughs> got it you got to have the trinkets you got to find the, the that's what goblin mode's all about getting trinkets <laughs> that's right <laughs> all right bye-bye folks hey we'll be back monday with more episodes every week from now until the heat death of the universe it Could Happen Here is a production of Cool Zone Media. For more podcasts from Cool Zone Media, visit our website, coolzonemedia.com, or check us out on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find sources for It Could Happen Here updated monthly at coolzonemedia.com slash sources. Thanks for listening. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart for a year, and what a year it has been. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Make Woke AF Daily your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets 
and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Summon your anticipation for an all-new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. This season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix, May 16th. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes drop starting May 2nd. 